Hi there, esteemed audience, and welcome to a third Middle Grade Ninja Clip Show. Um, I am so excited to share these clips with you today. Uh, I very much enjoyed uh, clip show number one and clip show number two. Um, and today we're gonna we're gonna do uh, clips from episode the Middle Grade Ninja podcast all the way to episode one hundred. It's gonna be uh, just ungodly long, but that I figure that's okay because you could treat it like an audiobook. Pause it whenever you like. Uh, occurs to me I should introduce myself just in case you've forgotten. I'm your host Rob Kent. I'm the author of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees, and you can get that book as an audiobook, uh, a paperback, and the ebook is free. Free to download whenever you're listening to this, wherever fine ebooks are sold. By God, this clip show is going to be so long that will give you plenty of time while you're listening. You can go ahead and download your copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. You'll still have enough time uh, to be thinking about how much this show has, how, how much great content this show has provided you with, and how appreciative you are. And you could probably take just a moment while you're listening to go ahead and 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 rate the show and subscribe and maybe maybe write a review. Take y'all a 30, 40 seconds. You could do it while you're listening. It means the world to me, and it really helps the show out. So I appreciate you doing that. Um, I've said before, and I always mean it uh, with previous clip shows, that the clips I'm about to share with you, this is not a, a, a best of program. These do not represent the best clips from these uh, conversations that range anywhere from one to two hours. Um, for multiple episodes, I was stuck with, you know, as many as 10 different clips that would have been an excellent candidate for what, uh, what can be, uh, included in this, um, in this third middle grade ninja clip show. Um, uh, and so the best thing to do is to just go back and listen to the full episode here, the, the, the full conversation so that the clip makes more sense within context. But I figure this will give you a nice taste uh, of all of these episodes. And what I'm going to do different from previous clip shows is I'm going to introduce every clip by telling you the name of the author and the episode. And then when the clip finishes, I'll remind you who the author was and the episode. Uh, and then I'll tell you about the next one. And that way, uh, if you're hearing somebody that you really want to hear more from, you'll know immediately which episode to go, for, to go toward to, to hear the full thing. Um, and yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's enough for me. By God, we've got so many clips to get to. Let's do this. And our very first clip is going to be, uh, author Catherine Linka, and this is from episode 60. Um, as, uh, I think, you know, I ran a teen advisory board and a tween advisory board. So once a month, I would get together with my teens and I'd give them advanced copies of the YAs that had come in. And they'd go off and they'd pick what they wanted. They'd read them and they'd come back and we'd talk about them. And um, <laughs> wow, <laughs> they were so candid. They, they were, <laughs> you found out what they hated about <laughs> books that they read. <laughs> Interestingly, okay, the, the worst sin you can commit as a YA writer is to be boring. That is absolutely, they, they, no, you are dead. You're, that book is dead. <laughs> the, the second worst is to be confusing. And I think this is really important for writers to understand that clarity is critical. You want to locate your reader. You want to you get them settled 
into where you are in a place, where you are in time, who is there, what's going on. If you start with this kind of vague, ambiguous uh, opening to a chapter, you're going to lose them. And it's even more important when you're writing for middle graders because middle graders are emerging readers. They often feel uncertain about their abilities. And if they aren't comfortable, they will blame you as the writer and they will put down your book and they won't pick up another one. They wanna, they wanna feel like they have the situation under control. So the more clear we are, for those readers especially, the better off our books will do for them. So what's an example of uh, a vague sort of opening that, that wouldn't appeal to those types of uh, readers at all? Um, I have seen uh, books which start with pronouns, he, blah, 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 blah. You know, you if you can't visualize and you don't know where you are, you, you know, the... Um, the forest. Well, you know, you don't know the country. You don't know who else is there. It it's really hard for the reader to grasp and visualize what's going on. There was one book where um, I was doing a, a review of first pages, and it wasn't until I got to the end of the page that the writer revealed that the person who was the he was a centaur. Now, if I had known at the beginning of the page that this was a centaur, that would have really excited me as a reader. Instead, I didn't know who this person was. I, it was just, and see, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Help the reader see who this is and who to get invested in. If I'm writing uh, and I, w I want my reader to know I'm writing about a, a, my character's a centaur, uh, do, would I say something like my hooves, I don't know, made noises on the forest floor? Um, or do I have to specifically flat out state, hi, I'm a centaur? <laughs> well, I think you first off, I think you want to question which uh, whether to be in first person or third person. Sure. Um, you know, it, it, oftentimes YA is first person, but in the case of a centaur, I might be really tempted to go third person. And I think it's, you know, it's not bad that Harry Potter is third person, right? You know, that's, that's very helpful. But really, I mean, I, I think we should all just write Harry Potter every time and then <laughs> there's not going to be an issue. <laughs> well, I think I see a little Hagrid above your head. Oh, yeah. For those of you uh, watching on YouTube, we've got the uh, Harry Potter figures on top. Uh, I used to have, uh, I used to stand in front of a, my shelf of Batman toys, toys, uh, action figures. <laughs> um, I've got uh, over a thousand of them uh, around the house. And I've got a, a shelf display. Uh, and it finally just it hit me that, hey, dummy, your show is about books. Stand in front of books. <laughs> <laughs> Save the, the Batman photos for your blog. <laughs> yeah. That was author Catherine Lenka from episode 60. Next up is author Barbara Shoup from episode 61. Let's uh, 
back up a little bit because I know that you uh, wanted to be a, a writer since I think you said age seven in the book. Uh, it was the only thing you wanted to be, and the goal was you wanted to be rich and you live forever bet. through your books, <laughs> um, which obviously is in the process of happening. We're, we're not ruling anything out. Right. Uh, but is that, at what point did that, uh, when that didn't instantly materialize, because, you know, the podcast wasn't around then to, uh, right. <laughs> to, 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 to raise you up. Um, <laughs> When that didn't initially um, materialize and this became a lot of work as well as a lot of fun, what kept you writing and what keeps you writing now? It, I stopped writing for, well, okay, I'll, I'll just tell you my weird little slave girl story if, if that sort of started it. I wrote a novel when I was 11. And it was called Slave Girl. And this was in the 50s, and, you know, it, with all of the things that were going on, integration and all this stuff on television that was very upsetting to me. And my little kid brain morphed that into a story that was called Slave Girl. And it was about a little girl escaping by Underground Railroad from the you know south to the north, a black girl. And um, only the problem was I thought it was a subway. And so I had her boarding the subway, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, dining cars, sleeping cars, the whole nine yards, and then coming up in New York City free at last. And so I, you know, I wrote it all down and I, I made little pictures and I, I had a cover and um, I sent it off to a publisher in New York that I'd found in a library book, the address in the library book. And of course, it was rejected because, well, I mean, because just because, but um, shortly after we got to the unit um, in social studies and I found out that the Underground Railroad was not a subway. And I was so embarrassed that I, this is the God's honest truth. I was so embarrassed that I didn't write for 20 years. Um, and, and then when I was teaching high school and I was in my mid twenties, a kid said to me, um, how, was there any, ever anything else you wanted to be? And, and I, you know, I always had this idea that you had to say the truth. If you're a teacher, you can, you know, I don't like adults who don't tell the truth to kids. So I said, well, you know, I, I used to want to be a writer and I, and, and then he said, well, why aren't you? And of course I could only say, you know, because I'm too scared. <laughs> and then I knew I had to try, you know, because if I was asking kids to do what I was asking them to do, which is to, you know, go after their dreams didn't I have to do that too so that was what really got me going um and and by then I I, I you know I, I think I still thought that that I would publish and that I you know would eventually have a you know a career and I would make money from writing and all that and I was lucky I published my first novel pretty quickly um with a New York publisher, it got a starred review in Publishers Weekly. It got a lot of good reviews, but it didn't sell very well. And, you know, pretty soon it was off the shelves. And so that was, you know, my first clue about the way things really were. And, you know, to to shorten the story a bit, um, I wrote, worked on a second novel for a really long time with this this editor. And it, it just didn't, it just didn't work. And, you know, she finally had to let it go. And I understood that. Um, it eventually became... A young adult novel, which was Stranded in Harmony. Um, uh, but but in any case, I went for for 12 years between my first and second novel, which was really difficult. And, you know, I, I came to the point where I thought, I don't know which is worse, whether, you know, when people stop asking you, um, when is your next novel coming out, or when they stop asking you, you know, that you don't, people would say for a long time, well, when's that next one coming out? And yeah, it was embarrassing, because I didn't know. And then people stopped and they, you know, I guess they just assumed I wasn't going to do it again. And so it was hard. And so I was teaching during that time. Um, 
at Broad Ripple High School in Indianapolis, which was my greatest work ever. I loved that job and I loved those kids. And they were what I had, you know, and I told them that process was what mattered and that that, you know, you had to be patient and and that it wasn't about anything other than that. And so, you know, again, it was the teenager kind of thing that that made me keep going because I felt like if I, you know, if I was demanding that of them, I had to demand it of myself. And so then eventually I published my second novel, which was um, Wish You Were Here. And again, I mean, it got great reviews. It, it, it was on the best books for young adults. So was Stranded in Harmony a couple of years later. But no, you know, it sort of didn't go anywhere. And I, I have had the worst luck in publishing. I really have. For some reason, those two books never went into paperback. And they should have based on, you know, just the fact that they were award books and whatever. That For some reason, they didn't go into paperback. It was Hyperion. They were new at that time. And they just, you know, were they couldn't figure out who they wanted to be. So, so you know, so that was really weird. But since then, you know, I've, I've published fairly regularly, maybe three, four years. It takes me a long time. Um, but no, you know, no book has ever hit. Every book I've ever done has gotten, you know, good reviews wherever. And some of the YAs have received various awards, but it just has never panned out, you know, um, for whatever reason. I think a lot of it is, frankly, a crapshoot. You don't, you don't know um, why, why things happen. Um, sometimes they happen because of connections and I don't really have a lot of those. So maybe it's partly that. Um, and you know, maybe it's my karma, you know, maybe it's just, this is what I'm meant to deal with that I have, that this is my test, you know, am I going to keep doing this no matter what? And the answer is yes, that whatever, you know, whatever happens, I'm going to do it because I honestly, I feel worse when I don't write than when I do write. So, you know, whatever happens to what happens afterwards, it'll just, you know, it's just what it is. So I'm now hoping for posthumous fame and wealth. Well, that's uh, that 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 uh, that's yeah. a given. That's a story I tell myself: is the the moment I'm dead, uh, my books will go on to become the greatest, most successful things that have ever been. There will be thousands of movies, and if for some reason that's not true, I won't know about it. It's fine. You won't know. So that's <laughs> well, let's just plan on that. <laughs> I know that obviously you're the only writer that has ever encountered uh, difficulty in publishing. Um, <laughs> but for for those authors who, who are listening who might currently be encountering some sort of difficulty along the way, what kept you going through that? How did you deal with that frustration to, to put that aside and still find joy in, in writing despite all the pain it was also simultaneously bringing you? Well, I, I do love to write. I mean, I feel better when I write. My life is better when I write. Um, I have a tendency towards depression just as a human being. And I get that less when I'm writing. It's, I mean, it's amazing to me if I haven't written for a while and I'm, I'm really down and I just, you know, just even if I start writing in my journal, I feel better. So I, you know, over the years I've learned that about myself. And so I, you know, I make myself do it. I just, I do it. Um, and I think people say, Oh, I can't write if I'm not inspired. Yeah, you can. It'll take you longer because you know, make the words come out a little bit at a time, but you won't be able to tell the difference in the end between the stuff that came when you felt inspired and the stuff that you had to really work over. They'll, they'll be the same. Um, and, and so fine, just do it, you know, and people say, I don't have time, but yeah, you do with the exception possibly of people with brand new babies or something, but, but generally, you know, turn off your television. I, I just always say, choose writing. When you have three things that you could do, um, and writing's one of them, choose writing. And that may mean that you give up 
other things that you enjoy. You might do that instead of watching a movie or going shopping or what, you know, whatever things you like. But but it's a matter of choice. It really is. It, it comes down to that. Um, I, I saw this in a, a some dumb magazine years ago, but it said uh, discipline is remembering what you want. And I think that's a great way of thinking of, of discipline, because usually discipline is something te- people tell us we should do. They say, you need to have more discipline, at, at which point you immediately don't want it because someone told you to have it. But if you if you think discipline is remembering what you want, it's a whole other way of, you know, it's a whole other way of thinking about it. Um, so so there you go. And, you know, the other thing with the, the novels, too, is that you know, this is kind of the good news and the bad news, but they take a long time. So, you you know, it's not like you're trying, you know, it's not like you're facing the publication question every day, you know, maybe like a short story writer does or something like that. It's, it's, it's periodic misery <laughs> as opposed to daily misery. So it's, I guess that's good. <laughs> Even on the days when you feel ridiculously inspired and like, this is the greatest writing day ever. And you, you know, you write some tremendous word count. You're still going to have to revise that. You've still you created have, work for yeah, future you. Yeah. And that's why the stuff that's hard and the stuff that's easy ends up sounding the same because you have to revise it all. And when you revise, you revise with the same process. So it all comes out, you know, kind of so that it's seamless. Um, and it's, you know, it's one of the reasons why revision is so important. You want that seamlessness in your in your work. Something I try and hammer on maybe uh, to, uh, to too, too hard a degree. I'm sure esteemed audience, faithful esteemed audience uh, members have heard me say this uh, <laughs> before. Uh, but something I open my fiction workshops with is uh, if you come here and you paid money to hear me talk about writing, that's going to happen. Uh, but during the day, if at some point I can convince you to stop writing, if you can see yourself being happier doing something else with your time, then go do that thing. Be free. I consider that to be I a agree. worthy use of your time and money. You don't have to worry about this writing thing anymore. If you're not going to stop, then do it right. Get to it. I think you're absolutely right. You know, when I was teaching, sometimes parents would say, oh, you know, I hope you'll encourage my son or daughter to to be a writer. They're so talented. And I would think sometimes they were not as talented as their parents thought. Sometimes they were. But but in any <laughs> case, you know, what I what I always said to them was, if, you know, if your son or daughter really wants to be a writer and does the work to be a writer, I will be with them forever. Um, but they might not want that. And, and you need to think about that too. And I would, I would say, sort of say the same thing you say to, to people, to the, the kids that I taught, if you don't really want to do it, there are lots of other things that you can do that probably will, will bring you, well, not necessarily more satisfaction, but will be more easy to be satisfying. Like, you know, there's no ladder in this in, 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 in other kinds of careers, you start at a certain place and depending on how hard you work and how smart you are, and sometimes who, you know, but not always, you know, you can predict that you will get to a certain level that you can rise. And it's all about rising corporate world, world, legal world, whatever. Um, but in the world of the arts, it's not like that, that there is no ladder. And nobody knows who's who's going to get to the top. I mean, it could be James Patterson, one of the worst writers in, in ever in the world. Um, and who knows Ooh, why? Bold words. Bold words. I'm from sorry, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, it's absolutely true. He is not a good writer. His stuff does not hang together. Yet he is, you know, he's as rich as God. So who knows? You know, and, and you can't get angry about that. You just have to accept it. You just you cannot dwell on it if, if you do it'll make you crazy and depressed and and that doesn't help <laughs> 
so you write for yourself you know you're not I don't write for an audience I write for myself um I don't know how to write for an audience I write the things that seem possible to me and are in some way um related to something that troubles me in my personal life or the world in, in general, mostly my personal life. And then, you know, I find a way to look at it sideways through um, a story, which is generally not um, the not a story about exactly what I'm troubled with, but, you know, somehow it, it all comes into play. Um, so that's, that's me. And you have to decide what kind of writer you want to be. Um, if you, you know, want to make a living at writing, there are ways that you that you can do it. Um, one of my daughters is is a terrific writer, and she makes a living as a freelance writer, nonfiction stuff. And you know, she really loves it. She writes good books, and um, she's not beating her head on the wall like I am. But um, that's not the kind of book I want to write, or that I even feel like I can write. You know, um, I write what I can, <laughs> and it seems like the only thing that I can do. I am a James Patterson apologist. We won't go into that uh, today, uh, but uh, I, I think he absolutely serves a vital function. Oh, uh, I've got a couple of that. books of his that I'll pick a bone with, but that's that's another discussion. Yeah. <laughs> no, you know, people can can do what they want, but you know, most people who are writers and know about writing will look at his books and they will, if you talk about them in terms of craft, that's a different thing. But if you enjoy them cool. I think there should be every kind of book in the world. And you know, they're great escape fiction for some people. People like it. But for me as a writer, if I if I open a book up a book like that, and not only his, it's like, you know, it's like fingernails on a, a chalkboard. Ah! Because it, it just, you know, it's not doing what I think it ought to do. So we'll just leave him behind. Fair enough. <laughs> My wife has this uh, great term that I've taken to using. It's a literary Twinkie. And for me, that's most James Patterson novels. Exactly. Uh, is- yeah. Goodbye, brain. I won't need you for I this. Let's have some definitely, fun. Definitely uh, <laughs> a place for those books. <laughs> uh, if I'm looking for passages that I'm gonna highlight, say this. This is the finest sentence that I've ever read. I'm probably not gonna find it there. Probably not. There. <laughs> but I will make you find yeah. a good time. That was author Barbara Shoup from episode 61. Next up is author Kayla Knoll from episode 62. But let's talk a little bit uh, more about Coup. Because uh, I had read that you had first had this idea uh, a little over a decade ago. Mm-hmm. How, what, if you don't mind, uh, go ahead and share that story with us. Sure. I was walking down a street in Jersey City, which is where I was living at the time and where I spent my teenage years and also lived during my early 20s. And at that time, the city was in a, Jersey City was in a really great state of flux with a lot of um, buildings coming down and new construction going up. There had been a lot of rezoning of these industrial areas that were right up against the Hudson River. The other side of the river is Manhattan, lower Manhattan. Um, And I spent a lot of time walking around in these areas that were changing quickly, and I saw this old factory with empty windows, and I was looking up, and this gigantic flock of pigeons took off from the top, and um, I just had this sudden image of a girl or a child actually originally for about a day who was a boy and then I changed the I changed it over to a girl I just had this image of a child up there with the pigeons and I was wondering what it would be like for them to live with a flock of pigeons Um, and I went home and I started drafting and I wrote the first chapter 
And, and then it took a very long time to finish the book. And then I did many other drafts before I got my agent. And it How went. Long were we, uh, talking from idea to, to rough draft then? Idea to rough draft was actually close to five years because I was about 19 when I got the idea and I was in school. And I found it really hard to finish a first draft. I was working on other things. I also thought at the time, oh, maybe I want to write literary fiction. You know, I was reading. It was, I think when you're in your late teens and early 20s, there's a lot of, a lot of time where you're figuring out your identity. And sometimes you get ideas that you should be doing this or should be doing that. And for me, I think... Although I had wanted to write children's books since I was a child, and that was always the wavering, that was always like a kind of unwavering core in me. There were years where I questioned that. And so I would put Ku down to try to work on short stories. Um, I was really lucky while I was at NYU, I was able to take uh, some really excellent creative writing classes, including um, I took uh, a really formative one with the editor and writer Ed Park. Um, and then I later on, I took a class with Zadie Smith, who is extraordinary. And both of those experiences led me to think, ah, maybe I should be writing for adults, or maybe I should be writing essays, like literary essays, and maybe I should focus on trying to do that. And I would how first you publish coup? That could never happen, right? <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. It was also I. I was um, when I was in college, I. Uh, I had to work like I lived at home, but I also had to work. So I didn't have a lot of time and I always had a job. So I always was either, I was a nanny. I worked at a vintage clothing store. I worked in a preschool as their art teacher for a long time. Um, and I usually had two jobs and I was also going to school and I was commuting to and from school. So I was on the path train all the time. And those years I was like, I was just literally running all over New York <laughs> and Jersey City, going from class to my jobs to try to do my reading and my homework. And then I was also trying to write. And I I remember feeling a lot of pressure to use my time in a very economical way. And I think that pressure slowed me down in terms of, of uh, finishing coup and figuring out how I wanted to um, to be a writer. I mean, probably spent too long trying to figure that out. But um, ultimately, I did finish Coup, and then I did, I think I did two more drafts of it before I even sent it out to agents. And I started sending it out to agents maybe around 2013 for the first time. Um, and I got my agent through your website, um, Katie Grimm, because I read uh, an interview you did with her, and I really liked what she said. And so I queried her, and she wrote back, and she said, I'm really interested. And we talked back and forth a few more times. I revised, and I resubmitted to her, I think, before she actually signed me. And then I did uh, more revisions with her before we actually went on sub. And again, I, it, um, I was just it took me a while because I had a lot of other things in life come up. Like I had um, a really difficult pregnancy with my daughter and we moved a few times and I was working full time. So um, yeah, Ku had a long journey. I also wrote um, big chunks of two other novels at the same time 
over the years that I was working on Coup, both of which I've put in a drawer. So I was... Was there a or was there a literary one in there? There was a literary one in there that I am very happy. I just, I think I got a lot out of trying to make it work, but ultimately it's not a genre that I enjoy spending a lot of time in, including as a reader. I don't really read literary fiction anymore for adults now that I'm uh, not in college. I do sometimes, but not like I read middle grade and I read a lot of adult nonfiction. Um, and I, I still try to read classics and books that older books, um, rather than literary fiction that's being published right now. I feel like I can't, I'm just not as interested in that as a genre at the moment. Um, but, uh, and the other book that I, that I wrote probably like 200 pages of, but had a lot of issues with plot was a, another middle grade book. But both of those were kind of like training exercises. And Coup never felt like a training exercise. I always knew that I would finish it, and I always had a gut feeling that it would be published. You were right. Trust your gut. Yeah, I was, it felt it, it's like a good lesson in, in figuring out which project feels like that, because I always had that feeling with Coup from the beginning, whereas I didn't have it with these other projects that ultimately didn't, didn't work out. Uh, and quick point of clarification. Sure. Although middlegradeninja.com is undoubtedly the finest resource available to writers today and everyone listening should go and, and, and check it out yes. uh, Middle Grade Ninja didn't find you an agent your hard work, your dedication and your Super. excellent manuscript found you an agent That's, But I found her through I remember I read her interview on your site and I felt like that is like I just had this feeling oh yeah, she, I could connect with this person and when I queried her I really did she's immensely helpful. I mean, Katie's editorial vision and ideas for Coup going back to when she first saw it helped it become published. I, she gave it so much of her time and her expertise before we ever went on submission. And she never made me feel rushed, which was extraordinary too. Do you remember how many times you went back and forth with, uh, with Miss Grimm? Oh my gosh. I never, I don't, I didn't keep track a lot, a lot. And I, rewrote the ending a few times with Katie. And what was it? Uh, and, and Katie Graham, if you're listening, uh, we'll find you another author almost as good as Kayla Knoll. <laughs> um, come on the show. I would love to talk with you. That would be a wonderful conversation. Yes. Um, what was it uh, about uh, Katie Graham as you were evaluating agents that made you feel that, yes, this is the person you should be pursuing. This is someone you could trust uh, with your baby before you had your baby. She just... Her, I feel like she could be an editor herself, which a look, which a lot of agents probably could also be editors. But she really has that editorial um, sensibility and patience, and I just felt like I was, uh, I was in good hands. And Virginia is also an extraordinary editor, and she, it was like this perfect pairing where Katie helped me really get it into, uh, get it into shape, and then. Virginia also finessed it and drew out more. But Katie, I think more so than many agents, she really um, had the patience to work through drafts until we got it as close to perfection as we could. And I never felt pressured to, um, to go on submission before it was really felt right. You remember ballpark, how long you went back and forth from the time she signed you to submission? 
it was about two years, if I'm remembering oh, wow. correctly. And that was also because in the middle, I had trouble, um, like I had a really, with my daughter, I had a lot of pregnancy complications. So I couldn't really write during a chunk of that time. I mean, I tried, but I was having a lot of trouble focusing. So we took a break and then that, and then the following year, I ended up deciding to change the ending somewhat significantly. Not in, not the very ending, but the, there were some characters that I cut and that all took time. And um, happily, I'm working on my second book now, and I finished that draft already, so I'm spitting up. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have that same gut feeling that, yes, this is absolutely the next yeah, one? Yeah, def- I think so. That was author Kayla Knoll from episode 62. Next up is author Sayantana Dasgupta from episode 63. I want to talk to you more about uh, Kamala and your series. Um, but I did want to ask about your um, early life. It's usually a good spot to start because you grew up, I believe, in Ohio, but then you were spending summers in Calcutta. Uh, so how did um, those, I assume, uh, relatively disparate settings, um, how did that uh, shape you as a young person? And what do you feel that's brought to your writing? Yeah, so I am a daughter of Indian immigrants. My parents immigrated from Kolkata, India to first Cincinnati, Ohio, and then uh, Columbus, where I was born. Um, And I grew up till eighth grade in Columbus, Ohio, or outside Columbus, Ohio, Worthington, to be exact. Um, But I would spend my long summer vacations, uh, most of them in India at my grandparents' house. And it was a really, you know, different existence, as you can imagine. Um, I then subsequently spent my high school years in New Jersey, which is why the Kieran Mala series begins in Parsippany, New Jersey. That um, was one of my burning questions, is how yeah, did you get to Jersey out of yeah, that? Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. You know, we moved when I was in eighth grade from Ohio to New Jersey, and um, it seemed the perfect place to begin my intergalactic you know, adventure tale it was New Jersey. Why not? Like what better place to launch off right into the multiverse? Um, but I did grow up in Ohio and um, it was a time when there weren't a lot of kids who were also immigrants or kids of color growing up in the community where I was growing up. And that in conjunction with the fact that there weren't a lot of kids of color or certainly Indian kids represented in the books that I was reading or the films and TV shows that I was watching. It really was a very specific kind of growing up of not seeing myself kind of reflected out there um, or certainly not reflected positively in culture. Like I don't think you can count the Indiana Jones, the second film, the way that they represented South Asians is positive, right? No, um, I don't think so. Right, yeah. And part of, no offense to Harrison Ford. Positive representation of alligators, though. They were very Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, but for years, right, I got asked terrible questions about monkey brains. And, you know, it was fodder for just a lot of um, bullying and harassment. And it wasn't the kind of time where I was able to see myself, oh, gosh, portrayed like other kids were, like you know, as a hero of books. And if you never see yourself portrayed as a hero, I think there's a part of you, or certainly there was a part of me that started to think, gosh, well, there's something wrong with me. Like, I don't deserve to be a hero. I don't deserve to be a protagonist, even maybe of my own life. And I think had I not gone on those regular vacations to India and seen people who looked like me and sounded like me and got to hear stories from my grandmother where brown kids like me were out there kind of 
having adventures, saving the world, um, doing all these wonderful things that I loved reading in other books, right, about other children, um, I might have continued in that idea that, gosh, maybe I don't, you know, somebody like me can't be the hero of a story. But it was in those Bengali folktales that I would hear over the summers. Um, there were these fantastic stories about like flying, you know, flying horses and princes and princesses and snake kings and these um, drooly uh, rhyming monsters who said things like, you know, dirty socks and stinky feet. I smell royal human meat. And uh, which seems like highly inefficient if you're chasing somebody, right? Like stop with the rhyme. You don't have to come up with verse, just chase somebody. But I really feel like cross-culturally monsters do this, right? Fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an Englishman. Highly inefficient. And yet Bengali rock push <laughs> do it too, right? Whatever, to each his own. Um, but anyway, there were these fantastic fun stories. And um, I really did find a sense of self in those stories, as well as a sense of kind of confidence and self when I would go on these summer vacations to India. And so it wasn't until many years later when I was a mother myself that I thought to myself, well, you know, my own children, so many years later, are complaining that at least in the genre that they loved when they were kind of middle grade readers, they loved fantasy only. Like if there wasn't a flying broomstick or a spell, like they weren't having it. Um, so in their genre, they still so many years later didn't see kids who looked like them. So it was only those many years later when I had kids of my own that I thought, well, I don't want my children to grow up with the same feeling that I had in my stomach for so many years, thinking that this was a problem with me and not racism, not something that was actually outside of myself. It had nothing to do with me. Um, and I just, I didn't want my children to grow up with that. And so I thought, well, if I can put one more mirror in the world where kids like my own kids um, can see themselves positively reflected or my, you know, the friends of my kids can see um, different kinds of heroes right out there, then that's what I was going to do. And that's why I reached back to my my uh, grandma's Bengali folktales to write the series. So, well, let me just jump straight to straight to this. If you, Kieran Molly and the Kingdom Beyond had existed yeah. when you were young, uh, what do you think it would have done for you? And what are you hoping and what maybe are you seeing it do now that it's out in the world uh, presently? I mean, I really think that, you know, I'm, I'm, when I say the word mirrors, I'm going to um, Professor Emerita from Ohio State University, Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, amazing metaphor about um, mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors, right? That classic essay that she wrote. Um, and I think that, you know, lack of mirrors, which is what I was just talking about when I was growing up, not seeing myself reflected positively in culture, I think it's it's a kind of that narrative erasure it's a it's a violence it's a kind of psychic violence it does damage to your psyche and your soul um and so i if i had had that novel when i was 12 and it is it's the novel that i wanted when i was 12 um then i wouldn't have had to always be playing that um, substitution game, like never seeing myself and then like trying to substitute myself in to these other stories that I loved. Cause I was a big reader, right? I, I loved, you know, Wrinkle in Time. I loved Little Women. I loved absurd tales. Like, you know, I loved Alice in Wonderland. Um, and I think all of those tales have some influence in my, in my series. Um, 
I think that, you know, had I seen that sort of reflection when I was growing up, maybe I wouldn't have had to struggle for so many years with that sense of kind of self-doubt or those kind of damages to my self-worth. Um, you know, Juno Diaz, a couple of years ago, talking to some Rutgers students said, um, you know, there's this idea that vampires aren't seen in mirrors. And he said something like, you know, I don't think it's actually that monsters aren't seen in mirrors. It's that if you want to make somebody into a monster, you deny them at a cultural level, any reflection of themselves. And he said, you know, I started writing with this thought that before I die, let me make a couple of mirrors so that kids like me can see themselves reflected positively. And to me too, I think it's, it's this idea of like, let me just make one mirror. Let me contribute my little part to making kids like me reflected positively. Now, the thing that's wonderful and that I wasn't expecting or I didn't think through was that these books have been not just a mirror for kids who say, hey, I'm an immigrant or, hey, wow, this is the first time I'm seeing a heroine who's brown like me. Um, it's the way that the window function has been working. Um, so I'm traveling all around the country with Kieran Mala and the Kingdom Beyond. I went on book tour with The Serpent's Secret. I went on book tour with Game of Stars. I'm going on book tour with um, The Chaos Curse. I do lots of school visits as well. Um, the thing I didn't expect was not just the immigrant kids or the brown kids or the kids whose parents are from somewhere else coming up to me and saying, I saw myself or I recognize this word or I know that food. Um, it's the maybe like blonde little boys who are running up to me and saying, I love this series. And maybe they're loving it for a variety of other reasons, right? Maybe they're saying to me, I love this series. It's so funny and it's adventurous and there's demon snot. But in the process, they're also learning about maybe a different kind of a heroine or one of them, you know, I'll get fantastic, like heartwarming fan mail, like, you know, anyone who's listening, who's a young person, um, authors like just fall to pieces over your mail. Like, so please don't think that we're not reading them like we're reading them. And I just delight in everything that I get sent from young readers. Um, you know, I might get sent something like, gosh, you know, I love the demon snot and I love the jokes. And and then my parents, you know, took me out to an Indian restaurant and we looked for Rashogola, which are these desserts that are described in the book. So you know, Rob, I think what's happening is you may write a book for one reason, but it may hit readers for an entirely other reason. And that's, I think, the beauty of being a writer and a reader is that you put out something that's as true to yourself and as specific as you can into the world, but then readers are going to receive it in whole other surprising and delightful ways. And that's been my experience. That must be enormously gratifying to get to go out in the world and see that that thing you most wanted to do, and you've done it. There it oh, is. It's amazing. Back. It's coming. Right? Coming isn't it, it's amazing. Isn't it amazing? That was author Sayantani Dasgupta from episode 63. Next up is author Avi from episode 64. So um, I'm terrible about summarizing other people's books and other people's biographies, especially with a biography like yours, which I would just mangle. I, I, you're the author of, I, I'd read at one point 70 books and at one point 80 books. How many books have you written? Uh, more than 80. So, and uh, the new book, Gold Rush Girl, I think is number 83. And that'll be published in March. And that will be followed by a new poppy book in that poppy series that comes out in uh, 
May. So we're busy. And you, uh, you have won not just a Newberry, but you've been honored a total of three times now, or is it more than that? Uh, I've got a couple of Newberry honors. I've got the Newberry. I've got a couple of Hornbook Awards and uh, other stuff that people throw in my direction, and I'm always happy to receive. It's always good. It's uh, awards are gifts that you didn't know that were coming, so they're fun to get. So. You know, the door, somebody raps on the door and says, here, congratulations. I could live with that. So <laughs> You are open to further awards should anyone wants to bestow them? I mean, you know, I'm not going to, I won't say no, okay? Uh, and that just brings me right away to a question I'm dying to ask you. When you get uh, to a point where you've written 83 books and you won a, a good number of awards, hoping to, to maybe get some more in there, but you've had a heck of a career. Nobody can say that Avi wasn't objectively a writer, a great writer uh, that, uh, that had a, a heck of a career. What keeps you writing at this point and what, what joy do you still bring from it after having so much joy? Well, uh... I've been writing for, I hate to tell you, 60 years. Uh, it's what I do. Uh, it's part of my breathing. Uh, I get up and I work and I write. Uh, it seems to me inconceivable that I don't write. Uh, sometimes I want to slow down, but that hasn't quite happened yet. Um, but you know, I don't mean to be mundane about it, but it's my work. I get up every day and uh, I sit down in front of the computer. Where am I? What do I have to accomplish today? And I try to do it. Uh, and not beside the point, uh, it's the way I make a living. <laughs> it's the way I support myself and support my family. And uh, one does have to pay the mortgage, right? And uh, that's the way it works. And so I'm a professional writer. And like, like the construction worker or the teacher or whatever, I go to work every day. So I try not to romanticize it. Uh, the fact that I enjoy it most days, not every day, uh, is what I do. That's how it works. So what the motivation is, I'm not so sure I require motivation. Uh, I have, for example promised to write three more books, that is to say there are three more contracts, if you will. And so there are deadlines. And uh, once you agree to do it, and uh, they even pay you something, uh, and then I spend it, I better do the book, right? <laughs> That's the way it works. Not very well, that makes a lot of sense. And, and yet there's this part of this, this nagging in my brain. That, so I read uh, a, a lot of books by a lot of authors. And I've read uh, books by authors who've already written uh, quite a few books. Um, and there's a, a I, I, I never want to disparage any author, but there can be a quality to it that this is just the job that I got up to do. And in reading Gold Rush Girl, um, available in March, uh, this is not this is not a product like if you were working construction where you've just built a house. There's there's passion in this. Um, there, there's an author who still wants to say something. So there has to be more than just it's doing the job. Well, I love telling stories and. Uh... I love telling stories by writing them. I don't sing them. I don't perform them on a stage. Um, 
all of which is a good way to tell a story, but that's not my way. And what happens, I think, for me, when I get caught up in a story, uh, I get caught up as well with the characters. And then I get, I'm telling myself the story and I want to know what happens, so to speak. And I enjoy it. And I get involved in the characters. In a book like Gold Rush Girl, uh, my protagonist, the girl, Tori, um, I care about her. And I want to know what happens and how she feels and how she reacts to this particular rather odd situation when she goes to this bizarre place called California. And what happens to her? And I want to know when I get involved. Uh, I can't explain it all in the sense of uh, I'm very much an intuitive writer and I just get caught up in my characters just as the way I hope you do. And I, I do believe that if the writer is not fully engaged with the characters, uh, the reader won't be. And so it's my job to um, care about my people, so to speak. Um, and I, I'll give you an example of that. Um, years ago, when I was writing uh, True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, uh, the book had essentially been done. But my editor, Dick Jackson, suddenly called me up and said, uh, we skipped a scene. We, we need to go back and look at this. When Charlotte leaves the boat, the way it's written now, she just leaves. She surely needs to say goodbye to the characters, right? And I agreed, absolutely, she needed to do that. And it's maybe, so I went back and uh, got to that point in the book and started to write when she goes around and says goodbye to her characters. And as she's saying goodbye, Lord help me, the tears are coming to my eyes because I'm saying goodbye to Charlotte too. And uh, once you write the book, you can think about your characters, but you're not supposed to. I mean, that that lunacy lies that way. If you, <laughs> you know, you've created character, they stay on the page. They're not supposed to be in your house after they, after you write the end. But there I was uh, feeling real emotion about saying goodbye to Charlotte. And if I don't feel that emotion when I finish a book, literally write the last sentence, then I don't think I've done the job. So there's a, an emotional attachment that gets a part of the writing process. Absolutely. And so are you an author that when you're, uh, I, I make fun of myself all the time because I, I think it's uh, me. Uh, well, I don't know what the word is for it. And let's put my stuff aside. When you sit down, uh, are you laughing with the characters as well as crying? And does that happen to you frequently with every book? I think so. I don't pay attention to it myself in that sense, but I sometimes catch myself making gestures that my characters are making, that um, I'm sensing the uh, emotion, I'm sensing the moment. I think so. If you're not thoroughly engaged, you're not writing as well as you might. I, I want to know. Now, you know, I'm working on a book now, and uh, I've been working on it about, about four or five months, but only now am I really beginning to become engaged with my central character? It takes a while, you know, here I've just met you, 
uh, I don't know you. I don't have any particular emotions about you. But, you know, let's meet for coffee. Let's do something together. Let's go to a movie, well, you know, et cetera. And then I'm going to start caring about you in one sense or another. And that's the same for my characters. It takes a while for me to get to know them and care for them. That was author Avi from episode 64. Next up is author Ana Mariano from episode 65. Uh, my final question is uh, always my catch-all for all of the things we could have talked about. And uh, we just got so busy uh, critiquing Coco and <laughs> talking about other things. Which I love. It's a great movie. <laughs> if I hadn't wasted your time with Flying Saucer Talk, God knows what we could have talked about. Uh, <laughs> So my final question is always, if you could go back to yourself at the start of your writing career, wherever you'd like to go back and, and visit a younger version of yourself that uh, authors listening, authors and soon-to-be authors listening now uh, could hear that might make might have made your writing journey easier uh, and will hopefully make their writing journey easier, what would you go back and, and, and tell yourself? I have a hard time. Like, I, I know you're the easiest question because it's just like, generally anything you want to talk about but I actually have a really hard time with this question because I just feel like like so many people have really like helped me out and like opened so many doors for me and you know like held my hand through becoming a writer that like man I would just go back and be like do exactly what you're doing <laughs> and just continue accepting like all the help and support that people are giving you and like don't question it. Um, but really, I think like that is the lesson that I learned over the course of from, from before publishing to after publishing or from, you know, being, you know, more of a baby writer to being less, slightly, slightly less of a baby writer. I'm still a baby writer. Um, it's just like how collaborative the process is and how people can help you and how much you people um, like the communities of writers that I'm involved with now or that I, you know, have been involved with, like my debut author group, we still hang out, but like maybe as much internet life hang out. Um, they just like have been so important and so helpful. And it's not that I didn't know when I started out, but maybe I, it seemed more scary because I didn't realize how much of a community I would have and how much people would be willing to like give me advice and you know open doors and shout out the books and like tell me when I'm doing things wrong super important also to have those friends who will be like hmm, stop <laughs> no, we all need those friends do that. <laughs> yeah um so yeah I think if I was going to go back and tell my writer self something or my yeah my younger writer self something I would probably say like Keep your eyes and ears open. Don't stand by the cheese. Don't stand by the cheese. That's it. I mean, you know, it worked out, but yeah, like go and talk to the other writers. Go and find the people who are doing the same thing. Yeah. I was just thinking that baked into this question is if, if you're going back in time, why <laughs> are you giving yourself writing advice? For God's sake, like give Mitch McConnell a hug as a baby. Like it's going to be okay, Mitch. We love you. Don't, you don't want to be evil. <laughs> Steal oh, Andrew's game for worse than Scott Card and wake up the next one. Where was that book I, I, I found? <laughs> nope, we're publishing it in our name. <laughs> we're fixing this. <laughs> That was author Anna Mariano from episode 65. 
Next up is author Ann Bastard from episode 66. Uh, another question I wanted to ask you about is because you're taking this uh, from uh, originally a, a paperback and, and, and expanding out to a middle grade, there is, it's a historical novel, there is, has to be a lot of research that went into this. Um, so how much time were you spending researching things like the time period, the location, the mercy train? I know a, a PTSD had to come in at some point, you had to do mm-hmm. research for that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I did do some research initially when I first discovered um, about the train. Um, and then I just jumped into, um, you know, the story. And then when I knew I wanted to um, try it as a novel, I went back and did a little more research. Um, and then I did it on kind of an as-need basis until we had that seven year gap. (laughs) Um, And yes, I had notes still, but I thought, you know what, I'm starting fresh. I I wanna research all over again. So I I traced um, everything I'd done um, before. Um, What I I found um, at the University of Texas at Austin campus Um, is the LBJ Library and Museum. And what I didn't realize when I first started um, writing this book or picture book um, is that in that library are the Drew Pearson papers. And Drew Pearson was a um, radio commentator and columnist who was the American link for the Mercy train. And he and um, President Johnson uh, were friends, so he donated a significant number of his papers to the library. So at that library, I was able to read train schedules, um, telegrams, memos, newspaper articles, and more about um, the train. And it was just, it was just, a, it is a phenomenal um, resource, but that wasn't my only one. I went to other libraries and um, I even went to uh, the Austin Steam Train Association, which is now located in Cedar Park, <laughs> which is a town just outside of Austin. And they have um, a refurbished Texas Eagle boxcar there which um, the character Glory B spends about a minute on. Um, but I went there so I could get the interior of the boxcar, you know, just right. I love research. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> it's so much fun. Um, there's so many like wonderful discoveries. You're, you're all about the glory of knowledge. This is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, here's the, 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 the devil's advocate question, because I know the answer, but I, I still like to ask the question. Uh, and that is, when you're doing that, when you're getting the interior of the train exact, uh, when you, you're looking through the, the train schedules, the only way that I, the reader, am going to know that that train schedule is not correct uh, is if I go and I check the train schedules. Ha ha ha, Miss Bastard, you, I, I've got you here. <laughs> so is, is it? Uh, is it that much of a concern to have done that, or is it just the fact that you know the time the time schedule wasn't correct? Um, 
Well, I t actually, I tried to be as correct as I possibly could be <laughs> with the train schedule, um, just because I, I'm all about details um, in, in life and in, um, in writing. So um, I, I did the best job that I could. I'm not saying I got everything right or that it's perfect, but I did the best job I could in order to find um, you know, the details I needed to make the story as real as, as possible. Um, there is no Gladiola, Texas, <laughs> um, but um, I based it on um, the main street anyway, on a small town um, outside of Austin called Smithville. And in my mind, Gladiola is somewhere around Round Rock or Taylor, which is north northeast of austin so i did i have to i feel like i have to know these things and um for my own sanity and benefit and hopefully that seeps in um to the stories so that readers feel like oh this could have actually happened that was author Anne bastard from episode 66 next up is author rob harrell from episode 67 yeah, I teased it. Let's uh, make sure that I, I, I follow up with you talking a little bit more about Rumble, this uh, movie coming out starring, my God, Lego Batman is going to star in the movie made of your book. That's got to be the most exciting thing it's, uh, that could ever happen to a person, right? Yeah, it's incredibly exciting. Um, uh, I will say this. Anybody who has read Monster on the Hill, I don't want them to go in and think that they're going to see a um, see my book spring to life on the screen because it has changed dramatically. It's um, almost not recognizable from my book at this point. Um, and that's just the process has been going on, going on for about six, maybe eight years at this point. And, um, you know, it just slowly kept getting further and further away from the material. There's still, the heart of the story is still the same. Um, you know, you still have giant monsters. Each town has their own monster, but it's now turned into much more of a uh, monster wrestling movie. Uh, it's still going to be a lot of fun. I've seen what they've done. And I've seen, I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen the animatics. I've seen the character design. Um, how much, uh, how involved have you been? How much input do you get to have on a, on a project like that? Um, especially being a first time author, you know, getting it, uh, I've had uh, very little, I, I would say. Um, I've been out there a few times uh out to LA to um meet with you know I met with a set of producers and then a year later they weren't on the project anymore and then I went out and met with a director and then he wasn't on the you know and then I met with another director and then he wasn't on it again and so are they just paying for these nice trips to LA every time yeah yeah I mean yeah, and they they're quick trips, and, and I go out. And it, it's it, listen, it's been really exciting. It's fun to go out there, and and uh, you know they tell you what their vision is for for how the movie is going to turn out. And I did you know start to see the scripts, and I saw that they were changing a lot of things. Um, and, and unfortunately, as a, especially as a first time author, you don't have a lot of say. Um, you know, it's not like, and my book is not you know where the wild things are. They're not going to come in and say, well, we can't mess with this. Although I guess they did when they made that movie. Um, yeah, messed it all up. There's there's nothing <laughs> sacred in Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so 
I'm really excited about the movie still. I just don't want anybody to go in picture, you know, the, the character designs have changed. The story has changed. Um, it, but uh, it's still been exciting. And it's, yeah, so, and, you know, Will Arnett is the voice. And uh, I'm a huge Arrested Development fan. So for that reason, I, I'm thrilled. Um, Terry Crews is, is doing the voice of Tentacular. Uh, oh, that's so, fun. Yeah, all this has been, and, you know, and then and then you got people in there like Tony Danza is playing a, an older grizzled monster trainer and and uh the movie's gonna be fun i i guarantee you the movie will be fun um it's just it's just not that close to my book at this point but uh you know i i i, I think i fought against the system for a while and then uh and then eventually i just decided to relax and enjoy the ride and and um you know i'm not alone you know i know stephen king has hated almost every adaptation of his stuff and and um what yeah. reason <laughs> a lot of but that, yeah right but right reason, and, and you know it just it's an old story i'm not telling a new story hollywood you know took it changed i remember somebody told me at the beginning this is how involved you'll be you take your book to the you know to the border of um california and throw your book at la and that's as close as you'll get to controlling what they do with it. Um, <laughs> and, and again, I'm not even, I, 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 it's, it's Paramount Real Effects and they do amazing animation and their job is to make a movie that's going to sell well, put people in seats, uh, thrill people. You know, my story was a fairly quiet kind of uh, character piece and that's not really what young kids are looking for when they go to see an animated movie. So I think... I think what they've done is made a movie, um, the best movie they could come up with to get people in seats and, and that sort of thing. So I, I understand what's happened. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I'm backtracking or something, but I, I really am excited about the movie. Well, I, in some ways, I think that almost is 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 better when the movie is a little bit different. Like I know you mentioned Stephen King, uh, who that's what what always cements for me the fact that there's nobody sacred in Hollywood. Like, what screenwriter goes, ah, you know who's smarter than the world's best-selling novelist? This guy. Let me show you how this plot should have been. Oh, my God. Um, but uh, you look at something like The Shining, um, is a favorite of mine. That is wonderful as a movie and wonderful as a book, and they are two different experiences. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I would hope for that for, for Rumble. I hope that they make a, 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 a monster-fighting video game so you can play the video game based on the movie of your book that would be tremendous and you have all that and you you walk into a room for the rest of your life once uh author events are back up and running and everyone comes you know rushing up to you with their their rumble action figure (laughs) and you you get that credit but then when they go and they sit down and they read your graphic novel they're going to have a different uh a different experience um that will also be you know they can eat their cake and eat uh, have their cake and eat it too kind of yeah no i i think that's i Ideally, that's what will happen. I think they'll um, like the movie and like the book. Uh, so, um, just the people I worry about are the people who already like the movie and are expect or already like the book and are expecting that when they walk in. But you know, that's a fairly small number of people compared to the amount of people who are going to go see a movie um, uh, when it comes out. So, um, well, even when a movie is a hundred percent reverent and faithful to a book, and I'm thinking of maybe like the by the time they got to about the second Harry Potter, the third Harry Potter, that was like 
almost word for word exactly translated what that yeah, book was. And it still wasn't as good as the book. It's, it's very good. But yeah. the book is still its own superior experience. Yeah. No, it had the magic was in the writing, I think. And, and uh, you just couldn't translate that. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. I, 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 I'm excited about the movie, but it's been a, a long, unusual experience. So uh, we'll see. I can't wait to see it when it comes out. And I think I think they're saying um, January of 2021. Although who knows with you know the COVID stuff going on, I don't know. You know they're not in animating it right now, so that may set it back a little ways. Um, this may set a lot a lot of things back a ways. So that was author Rob Harrell from episode 67. Next up is author Joy McCullough from episode 68. One more question, and then we'll get to a field guide to getting lost, because I really do want to talk about this book. And then I'm going to circle back and probably ask you uh, some, some more things about uh, about your career thus far, because you, you've done a little bit of everything. There's there's no end to the questions I have for you. Um, but since you mentioned uh, dealing with anxiety, taking medication, um, something that I know is not true, but I'm going to play devil's advocate and ask the question anyway, because I know it's a common um, misnomer among authors, this, this thought that my depression, my anxiety, my fill in the blank is part of what makes me this great twisted artist. Mm. Uh, and where would we be if someone had given Nietzsche antidepressants back in the day? Um, did you find or notice a difference in your writing when you address that issue? Yeah, I think that's such a damaging attitude. Um, I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to think about the timeline to when I did that. I think I had, I think I got mental health help right around the time that my debut deal book sold. Um, you know, and at that time, and I was working on this book that was with very, very heavy issues. And, um, I think that I was having increased anxiety because I was so immersed in, um, a lot of really difficult stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't remember exactly timeline wise if that was when I sought help, but I think it was around there. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't say that it, I don't think that it affected, like took away my creativity or anything to be on medication. It made me able to breathe you know which is which is necessary for me to be able to create um I was I was I mean I think it improved my writing really because I was writing before um but I was under so much um weight and the medication which I'm not saying is right for everyone but it was right for me and it lifted some of that weight off I could breathe it made it it made it easier to create so for me yeah it's it's a necessary thing. It's like if I had a heart condition, it's the same thing. Thank you so much for sharing that because I know there's somebody listening uh, right now who's, who's having that that same thought that I don't know if I want to give this up. Let them know. It gets, it gets better. Get yeah. your house in order. Your writing does not benefit from your suffering unnecessarily. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, if you want to write, if you're like, oh, but I'm, I'm writing YA and I want to write this tortured character – you'll still have access to those emotions, right? I know I still know what panic attacks feel like, even though I don't have them as frequently, right? It's not going to erase everything you've ever experienced. Um, and it doesn't mean you won't ever have anxiety or panic attacks anymore. So even if you, you want to write about that, you don't have to be 
in the middle of it, you'll still you'll still know what that all feels like. Yeah, no, it, it won't be forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> that was author Joy McCullough from episode 68. Next up is literary agent Christy Hunter from episode 69. What does uh, being mentored by Deidre Knight look like? Oh, well, that's a really fun thing to have. Deirdre is just incredible. She's at her core an amazing salesperson. I think that was one of the things I picked up the most about her. When she's passionate about something and talking about a book, you're not, you just have to have it. Like, she's amazing. Um, but I felt really fortunate working with her. I also worked with Elaine on foreign rights. I worked with Deirdre just seeing her contracts, her deals, um, her day-to-day. And then starting out, I was also uh, our submission coordinator. Um, so I'd see every submission that came in and vet it before it went to any agent. This was a pre-query manager. Um, we now use query manager, so all agents just get their own queries. But before that, I would read and respond to every query. Um, and that just kind of laid my foundation. I now have my own list of clients, obviously. Um, but that gave me a bird's eye view of everything I would need to know to be a, a successful agent. Um, and it's just, they're just the best. She's just the best to learn under. <laughs> For uh, those of us that uh, haven't had the experience, what's, what, what is query manager versus a submission coordinator? Oh, okay. So that's a great question. So when I was a submission coordinator, things would just go to like a regular email box. It was submissions at nightagency.net. And I was, you know, just a normal human would go through everything and respond um, or, or forward it to agents. Now there's this uh, computer program, I guess, called Query Manager that a lot of agencies use. So you're uploading things as a form. Um, so each agent has their own portal you can upload your query to. And that's checked directly by the agent. So no longer am I needed to respond because we really pride ourselves on responding to every email. But now thanks to Query Manager, you can use a form. Uh, whereas before, I would actually um, take the letter, uh, write in the person's name, send it on you know, via email. But it, it was all done uh, without using a, a, a computer program. So Query Manager is much more efficient. <laughs> Well, I saw you guys are bragging uh, on the website, not bragging, but stating uh, on the website uh, that you uh, will have about a two-week turnaround time to get back to the querier. Yeah. Uh, I was just drooling over, like, oh, my God, because uh, I'm an old man. I, I I did this back in the days of the, the self-addressed stamped envelope. Um, so two weeks, ah, what, 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 what privileged writers are, are about in the world now really getting a turnaround that fast. So um, does the query manager do things like flag emails where somebody's you know, spammed every agent within the agency with the same query? No, you know, we still just read everything. Um, there's no sort of shortcuts or anything like certain things are going to trash automatically. There's none of that. We just really pride ourselves um, as an agency, as an agent personally. I love when people get back to me. Um, so we try to extend that same courtesy to authors. Um, you know, two weeks is kind of like I would say our goal. I'm sure I'm sure I've had times where it's been three weeks or four weeks, but I definitely set that goal the for myself. The author is listening right now. Like, two and a half weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny. I do it in batches and I've definitely have gotten feedback sometimes when something has fallen in that day and I'm doing the full batch and they'll be like, they had my query for three hours and they responded. I'm like, I read it. I was just, you were in that batch. So you kind of can't win because uh, I think there is the thought if you read too quickly, you're not maybe giving full consideration. And, you know, that's just not the case. We just really um, believe that submissions are important, that cultivating new talent is important. And because of that, 
we don't want to leave authors just wondering, you know, we want, we want to give them a definitive response whenever it's possible. So how many uh, queries are you receiving on an average day? You know, for me, I probably get about 20 a day. I, I'm a, a, fair, a newer agent. Um, I know when I was doing the submission inbox, some of our more senior agents see a lot more. Gotcha. And so you've got that seasoned experience that you know how to tear through an inbox uh, pretty quickly, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think the submission coordinator kind of set me up for that because I would go through through everything and you just learn to see really what works. And, you know, we ask for sample pages. So there's always that opportunity. Um, you know, if the query sounds interesting, but maybe it's just a little discombobulated, you know, I go straight to the sample pages and see what we're working with. Um, so just that kind of like, let's see, let's see, let's see um, kind of mentality. So, okay, um, uh, brand new uh, submission hits the inbox. What are you looking at first? How are you How are you evaluating it? And how quickly can you do it? Yeah, I, usually pretty quickly. First of all, I'm looking just to make sure it's something I represent. Um, sometimes I just get queries that aren't even what I represent. So that's an easy, fast no. Um, you know, I don't do picture books. Um, you know, I don't do, uh, I only do a certain genre of adult. I do really just women's fiction and rom-coms at this point. So that kind of helps me weed things pretty quickly in that regard. Then I'm looking just at the basics. You know, if you're writing middle grade, you know, what is the word count? Is it 200,000? You know, that's going to make me be like, oh, I'm going to have to really love this story to take on a 200,000 word middle grade and get it in shape for submission. Uh, so those are things. That'll just get a, with the sample, get a look. <laughs> 200,000 might be aggressive. I'm usually one who will be generous with large word counts because I kind of feel like we can always whittle it down. Um, to that 100,000 obviously is a little bit <laughs> crazy <laughs> for that regard. Um, but I'm looking at that and then I just, you know, it only takes me a second. You know, a query should probably take up about three quarters of a page. Um, it doesn't need to be long to be well written. Um, so that only takes me a few seconds to review and know, you know, what's the hook? Is this something fresh? Is this something that makes me excited to read on for the sample pages? Um, and it's just, just something I like because as an agent, I sometimes see projects that I'm like, oh, this is good, but this isn't for me. I, I'm not going to be the right agent for this. Um, and so I think kind of that's the hardest one is when you know something's good, but you're not sure you're the right person for it. Um, but just kind of trusting your gut. Um, that kind of helps me make the fastest decisions. It's just that's, do I feel that spark or do I not? Well, without uh, boring folks uh, too much, because I know I've, we've always got a nice mix listening to the show. Uh, some folks that have just wrote their first query or are about to write their first query ever to you, uh, and folks that have been on the, I call it the query go round, uh, which is a fairly common phrase, um, for you know years. Uh, and, and, and they've got this down. When you're looking at a query, how would you prefer that open? Do you want to hear about the author? Do you want to just straight to the pitch for the story? What would you like? Pretty much straight to the pitch. Um, you know, sometimes I see people lead with like, you know, this is a YA thriller and this is the word count. And that's fine. That doesn't really bother me either way. That can sometimes come at the end too. But um, I think beginner authors sometimes make the mistake of front loading too much about themselves. You know, this is a story I've been working on for 10 years. It's this, it's that. I worked as a fisherman and it's just really what I need is a good story. Um, that's the most important part. So as fast as you can get to like what your story is, what is the hook, um, that's, that's better, that's ideal. Because, you know, like I said, I go through so many, I don't really have the time to kind of sort through the information. So if you can write it in a concise way, 
Um, and there's so, so much great information out there about doing strong queries, but um, so it's definitely doable, um, but that's the best way to do it and helps me evaluate your project. Do you want to hear how I learned about you? I heard I heard you on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. You sounded fantastic, so that's why I sent you my query. Or just get to the pitch. I don't care how you heard about me. That's you know that's fine. And if there's a relevant information, like I do, um, I'll put out tweets um, with the MSW MSWL hashtag every so often, like looking for this, looking for that. And if people see that and they feel it's relevant to their work and they want to reference it, that's great. Um, you know, I I never hate when people do their their homework. Um, I think if it becomes a stretch for why you are, you know, like if my MSWL um, said something very specific and you, you reference it and then your book has nothing to do with that, you know, I wouldn't stretch the connection. It's okay if there's not a connection, but if there is one or if there is a specific reason, you know, you love my author's work and your project similar, you know, feel free to mention it, but I don't think you have to fabricate something to get an agent's interest. I understand you're looking for rom-coms. The protagonist in my political <laughs> thriller loves rom-coms also. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you'd be surprised. The people will make that stretch. And I think it comes from the idea that, you know, agents aren't actually reading their queries, that they're just kind of like, like you said, flagging certain things. And I read every single query. So there's no reason to try to like trick me into opening it. Like I'm going to open it. <laughs> that was literary agent Christy Hunter from episode 69. Next up is author Matali Perkins from episode 70. You mentioned that uh, if uh, you don't have a lot of money, you can enjoy books at the library. I would say even if you have a lot of money, just buy more books. You just like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like the way you did that plug for your books in the beginning. I, I'm so culturally, I, I just am not good at that. I was taking notes as to how smoothly and you did that so well. So I, I would I would wish I could do that. I'm, I'm always like, uh, do you want to, uh, you can get my books at the library. <laughs> because I, I didn't have money for books growing up. So I always got the books from the library. So I know, I don't know, I should be more brazen about it. Buy my books, Dad Gummit. <laughs> I should. Uh, wait, you know, I like doing that right at the beginning because then I don't feel pressure to bring it yeah. up like where it doesn't belong and try and shoehorn it in the conversation. Right. Like I, always, I never want to be too aggressive, but don't watch the show, watch or listen to the show for however many episodes this has been now. I know we're closing in on 70. Um, don't watch or listen to all those episodes and never have an idea. Oh, you wrote a book, Mr. Camp? I had no idea. That <laughs> would be that's, terrible. That's just a disservice. You, that's the other part of it. Is you have to honor that vocation. I mean, you've written a book. That should be that should be something that you honor. I don't know. Being apologetic about it is not is not necessarily the best thing at all. So I appreciated that. I thought that was great. And then now I'm going to be like, <laughs> Rickshaw Girl. <laughs> Rickshaw Girl. <laughs> well, no, I'm going to set you up right now because I want to talk about Rickshaw Girl. All and right. the first thing I could do is summarize other people's books, oh. uh, especially if I've got the author right here. Why would you want to listen to me get your book wrong when I could just say to you, Matali Perkins, author of Rickshaw Girl, please tell us about Rickshaw Girl. Okay. Rickshaw Girl is the story of a, of a girl who's growing up in Bangladesh. And in her culture, it's uh, difficult for girls to work to make money outside of the home. And so they're just two daughters, and their father drives a rickshaw. He gets sick, and so they, Naima is the oldest daughter, and she's had to drop out of school. They don't have money for school fees for both sisters. So she's, she's just indignant that a girl cannot make money. She can paint. She can draw alpanas, which is the traditional art that girls do on the doorsteps of houses. She's good at that, but that's not a money-making thing. That's just a decorative thing. So why can't a girl make money? And she's frustrated. 
And so she decides that she's going to try to help her dad out and see if she can drive his rickshaw, even though you never see a girl driving a rickshaw. So she comes up with this, this crazy plan, and of course everything goes awry, and uh, then she has to make it right. She has to have the courage to make things right because she makes a huge mistake that almost that really takes down her, has a cost on her whole family. And then she has to figure out a way to make it right. So that's what that book is about. And uh, it's kind of fun now because I uh, wrote it so long ago. And as I said, it was rejected so many times, Robert. And um, it didn't get any starred reviews. It didn't get any awards. It just kind of went under the radar. But I just got this picture of little Naima pedaling along on her rickshaw because it was translated into almost every language that values duty and honor. So most of the Asian languages, in fact, in Japan, it sells well in Taiwanese and Mandarin and Hindi and Marathi in a lot of cultures where duty is valued and honoring your parents is valued. It's done really well. And so it's fun for me to see it sell also here in the United States where we have more and more kids from those kind of cultures that have that, uh, that value. But I think also Americans are, are reading it too. Like I'm born in the USA American. So, um, so it's fun to see that, that a book that was so quiet kind of picking up steam bit by bit. She's pedaling uphill. She's making it. So <laughs> exciting. <laughs> yeah. So I um, I'm just going to jump straight to a question I wanted to ask you, because you wrote that, uh, it was published back in, what, 2008, 2007? 2007. So yeah. now, and, and, and it was, you know, 22 rejections somewhere in there, plus a long process to get it. How, how long a process was it to get it from written to published? The first draft was uh, a picture book. It was called, yeah, it was a picture book. And uh, every time I wrote a picture book back in those days, uh, editors would say, you know, this should be a novel. This should be a novel. And what happened was I was, it was, I don't know if you've ever been to these signings, Robert, where you're sitting at a signing at an event. It was a, a conference in Boston. I can't remember if it was ALA or something, but I had my second book, Monsoon Summer from Random House. And I was sitting in, a, in one of those conferences. I don't know about you, but I always end up being next to one of these celebrity authors. So you're sitting there and there's no one there in your line. And then there's these long lines that are snaking out for the people next to you. So it was one of those events, and I had no one in my line. I was just sitting there. And I had the manuscript of Rickshaw Girl that I was working on. And so uh, this lovely lady from the back of the line and the other line, the author um, next to me, I can't remember who was next to me, probably John Green or somebody like that. I don't know who it was. Uh, some wonderful writer that was, had lots of fans. And um, this lady left the line, this woman left the line, came up to me and said, hey, I, I, I read Monsoon Summer. I really liked it. and I'm an editor at Charles Bridge. And this is after all the rejections of Rickshaw Girl. She said, well, what are you working on next? And I said, well, I have this manuscript, this, this Rickshaw Girl. So I uh, actually gave her the manuscript. And, and it was Judy O'Malley. Back in the day, she worked as an editor in Charles Bridge. And then she emailed me back. And I didn't have an, an agent then. No, no, I did have an agent, right? But we weren't selling any. No, I did have my agent, Laura Rennert, then. But that's how, that's how that book got acquired, was just in a terrible signing line at a dud event, just showing up which is part of the career, right? You just show up and you just never know who's going to, who you're going to meet. And that's why you keep taking yourself to these events and keep showing up. So, uh, so Charles Bridge acquired it back in 2005. I think it took a couple of years to edit it and get it in shape for a middle grade novel. And then from a picture book and then it was published and then it got no starred reviews and then it got no awards. And then it, 
all that stuff. You know, for those so. of you listening, she's she's pumping her fist with each of these. <laughs> no pump, awards, pump. no stars. I'm pumping my rickshaw. I'm pedaling. I'm pushing it up, pushing it up. Yeah, I've tried. I tried to ride a drive a rickshaw. They are hard to pump, so you take a lot of effort. That was author Matali Perkins from episode seventy. Next up is author Carly Sorosiak from episode seventy-one. I think there's also a lot of emphasis on suffering to create art, which I really hate. The idea that you somehow have to suffer to do the work that you love. If you were if you were in that much pain when you're writing, why are you doing it? <laughs> I don't understand that. Especially if you're not on any sort of deadline and no one's quote unquote expecting the book. Just have fun with it. Just have fun. It's supposed to be fun. Have you been a sufferer in the past? Have you attempted that method? Oh, yes. So my second book, Wild Blue Wonder, I cried the whole way through that book. Like, it is a very sad book, and I think that that's part of it, but I was writing about grief. I was writing my grief, and I was also writing out of a place of my debut YA novel did not do very well. So, like, I mean, it did it did well critically. Like, people, generally speaking like liked this book but I also started writing this book when I was 19 years old like it it's not the book that I would have debuted with if I knew the whole emphasis that publishing puts on debuts um so my second book I had to write it really really quickly I it was about a topic that I wanted to write about but was also really heavy and really hard and it was a lot of like emotional excavation and also coming to terms while I was writing it with some of the reader reviews that I was getting of some people really, really liking it and other people hating it. And how do you write out of that space? So I think that this sophomore novel, especially, that was the place where after that book, which I love the final product and I I actually, I'm really, really proud of that book, but I would never want to be in that space writing it again. So with Cosmo, one of the reasons why I chose to switch to middle grade and chose to write about a golden retriever was like, I just want to write this book in a total place of joy. Like even when there are sad parts in the book, I was still writing them in like a loving, joyful way. I was excited to write the whole book. There was like enthusiasm behind it. I got giddy when I sat down to the computer and I want to, I want to have that experience with all of my books. Like maybe that's too much to ask for, but that is the, that is the goal. Well, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a nice goal. <laughs> I don't know if it's possible. <laughs> so far, all of my books have brought me at least some joy. Uh, yes, esteemed audience, even the one you didn't like, <laughs> I enjoyed it. <laughs> so hopefully that, uh, that, that will always continue. Um, pivoting back to, uh, I, well, no, you know what? I wanted to ask you just a little bit more about, um, right out of uh, college, working uh, as an editor, uh, sitting near where T.S. Eliot once sat. Uh, how did that set you up and prepare you? What kind of perspective on publishing did that give you for that you could take forward in your writing career? Yeah, I mean, I mean the thing is just the idea of, I think that the biggest thing I learned right off the bat was just how much editors play a hand in the success of a book. Um so there was an editor called Alice Swan at Faber, and I learned 
pretty much all of my kind of editorial skills from her, especially when it came to structural edits. And they play such a big hand in shaping a book. And I never really realized, like, when you turn in as an author of this draft that you think is kind of close to perfect, just how many rounds it goes through to get it to this place where it's readable and where it's really, really tight and the story flows. And yeah, editors are like magicians. And that's that was the biggest thing. And just seeing a book come in from many, like a manuscript form from agents. And I, I played a part in, um, I did a lot of reader reports. So I would get like 10 to 20 manuscripts at a time. And I would write like a one paragraph review of what I liked about it. And then kind of ordered it from like one to 20 of this was the best book I got out of this batch. Um, and these ones I didn't think felt like favor. And it's not necessarily that they were quote unquote like bad books everything that we were getting was like a really strong submission. But um, there's kind of a brand at favor, like it's very literary, like it's very warm um, and a type of books, it's like more prize winning than kind of commercial. So um, kind of a mix of the two, but I got to work with some really, really amazing authors, some of whom became um, kind of New York Times bestsellers and seeing the evolution of their books was really helpful for when I started my own writing journey. Um, and also just kind of the ins and outs of what an agent does, um, what a managing editor does, what publicity uh, department does. Um, and going in, and I think that there's this big thing with publishing of from the outside, it doesn't seem very transparent. And being able to kind of pull back the veil and actually be inside that machine was extremely helpful in understanding that the authors who are coming in are real people. And if they're real people and I'm a real person, I could do that too. Why not? So <laughs> helpful from that end. Uh, and then um, you mentioned that uh, your debut was not ideal for a debut. So because you put that out, I, I would never ask you that out of the blue. But because you said that now, yeah. I, uh, I feel the door is open for me to I'm ask very you happy to talk about, about that book uh, that made it not ideal for the debut. And what would you have done in retrospect to have made, to have made it there? I probably and I, I'm not saying that the that if birds fly back is a bad book. It's not a bad book. It's just not. My editor is going to kill me if I said it. it's just not very like it was it was just all the books that I was reading I just kind of put them together and like, this is what contemporary literature YA is. So I'm just gonna take pieces, not really take pieces, but thinking about like, what does John Green do? What does Jandy Nelson do? What do all these other authors do? Instead of having a voice of like, what, does, what do I do? And I think that that was my debut experience of, I didn't produce something that felt like only I could have written it. And with Wild Blue Wonder, that's something that I started to fix. And like with my middle grade, that's something that I'm really, really doing. So I also felt a lot of pressure, as I was saying, with the um, kind of youth component of I had to, my deadline for myself was 25. 
Like I have to have a book published by the time I'm 25. That's just what I have to do. So I rush this thing because it's like, well, all the great novelists get published by the 25. I don't know where I got this number. I don't think this is even correct. But in, in my mind, that was the number that I was going for. So I got my agent when I was 24. And sure enough, like I think I was like 25 and a half um, when the book hit shelves. So I made that goal. But at kind of what cost to the book, like I didn't really take this was the first, besides Lady of the Tree, it was the first book that I had finished at all. So I didn't look back on it. I didn't think, is this the thing that I actually wanted? Like, is this my brand? Is this my most authentic self? No, it was just, this is my attempt at writing a YA novel. Here it is. And between somebody that just wrote their debut apropos of nothing and you who have two master's degrees, your undergraduate and have studied uh, literature thoroughly I, w- I would think that would give you at least some kind of like a I you know you would think that but with and it, it did in a lot of ways of I I read a lot of I understood what makes a story strong in terms of pacing in terms of character development I had all of that stuff but I don't think I gave myself enough time with fiction to understand what my voice was and now I feel like I figured that out. So the first book to me didn't feel like it was mine in the way that I wanted it to be. And I don't know if I can express that like more clearly. Perhaps I can, but um, I'd love for you to try. What 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 is it that makes your voice your voice? I think that when I am writing from a perspective of an animal somehow my voice comes through more strongly. And I think that it is that love for the characters. Like I really, really liked my characters in If First Fly Back, but I wouldn't like jump in front of a car for them. And I would I would push Cosmo out of the way. I really would. <laughs> I just love him to the core of me. And that's not something that I felt for the characters of my first book. I really liked them. Like they're they're cool kids. But they're not my heart in the same way. That was author Carly Sorosiak from episode 71. Next up is editor Sarah LaPala from episode 72. Uh, so once we get the beginning polished and we've got a killer opening that, that sucks the reader right in, what's the ne- where, where do stories typically tend to fall apart? Where do they, where, where are you seeing most mistakes? Oh, the middle. Um, and this, I think it's part of that emphasis that publishing has drilled into writers that the first chapter is the end all be all of their career. So I, and I, I hate that because part of it is true that you do only send that part with the query um, and that could be make or break. So I think a lot of writers spend a lot of time really polishing the beginnings of their manuscripts uh, and in the middle sort of doesn't get the same love and care. Uh, they know where they want the story to end. So the endings can be really, really strong. And then that that middle is, okay, what's my word count? Like you can almost see it in like, as you read, like what the writers are thinking of like, oh, this is too short to be a novel. So I'm going to add this scene now. And, and it, <laughs> you know, for me, I, I think a way to avoid that, um, you know, the, the laggy middle is what, you know, it's often referred to. Uh, to avoid that, I would just say, did this chapter build off of what the previous chapter set up? 
or is it repeating what the previous chapter already said? If it's repeating, delete it, or find a way to come at that information from a different perspective to give the story new life. And, you know, always make sure the story is moving forward. I see a lot of, of the, the lagging middles just end up creating like a circle of, okay, this part has already been established. We already knew this about this character. Do we really need another scene that reinforces this character trait and like really just like start picking apart what's necessary? Because by the time the plot is established, which should be between chapters three to five, if <laughs> on average, again, depends, literary fiction writers, different. Um, but on average, especially for kid lit, you really gotta keep it pacey. And if that plot has been established, then the middle of the book should keep building on the plot because all of that, you know, character establishment and, you know, what is the premise, all of that's already been done. So if you're still reinforcing the premise in the middle of the book, then usually there's a pacing issue. Gotcha. Uh, and so what, what's the best way to fix it when, you, when you've got a, when you're still establishing your premise? To fix establishing the premise, you mean? Yeah, would, uh, to fix that lagging middle because I haven't established my premise properly. Go back to the beginning. So the premise of the novel... Poisoning. Your plot is <laughs> Usually if, you know, if you're kind of stuck in the middle, and, and I've heard this from writers before too, of just like, God, I'm even boring myself with, the, with this story now. Um, if you're bored, the reader will be bored. So if you find yourself really struggling with this middle of the book of like, oh, I don't know what happens next, and I just want to get to this point. I, I mean, I, as a writer, I would say I would be very annoying if I was my own client. Uh, because I tend to just skip ahead and I write out of order. And to me, that helps. I'm definitely uh, more of a pantser than a plotter. I think people who know how to plot uh, probably don't have this issue as much. <laughs> but people who are just like kind of go, like writing, you know, they know where they want the story to end. They know who this character is. Uh, the, the middle of like where things actually need to be well plotted uh, is the part where things fall apart in, in a lot of novels I, I have come across. Um, but I would be like absolutely guilty of that too. And I write on my own projects. I'm just like, oh my God, can I just skip to the end? Like, I hate this. <laughs> <laughs> that was editor Sarah LaPala from episode 72. Next up is author Claire Swinarski from episode 73. You, you mentioned that um, you're you're doing freelance writing at the same time you're pregnant and then you've got a baby. Uh, so at what point do you go from freelance writing toward uh, dipping a toe in toward middle grade writing? When did this dream you had of being a writer start to become, when did you start to take steps toward making that a reality? So I think growing up, I always thought that I would write for kids because those are the books I loved. In high school, I was obsessed with Sarah Dessen, like every other high school girl. But I was like, I'm going to write YA like Sarah Dessen. But I realized really quickly, YA is actually not my favorite genre. I do love Sarah Dessen, but I do not love that many YA books. There's a few that I think are really, really phenomenal, but it's not 
what I gravitate towards, I really gravitate towards middle grade. I mean, when I'm walking around the library and I'm in the middle grade section, I almost just get emotional thinking about how much some of these stories meant to me. And so I wanted to try writing middle grade. And so, like I said, the first middle grade book I wrote didn't end up being published, but it did snag me an agent. So I actually wrote most of that when I was doing some mission work in Missouri. And then while I was freelancing in Wisconsin, working at this marketing engineering firm and querying, I was doing a lot of edits and overhauls of it. And plus, I had a baby in there. So that took up a lot of my time. But then I thought, I'm going to send out some queries and just see what we get. And I actually got an agent really fast. I mean, really fast fast. I think in like five days I had three offers. Um, but that was a really great lesson for me because although I had these offers and I went with Alex and I was super excited, I got in my head a little bit like, oh, well, I got an agent pretty quickly. So <laughs> clearly this book is just gonna skyrocket. And that is not at all what happened. Again, it went on submission for like nine, 10 months, and it's still a Word doc on my computer that I I, th- I do think still has some solid parts. So maybe I'll revisit it one day. But that was a really good lesson for me to just expect nothing because in publishing, it seems like so much is meaningless. And we like attach meaning to things that isn't really there. <laughs> so that was, oh gosh, I mean, I don't even know, maybe like four years ago now that I queried Alex it was a while ago <laughs> so had you already started the new novel while that was on submission no I hadn't um I had mostly been focusing on my freelance stuff I think I was to be honest I was pretty overly confident in that book on submission I was like well it's gonna sell eventually so we're fine and then it didn't and that was really really hard to hear and I did have a little bit of a crisis some imposter syndrome there but When you've had a dream your entire life, like one book not selling isn't enough to crush it. It might be enough to like make you cry in your bed and eat Oreos and call your mom, but it's not enough to like completely make you give up. So I I was pretty quick after that to be like, all right, Alex, what are we doing next? (laughs) That's when I sent him a bunch of book ideas and kind of rocked and rolled from there. So since you're being so honest, how, how long did it take you to make that transition from devastated Oreo eating to productive and, and hopeful again? I don't think too long. I mean, I'm going to say maybe a week. Um, we have a pretty good rule in our family, which is that you can be upset about things for uh, not like major things. OK, like if someone's parent dies, you get longer than this. But if you had like a work disappointment, you get 24 hours to cry in your bed and eat your chipotle and just grovel think all of those things that you don't want to think like i'm a terrible writer poor me and then you need to get over it and move along because um your job's not your identity and being a writer is not like my life purpose i don't think that and so even if i never had a book published i would be okay and i knew that deep down and so i think after a few days i was kind of kind of ready to shake it off and I I mean Alex told me he's like just because it's not selling now it doesn't mean the market's not going to turn around in five years and we take it back out and so I mean I still think that that could be true I haven't deleted it so still have it (laughs) (laughs) no you should you should never take an old book out and just like burn it in the backyard or whatever yeah (laughs) why would you do that That, that's your whole heart don't burn your heart What an amazingly healthy mental attitude. I'm, I'm a little bit jealous because I've been guilty of wallowing for longer than 24 hours <laughs> at times in my life. 
Uh, so what 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 is your uh, do, you, do you have a firm idea of what your life purpose is? Um, yeah, I mean, not to take us to church, but I'm a very faithful person. And so I think that that, yeah, that, that, that really shapes a lot of my identity, I think, is that I know that my life purpose is not to have any concrete work goal or to be, you know, a mother of seven or to, to do these concrete things. It's just to be a daughter of a God. That's what I believe is my purpose. And so life can look a thousand different ways, but if I'm being a daughter of God and I'm striving for that and I'm striving to, to really be a saint, then I can handle a lot of disappointment. I mean, I'm not Claire the writer. If, again, if I never wrote another word, that wouldn't take away from my identity or purpose. And I mean, I'm saying all this very confidently, but I also do have a book deal, you know, like when I was in the waiting, it's not that easy to remember that for sure. But I do have a great husband and a great community who remind me of those things. And so I think that's why I'm able to kind of bounce back. And also, I think just the nature of this business is that it is so up and down and your highs are so high and exciting and your downs are crying in your bed and it's just both part of it. And you have to realize that it's not like being a civil engineer, not to knock on the engineers again. I feel like there's an engineer listening to this who's going to be like, man, this chick hated engineers. Um, but it, it's just a very emotional job and those emotions can be high or they can be low, but you have to keep your perspective or you're just going to drive yourself nuts. So since uh uh, you you have a podcast about your faith. Um, how, what role does your faith play in your writing? I think that my faith plays a huge role in my writing. Again, mainly it's that perspective of like um, that my identity is not tied to my writing. And that helps me when I get bad reviews or bad news or things like that. But also, um, so in what happens next, Abby is Catholic and it's really not mentioned it's not at all like this huge storyline she mentions like oh and then we went to mass like it's a very normal part of her life and that was really important to me actually because I grew up Catholic and I really did not see a ton of books where kids mentioned going to church even though it was a really big part of my life and and not even like I wanted books to be about you know youth group or like priests or whatever but just in the sense that like I go to school, I go to the grocery store, I go to church. Like I wanted to see church be a normal place. And I feel like a lot of times now when books involve church, it's either like a huge plot, like it's it's a Christian book, it's in the Christian part of the bookstore, or it's kind of painted as um, something that comes from like the author's own past or woundedness or like they've had struggles and that comes on their book. And that's, that's amazing. If that's the story they want to tell and that's their journey, that's wonderful. But I know that there's now a zombie story is available now. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, for sure. But there's a lot of people who that's not their journey and they want to read just about a normal Catholic family who just, you know, has artwork of saints on their walls and goes to church. It's like a normal thing. It's not super weird. And so I wanted to, to just give it that sense of normalcy. But at the same time, it's definitely not a Christian book. Like she's not in the book talking about Jesus, but she is talking about hope. And so do a lot of Christians, um, those play into each other. Sure. Can you foresee yourself writing a book that's more religiously themed? So I've written Christian nonfiction through a small publisher and I've done one book 
through them. And then I have another one coming out in a few months um, through that Christian nonfiction. I don't know if I would do Christian fiction because I really enjoy the challenge of bringing hope to completely secular stories, to be honest. There's some good Christian fiction writers, but sometimes I think when you put like the title of Christian on it, like, you know where it's going to be shelved. There's people instantly who are not going to want to read it. And you're just a little more limited, I think, in your options. So I, I can't super foresee myself writing Christian fiction, but never say never. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was author Clara Swinarski from episode 73. Next up are authors Josh Burke and Sandra Mitchell from episode 74. I'm watching our, our time fly by, and I know we're we're getting late, and it's probably about time to start thinking about calling this a day while it's still fun. But by God, I try never to make a promise to esteemed audience, and I promised we would talk about uh, Sandra being a phone psychic. So, Sandra, what was your experience being a phone psychic, and also, are you psychic? Um, uh, I think I'm psychic in the way that people who pay attention to other people are psychic. Um. You know, we spend a lot of our time socialized, like not to notice, you know, because if somebody says, you know, hi, how are you? They don't expect you to actually say how you are. You know, there's a lot of, you know, polite. And, um, you know, always I've always been interested in the fact that, you know, if you're really paying attention, you know, you can sometimes tell when people are lying about now. Yeah, I'm fine. Everything's great. Um, you know, Josh actually mentioned it earlier that sometimes I can just tell by the way he's typing that things are not okay. Um, I can actually do that with my best friend too. It's like, you know, like I know that if she has not used an exclamation point or if she says, Hey, instead of Hey, yeah, I know that, you know, I know that she's not okay. I know there's something going on. Um, so you did. Now you know, she's listening to this, and from now on, she'll make sure she always says, "Hey, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> um, I like I like that you're a punctuation you're a punctuation psychic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know exactly what that means, but I feel like that's what you are. Punctuation. <laughs> but I mean, it's just it's just it's it's paying attention to you know how people generally are and, and noticing when things deviate from that. Um, and that's what a lot of psychics, including phone psychics are doing there. You know, when we talk about cold reading, you know, it's, you're not necessarily talking to somebody that, you know, but you do know one thing when somebody comes to a psychic, which is either they want to find out if you're psychic or there's something going on and they want somebody to talk to about it. Um, I was a phone psychic for a long time in the nineties and I, I, you know, I would go through the obligatory, you know, I would pull out my tarot cards and da, da, da. but people tell you everything that they need to know that, that you need to know to actually be a good phone psychic. And, um, what's interesting is that there's also this thing called, um, you know, the bias of confirmation, um, I can make a bunch of guesses if I make them gently enough. And, it, you know, if I say, your mother's name is Sharon. Well, you know, your mom's name is not Sharon. But I can say, you know, is there an older woman in your life? And, like, if you were just with your mom, wow, yeah, yeah, there, there is. Or, you know, if you were just with your great aunt, you know, that kind of thing. Or if your great aunt died, you're like, no, she died. It's like, oh, I can tell that she's weighing heavily on your mind. It's very much kind of like an improvisational 
piece where you pay attention to what people say you repeat back the things that they tell you because they'll, I mean, they'll tell you all kinds of stuff. They'll sit there and tell you their whole life story. And then, you know, they will ask their question and I'll say, it's like, well, I think that the relationship that you had maybe with a male figure in your life is what made you reach for love. And they're like, that's so true. I always wanted my dad's love. And I've always, and it's like, you just told me. You just told me. But they don't remember that part. They don't remember everything that they tell you. Um, you know, and and quite frankly, even the gotcha people, you can sometimes get them back simply by listening to the things that they you can tell when somebody's lying to you, you know, if you're paying really close attention. It's like, so is there a woman in your life? Yeah, there's a really important woman in my life. Ha ha ha, you know. Um but, you know, as a phone psychic back then, when you couldn't get everything for free on the Internet, um, people would pay, you know, $4.99 and $5.99, you know, for the first minute and then like $2.99 for each additional minute. And um, my job was not to be a psychic, but it was to keep people on the phone as long as possible. And the longer I kept them on the phone, the more money that I would make. And. Nine times out of ten, if somebody's calling a phone psychic at midnight, they straight up, they, just, they either want somebody to talk to or they want somebody to tell them that they are making the right decision. Like, you know, so am I doing the right thing about my boyfriend? It's like the boyfriend that cheated on you four times with your own mother. Yes, it's totally the right thing to dump him. Excellent decision making. You're in the right place. But she don't want to tell him like in the first five minutes, right? That 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 insight comes at 30, 45 minutes. <laughs> like, I don't have to talk for 90 minutes, but they will talk for 90 minutes. <laughs> um, or it's just a lot of times it's it's people who are lonely and like they don't even they don't care about the psychic reading. They just they know that as long as they stay on the line, you're gonna stay on the line with them. And um I, I ultimately quit that job. It, it, I tell people that it's like the saddest job in the world um, because I had, you know, an older woman call me at one point and she was one of the ones she's like, don't even worry about the cards, honey. And she just she just wanted to talk about her day and what the weather was like and what, she, you know, the cat that she would feed on the back porch hadn't been around and she was worried about the cat and on and on and on. And I'm just like, cha-ching. Because, I mean, she, I mean, she was like a champion talker. I mean, this was like, you know, A plus, I was going to get so much money off of this call. And then we had probably been on the phone for, I don't know, 90 minutes at that point. And she said, hold on a second. And so she's gone for a moment. And then she comes back and she whispers. And she says, my son just got here. I'm not supposed to be calling these lines. Hold on. I'll call you back from my other phone. And she hung up and I'm like, oh my God, because this was obviously somebody who has been doing this a lot to their own detriment to the point where her son knows that she has been spending who knows how much on phone psychics, because I don't pretend that I was the only one that she was calling because I'm sure she had plenty of stuff to talk about in the afternoon to somebody else. And I just, I could not pick up the phone again after that because that was the point at which I realized is like as many people as there were who just wanted me to say, yes, you're making the right decision. 
there were those lonely people who just wanted to talk and I was not helping them by listening that I was actively hurting them. And so I, that was the last phone psychic call I ever took. Um, so it was a very weird job. Um, it uh, was again, one of the, one of those jobs that actually paid more than min- more than minimum wage um, being you know, a high school, just having a high school diploma. And it was something that I could do at home so that I could take care of my kids. So, you know, I do more psychic work just hanging out with my friends <laughs> than I ever did on the, on the phone psychic line. So, you know, I think that anybody can be psychic, but I do think that there are some people who do have just a little bit more and I don't know if it's just that they have managed to like tweak a little part of their brain um differently or if they're still in possession of like you know a preternatural sense that we had way back when we were crow magnet and they just happened to hold on to it or what but um I mean there are people that I have met that have been like you know and I know your mother's name is Sharon it's like okay um, nobody's name is Sharon, by the way. So don't <laughs> try hacking anybody's password here. <coughs> but that's that's the phone psychics. I'm, I'm a punctuation psychic with my friends. Um, and I was Sharon just... forever is actually my password for everything. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, the phone psychic job was it, it, it was a job that I could do at home and, and was real easy until it was suddenly very not. Well, honestly, those folks then would call customer service, which is where I was working early on, uh, and would talk my ear off while I'm just trying to give them information about their their financial accounts. So in a way, although not great for them, you were performing a service for me and all the other customer service folks who then weren't having to have the conversation. (laughs) Plus, I mean, to be fair, my job was to keep them on the line as possible. Your job was to get them off the line as quickly as possible. So... Yeah. And you know, sometimes, you, sometimes those folks, sometimes those folks do call libraries too. So I, I know some of those things. Wait, though, Ugh. while we have you, while we have you, Rob, have you ever seen a ghost? Oh wow, you, you must be psychic because that was literally my next question to you was, have you seen ghosts and/or flying saucers? Um, I have. Uh, Told five lives since the side of this podcast. What were they now do? Um, <laughs> I have never one, seen a ghost. Uh, one people... that you like any book better than ours. <laughs> Two that you never you read like anybody book. else on the show but us. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, ghost. Uh, I have not seen a ghost personally, but I have also not seen a flying saucer tragically, but I have people close enough to me who've seen both that I remain completely open-minded um, but flying saucers more, more so than ever because my God, the the news that buried underneath the daily headlines of the stupid things that the president keeps saying, um, uh, the Pentagon's releasing videos. My God, we've got uh, the crash going on in in Mage Brazil. All kinds of fun stuff happening. Uh, so okay, your turn, um, Josh. I feel like it's been a minute since we heard from you. Have you seen a flying saucer and or a ghost? No, I, I never have. But Son. I, I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I've been in situations in my life where I completely understand why 
someone would believe that they saw a ghost, if that makes sense. Like, I've had experiences where I, I, I was like, I think I just saw something, like, ghostly, right? And then I stopped and realized, like, what was going on in my head at the time. And I was able to kind of, like, think it through, like, well, that was probably a natural phenomenon that you imbued with supernatural uh, power because you are feeling something very strong that you can't uh, make sense of in your head. So, like, I've had it, like, if that makes sense. Like, or I've, you I've talked had, like, yourself having... down from the genuine event that occurred in your life. <laughs> yeah. So maybe I did. In other words, yes. <laughs> in other words, yes, I've seen ghosts. I just talked myself out of believing it. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> and Sandra, same question. Um, I've seen a handful of things. Um, but the one that I like to share is it was Thanksgiving giving at my grandmother's house i was probably seven or eight and my brother was two years younger than i was and we were the youngest grandkids out of like 13 so like no one wanted to play with us so it was me and matt and um it was an older house that had stairs like these super narrow super high stairs that went up to what used to be an um but they had made it over kind of into a small apartment. And that was where one of the only, where like the big bathroom in the house was. There was like a little weird one right off the kitchen. But of course, all the grown-ups were working in the kitchen and we weren't allowed in the kitchen. Um, and so Matt and I were, we had originally gone upstairs to go to the bathroom. And so then we were goofing around upstairs in this attic apartment. There's nobody that lived there anymore. Um, so, you know, like there were boxes and stuff like that. And the way that the house was built, it was one of the old Sears kit houses. And so there was a closet that also functioned as a wall between like the front room and the, the back bedroom. And there was a door on, on this side that went straight through the closet into the other room. And then there was the doorway on this side that went straight through into the other room. And my brother and I split off at the same time and I went through the closet and Matt went through the door. And when we came out on the other side, there was this old guy we had never seen before sitting by the window. And then we screamed and freaked out and ran downstairs. I mean, ran screaming down the stairs, went into the kitchen that we were not allowed to be in. And we told them that there was there was a man upstairs by the window and he we didn't know who he was and everything else. And so all of the grown-ups got all wound up and they went upstairs to go investigate it. And there's nobody up there. And um, we got spanked for lying. But I know that there was something there because both of us came through those doors at the same time. We were not we were like chasing each other. We were not like telling each other ghost stories or anything. We had just been running around because we were the youngest kids at Thanksgiving and there was nothing else to do. We came through those doors at the same time, saw the same thing. Both knew that it didn't fit and consistently told stories to the grownups downstairs who plainly did not believe us because we got spanked. But it bothered my grandmother enough that she talked to the neighbors um, who had lived there before they had moved in to the house. And it turned out that the family before them, the grandfather, 
stayed up in that attic because that is where he could see the persimmon trees out back when they would bloom and when they would fruit and stuff like that. And he, that's, he liked to be up there and he died in that room. So I have seen a thing and I did not see it by myself. Sounds a hundred percent to me. There we are. Confirmation. Ghost exists, people. There is hope. (laughs) (laughs) We've cleared that up for all time now. That was authors Josh Burke and Sandra Mitchell from episode 74. Next up is author Hugh Howey from episode 75. Uh, I think I've told you, I I teach a class on the basics of self-publishing, and like a third of my outline is quotes from you, (laughs) from from different things you've said out loud. Um, I did want to ask, because you uh, have had such success with self-publishing, for all those that maybe haven't yet had that success, something that might brighten their day, What's the meanest, most disheartening, Sue Grafton-ish thing somebody has ever said to you about your self-publishing that that they've not had to go back and eat their words? I wonder where to start, man. It's like my whole career. I've heard, you know, one of the one of my favorite people who who has had a huge impact on my writing career, um, Nadine Carter, my first editor. My very first book was published with a small press called Norlights Press. And. I've, I've learned, there's been like five people in my life that I've learned a lot from when it comes to writing. Nadine taught me a whole bunch because she edited my book and, um, and edited in a way that I like to be edited where there's a lot of comments and it's very brutal and it's like, this is a, something you're just doing wrong and you need to learn to correct this. I learned, I learned a lot from her and she gave me my first publishing deal and also let me buy the rights back to that book when I decided I was not going to publish my second book with them, but I was going to self-publish instead, which is where my heart had been before friends had convinced me, you should try to get this published. <clears throat> but uh, when I when I um, reached out to her, Nadine is like the sweetest person of all time, but uh, it was heartbreaking. And of course, it, it uh, in, a, in an upset place, she said, this is the biggest mistake you'll ever make in your career. And it was the best thing. I, it was what started my career. It was the best decision I ever made in my life. But that was the kind of battle that I was facing my whole life, uh, my whole writing career, um, that even the people who were my mentors that I was close to, that I consider friends, were still telling me uh, not just that that I was having bad ideas, but that my ideas were the worst ideas. And Everywhere I went for publishing advice, you know, uh, writer forums that were full of really old school thinking. And I would say like 2007, 2008, about when are we? Yeah, 2000, 2008, 2009. Okay. And um, uh, I think Kindle was like less than a year old when when I was like trying to figure out how to publish on it. And um, we came out 2007, right? The Kindle, something like that. But um uh, yeah, so like, I mean, it's pretty logical to me that you you get good enough at something that people want to represent you. You know, you get good enough at, at playing music and going out and putting on shows that finally someone in the audience who's scouting for those things comes up and says, hey, we like what you're doing, we want to represent you. Um, a lot of athletes, they just concentrate on excelling and, and scouts come and look for them and find them and say, Hey, we want, we want you come to our school, you know? Um, and I saw this in other art 
forums and I thought it's only logical that publishing is going to go this way where people just put their works out there and keep writing, keep getting better. And readers are the ones who are the slush pile um, um, consumers. You know, they're the ones who are going to be going through all this material and finding what's great. That's going to move itself up these very obscure bestseller lists on Amazon. You might crack the top 100 at a very, you know, um, very specific subcategory. And then agents who are interested in finding like what's exciting will look in those places rather than me writing a letter, a query letter. The query system just made no sense to me when I started digging into it. I'm like, this isn't, isn't how things should be done. And bringing up the way I thought things were going to go and what made no sense. Um, yeah, it just got uh, a lot of people like really heated and upset because they were, they've been struggling through this process for a long time and saying there might be a better way was not what you want to hear. So I have uh, way too many stories about what people said back then. And it turns out that, you know, their way still works. A lot of people still query and go through that process. But a lot of my friends who are making a living at writing were just, just self-publishing and just concentrating on reaching readers and telling good stories. And eventually they got enough success that someone reached out to them and said, hey, we want to elevate your career and publish you in this other way. And they can decide then whether to take representation or do a publishing deal. Um, so somehow, like, I just got lucky and saw the right thing and uh, before it had happened. And that made me really unpopular in a lot of circles. Well, people might be difficult for some folks that have come to writing later that don't remember how it was when we all read Writer's Market, and that was the word of God. That's how it gets done. I remember I told uh, when Susie K. Quinn uh, and I were critique partners before either of us had published anything. She said, I think I'm going to self-publish. And I wrote her a long letter, said, oh, my God, Susan, don't do this. You're throwing your life away. Uh, and, and of course, when I had her on the show, I had to eat crow and like, uh, yep, I couldn't, couldn't do it more wrong. So glad you're making six figures a month some months. <laughs> Yeah, and um, you know the interesting thing now is uh, I, I've done some deals with books that were self-published, and now I'm publishing them with publishers because I can make decisions that aren't purely financial. I can just do fun things and, and try other avenues. Yeah, coming up on five years of the wool contract sometime this year when you'll yeah. get it back. So I got them. I got the rights to wool back, wool shift, and dust all back. Um, late last year and did a deal um, with uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt or Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Um, and they're re-releasing, I think just this this week, they're um, taking over the eBooks and doing uh, a new print edition that will come out uh, later this year, a box set, all kinds of stuff. They haven't even announced, so um, you're the first person to, to hear about it. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's an exciting, exciting deal because uh, we'll we'll find a new audience. But it's also another time limited deal that in uh, in five years we'll reevaluate and see what we want to do. And I think um, some of the early conversations uh, I had with uh, some of my self publishing mentors, they said this is the future where you you don't give lifetime rights to anything because you just don't know what they're worth. You can't you can't value books that never go out of print anymore. So those are the kind of deals I like to do now where like, yeah, we'll do a deal, but it's for this number of years. It doesn't matter what the sales are when that happens. The books and rights come back to me and then we can reevaluate. And one of those deals, um, the book didn't earn out and and uh, underperformed. And so we just gave them an extension. Like, we'll just keep it for another two years. And so it's not about trying to screw over publishers. 
uh, it's just about being fair and being able to get the rights back means you can reevaluate and make decisions based on um, sales and how things are going. Do you ever foresee a time when you would take it back and say, okay, it's all coming back to the Howie house now. Uh, and you, you're just, I know this isn't a, a religious quest for you. I, I'm always uh, stunned by people that I'm a religiously questing for self-publishing. I'm not. Uh, but you'll see I have uh, editors and literary agents on here on a regular basis. I'm happy with people that like books. I want to talk books. They're all interesting to me. Yeah. Um, but um, can you see yourself going back to completely on your own? Or at this point, are you? is it so large, especially once potentially a TV show comes out? or whatever else might happen. I mean, can, can one person manage the, the Howie empire? Yeah, it's not uh, it's not that hard. You know, you, once you upload the PDF and the ebook, things take care of themselves. Um, you know, the retailer, Amazon, especially just does most of the hard work for you. Um, so uh, there's not a lot of, you don't have to do point of sale stuff. You know, you get one, um, doing your taxes at the end of the year is pretty easy. It's It's not that difficult. Uh, I still think of my, every time I write something, I'm like, I'm going to self-publish this first and we'll see if publishers come along afterward. So uh, John Joseph Adams and I are, are coming out with the uh, three anthologies uh, next month, um, these uh, dystopian uh, triptych works that I've contributed to and, and edited all the stories for. And um, it was no question that we were going to self-publish them. And I'm sure if we shot them around, we could get deals, but that's just not what we're interested in. We just want the stories out there in the way that we want to, to tell them. And we did that with an, another uh, trilogy of anthologies um, about five or six years ago. And we've, you know, had um, publishers come after us since then and TV and film offers and stuff. And we're just happy kind of doing our own thing. And, and the authors have been happy with the, uh, the, Results. Some of them have made more money from that anthology than they normally make with their self, with their uh, you know majorly published short stories. So for me, every project starts as a self-publishing project, and then uh, my agent or publisher will get involved and sometimes come up with something that's enticing. But uh, I still think self-publishing first is the way to go. I mean, is it is it even uh, feasible for you to sit down and have a conversation with an editor or publisher that says? Hugh, we love this aspect of your novel, but we want you to change the main character. We want you to change the final act and three other things. Is that even a conversation that you would entertain at this point? I would. I would. I love collaborative. Um, uh, the collaborative creative process. I love it a lot. So I'd, I'm happy to have conversations like that. But I've never, I never. It hasn't been my experience that publishers have those conversations. Um, at least not with me. They'll either pass on it or get excited about it. Uh, you get some editorial feedback, but if it's something that major, often there's other stuff that in their their slush pile that they're more interested in. So they'll usually just pass and uh, move on. But uh, yeah, I my experience so far has been that people get excited about something I've already published, and they they see the sales history is pretty good, and so they just want to they don't want to change too much, and they keep it as is. I did have um, a really cool experience with. Uh, an editor, uh, Jack Fogg, and, and uh, he was with uh, Random House UK when I did my big wool deal with them before I had done any deals in the US. And he thought that we needed um, a, a scene with Juliet and some of these characters earlier on in wool. And, uh, you know, this is my doing an essay the night that it's due. He was like, I don't know, maybe, maybe just a, a paragraph or two in one of these early chapters. 
And that night I wrote like what became chapter 13 of Wool, like wrote an entire chapter. It is one of my favorite chapters. I think it's one of the, the best uh, pieces of work in the, and, and so he's, he's in England and he sends me this email and goes to sleep and he wakes up the next morning because I've been working all day while he's sleeping. And he wakes up, not thinking he'll even hear back from me. And he's got to like hold this entire chapter and it blew his mind, but also blew my mind. And I loved getting that editorial feedback, made the, the story so much stronger. And uh, so I relish that, those kinds of opportunities. I've done a, a couple of writing rooms uh, for adaptations and just being in a room with really smart people that are geeking out about the same world and the same story and and you're molding all these things out of raw clay it's it's so exciting for me i i think that's where i belong actually in this um storytelling world right now i probably just belong in la just working in writing rooms all day i just love it can't get enough of it like i don't feel like i'm going to work i just feel like a kid in a candy store every day that was author hugh howie from episode 75 Next up is author Ann Nesbitt from episode 76. So you um, obviously, between teaching uh, and, and, and attending festivals, you clearly have this huge passion in your life for silent films. So when you sit down to work specifically on, on Daring Darlene, how much research do you still have to do and how do you go about it? Yeah, well, my... Um film historian background was especially focused on Russian and Soviet film. So that the history of early Russian film and, and Soviet film is, is quite different from what was going on in um, New York and New Jersey in the teens. However, I w as I said, I, I went to these silent film festivals every year and would watch literally hundreds of silent films every year brought from archives around the world, including a large number of films filmed in Fort Lee, New Jersey. So I had at least a kind of passive knowledge of what was going on in, in the United States and in Fort Lee. And then I learned more when I was teaching um, the history of film, when I started teaching history of film part one. Um, and it was in fact, uh, as as I was teaching the, the serial adventure films week for that, when I thought, oh, you know, um, actually, this could be a good kids book. I should I should do that. I've done some of the research already. How about that? And then I did. Then I really dug into it. So I love doing research. I mean, that's that's the thing that ties my writing and my academic career together. I I love digging into things and going down rabbit holes and looking at primary sources. Ah, I just love it. So I started reading a lot about Fort Lee, New Jersey, about early American film history. Um, one of the characters in the book is a real live, well, no, she's no longer alive, but she was at the time alive. That's Elise Guy Blachet, who was one of the first filmmakers in the world. She worked for Gaumont in the, um, starting in the 1890s. So right at the beginning of film history, she was making films of all kinds for the French uh, filmmaker. And then eventually she came to the United States with her husband, who had also a Gaumont employee. And their job was to try to sell America on sound film actually, because she had been doing a lot of experiment with sound film very, very early. 
In fact, it turned out to be too early and nobody could believe that that was what we really needed in films. And so that project didn't happen in the United States. But she started this, uh, this film uh, studio, Solox, in Fort Lee, and it was incredibly successful. And she was, you know, one of the most influential women in filmmaking for, for a period there. So I have my fictional characters get tangled up with the real, uh, real live but fictionalized Madame Blachet. So I, of course, read all sorts of biographies of Alice Guy Blachet and watched her films and um, read her autobiogra autobiography, read things about her. Um, I paid extra good attention when I was at film festivals for films set in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and you. People may have been irritated by me cheering when a film came on that was made in 1914, set in Fort Lee, and was about like a, I think it was a trolley driver. And I was like, oh my gosh, look at that. That's my trolley. That's my trolley. Ah! Okay. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I did, I did lots of research like that. I also read through um, all sorts of movie magazines from the time to fan fan magazines, they, they were incredibly popular. They had huge numbers of people subscribing to them. So I read uh, movie star gossip and gossip about uh, films being made, gossip about Elise Guy Blachet. Um, and then I also focused on uh, newspapers and reading about what was going on day by day during at the, on the days that I was describing in my book. So there's a lot in the book that comes right off the front page of the New York Times from, I think it was April 12th, 1914, because the Strand Theater actually opened April 11th, 1914, and was covered in the New York Times the next day as, um, and, and in all sorts of other newspapers as well. And there were all sorts of amazing things on the front page of the New York Times on April 12th, 1914. I'm telling you, like the Pope coming down hard on tango. <laughs> that, was, that was under the fold on the front page of the New York Times. And some poor woman who'd been, who had died of mercurial poisoning under, under questionable circumstances and so on and so forth. So some of that um, I snuck into the book as well as just getting a feeling for what the weather was on any given day, how people got from Manhattan over to Fort Lee, taking the ferry, what was that like? What did the ferry look like? Were there spittoons on the ferry? Yes, there were. Um, what, was what was everyday life like for people who were extras in the film studios? How did the film studios run? Um, all of that, really infinite numbers of rabbit holes for me to dig into. So a couple of questions about that. One, I'm, and this is something I, I ask frequently when I talk with uh, history writers, because I find that it's, it's a pretty common trait. I know when I had Abby on, uh, he let me know that he, he checks the weather of every day he writes about. Um, my question is always, unless I'm looking through those papers also, I'm not going to be able to call your bluff if you tell me it was a sunny day and really it was it was rainy. Um, so is it really, is it, is it just so that you would know that that's off or? 
Um, well, it's a mix of things, you know. Uh, part of it, so I think it's actually fine to fictionalize a lot when you're writing about the past. So when I was writing um, Orphan Band of Springdale, which just came out in paperback, by the way. And Available this was in fine bookstores everywhere as of this moment. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's set in 1941 in rural Maine, and it's based uh, loosely on my mother's childhood. She's sent to live in an orphanage run by her grandmother when things got hard for her family. And, um, and there, you know, my mother died quite young, so I didn't have access to her to get... There was no one left who actually remembered the true truth. So I had to fictionalize the whole thing. I um, even changed one letter in the name of the town to sort of as in sort of respect of the differences between my fictional version of things and the real life version of things. And yet I still went through the local paper and read through everything that happened that year and used lots and lots of that in the book. So I think whenever we're writing anything, it's always a mixture of fiction and act. But I think that digging into what happened in the past um, deepens your stories, even the fictional sides of them somehow. And you find things that you don't expect. You know, if you, it's, I guess it's sort of like that uh, plotting versus pantsing uh, question again, that if you, if you think you already know everything about some period and you're just gonna write the thing that you think you know and you haven't gotten your hands dirty digging into the primary sources and reading through the local papers and everything, you won't know all the riches and strangenesses that were there waiting to be dug up. Some of them you may not use, but, but they, they do just add this, um, three-dimensional feeling to the historical world that you're creating. I think also um, at silent film festivals, so silent film fans and historians tend to love details. So you can be sure that there are going to be people who are going to find everything I got wrong. <laughs> just as, you know, there are people who just know so much about silent film that that one of the things one of the games they used to play in this uh big festival is they would archivists would bring little bits of film that they found in their archive and they have no idea what it is and they would screen those and you'd have this audience of a thousand film historians and film um fans and so on there and people would just shout out oh that's so and so and they would know who these actors were what studio it was, or where that outdoor location was. There are people who can recognize every building in Fort Lee, New Jersey, and tell you when it shows up in a film. And they'll go, okay, that was on such and such a street, da 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 da. So I think part of that kind of infects me as well, you know, from coming out of a film historian background. You, you kind you want to have, because it's, it's so thrilling. I really think the, the material that comes out of uh, the worlds of the past is actually fascinating in and of itself. So I love digging it up. So you've got those uh, people in the back of your mind, like if I don't get this right, they are going to crucify me when I see them again. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. I think, you know, 
I'm all right. I know I'm all right with it. It's actually, it's fine. Um, but you, but you know, I think it's more that in fact, I'm thinking this little, this little tidbit, <laughs> almost nobody is going to recognize what I'm really talking about here or the real thing that this is actually a reference to, but some people are going, going to be saying, oh, that's the Strand Theater. Opened April 11th, 1914. One of the most exciting theater openings, you know, of its day. Woo! Can't believe, is she going to get the color scheme right in the theater? Read, 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 read. Oh, she's got the color scheme right. She remembered the little fountains in the front of the screen. Woo! So it's going to make somebody happy. Are you one of those people when you read historical fiction? Do you look for those types of details? Do they make you happy? They make me happy. When I find... When I find a detail that has some resonance with um, the world, I yes, it does make me happy. And just in, in, in talking to you and the amount of research and work you, you, you've done, plus your, your background, your enthusiasm for film, the version I have, and of course I've got the advanced reader's copy, uh, there's only, only uh, 345 pages, but I get the sense you could easily have written for 700, 800 pages, maybe 1,000. So out of all those details that you have, how are you distilling them and, and getting this into a, a tight narrative? Because it's not a history lesson. Like you say, there's uh, cliffhangers almost every chapter. You, you're going to move right along. How do you distill that to make sure that you have those nice moments for the, the history buffs, plus also all the young readers that need to, to learn the history without, without making it feel like a history lesson or bogging down your narrative too much to allow for all that? I guess part of it is that, okay, I don't think of historical detail as, as medicine or as the thing that you need to learn or so on. I think of it as the hidden jewel, that little treasure that you can dig up. Um, it's that's what I, I that's what I I love that. And I think that I think that kids actually react well to that sort of thing too. If you're giving them details that are like treasures, they're not they're not things they're going to be tested on. Um, it's not about making them learn lessons for the lesson's sake. It's it's discovering how wonderful it is to dig up treasure in the past, to, to read about uh, things that really happened and so on. So, but the, the question of how do you not get overwhelmed by details? Well, of course you do get overwhelmed by details. I mean, that, that just happens. But then once again, you have the notebook. So you go through your notebook, um, you, you have, and there are all sorts of things in here that did not end up in, that did not end up in the book. And, you know, you, you can't put everything, you can't put everything in the book. So you're just trying to give little, like, tips of icebergs, right? Little kind of jewel-like, shining in the sun tips of really interesting historical icebergs. And you just hope that some kids are going to dig a little bit further. I remember being that kid, reading, a, this is not a historical book at all, but reading um, Madeline Lengel's A Wind in the Door, which you may recall uh, has all this stuff about the mitochondrion in it. And I remember, how, and the mitochondrion is like a kind of world that you can go into it. I remember how thrilled I was when I found out that that was a real thing. Now, her depiction of it wasn't real at all. <laughs> it was completely <laughs> fantastic and magical. Um, 
But the fact that that had a tie to this whole other story that was like the miracles of biology <laughs> meant something to me. I just love seeing that kind of tie and link and connection. That was author Ann Nesbitt from episode 76. Next up is author Tracy Wolf from episode 77. Have you ever been to Prague? Uh, no. There is this church called the Church of Bones in Prague, and it's an ossuary, and they have the most amazing um, bone chandelier, and it's human bones, right? Um, like the catacombs in France, too, which if you've ever been through are, like, scary as, as heck. Um, but um, this gigantic bone chandelier that takes up, like, a huge, like, huge amount of the ceiling. And, and the first time I saw it, I was like, that has to go in a book someday. It just it just has to. I don't know what book. And this was many, many years ago. I don't know what book it's going to go in, but it's got to go in a book. And um, 65 books later, I found the book that it needed to go in. <laughs> you find yourself knowing that you've got this incredible amount of output in you. So I, I assume I'm talking to you uh, about when we're through maybe the first, fifth, uh, so we can look forward to, to quite a few more books yet to come. Hopefully, hopefully uh, you can look forward to more books, yes. Are you kind of just forever taking snapshots of life around you, just like tuck that away, I'm going to use that in a book someday? I think I am, and I think I always have. I have um, one of my funniest stories is actually about the day I met one of my best friend's fathers, and we were in college. She was my college roommate. And um, I had I grew up in California, was born in Detroit, and had come to Texas for school because they had given me a full ride scholarship. And um, I knew I wanted to go to grad school and you know, yeah. And um, so anyway, um, she took me home to her very small town in Texas. Um, I think it was, I think it was Easter weekend. I think it was. And so anyway, um, we get to town we get to her little town and her mom and dad say hey you want to go out to dinner and we said yeah sure we'll go out to dinner so we get in the car or in the truck excuse me we get in the truck and i didn't realize being from san diego that going to dinner meant you had to drive a solid hour and a half to get to somewhere where you could have dinner right what yeah That's this small thing? town texas i mean this town is 600 people right i mean and her parents are like i love them they're the most delightful people became my second parents all of those things but this is the first time we've met and so anyway we're like driving along and then suddenly her dad like pulls the truck over to the side of the road i'm, I'm 18 jumps out of the car and pull and and keep in mind this is in the 90s and so it's a little different than like the the climate now with the second amendment and jumps out of the car pulls a, a handgun at, it's the first time i've seen a gun in person in my whole life out of the um out of the glove compartment jumps out and starts shooting into this field and i'm like what is happening? Like, what is happening? Right? I just couldn't even imagine what could possibly be happening. And um, and he gets back in the car and he says, "Well, you know, there was, a, you know, there were a couple coyotes over there, and I just didn't want them to think I, you know, they hadn't, I hadn't seen them." And I was like, looking at him, and my best friend, like, "What is happening?" And she was just like, "You know, she's a country girl. She's like, yeah, that's totally reasonable." And I'm like, uh, "Okay." Well, the funniest. Were the coyotes potentially going to offend something I, on the land, or was this someone? I, I, don't, I don't. That I don't know. That I don't know. Again, remember we're going back twenty years, and sure. things were different. Just protecting all of uh, Texas, I guess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and so, 
So anyway, I told her, I'm like, one day that's going to be in a book. It has not yet made it into a book, but one day it is. Well, the funny thing is, I fast forward many, many years, and um, when we, when um, my husband and I had moved to Austin, we uh, we finally back in Texas for the first time in many years, and her parents had come up. She was living in Austin as well, and her parents had come for Thanksgiving, and I had, I'm like, oh, let's like have your parents come over. Like, I'd love to have them over for dinner Friday night, that kind of thing, because I haven't seen them in years. And they come over, and it's the first time they had met my husband or my children. And her dad starts to tell the same story because he said he got back in the car and he looked in the rearview mirror and he says, "All I saw were these eyes like this big peering back at me." So the irony is, it had had the same impact on him that it had had on me, but for very different reasons. Yeah. So anyway, one day, one day that's going to be an event because he's the sweetest, most delightful man. And um, and yeah, but that was that was total culture shock. So yes, I do. I collect. Found now, you better you better put it in crush because now that you've said it on a podcast, that somebody's oh, book. Somebody's book, right? <laughs> <That's a good laughs> <story>. um, <laughs> so yeah, I uh, I um, I do. I collect moments, and um, and all of my friends know that that at any time something they say might very well show up in a book someday. It's just like hazard of the right hazard <laughs> sure. of the profession. If you're friends with a writer, you got to know this is where it's going to end up someday. If it's really clever, I'm probably going to steal it. And then thank you <laughs> in the acknowledgments. <laughs> and of course, friends are pretty good. Usually I find about uh, always assuming that the villains are them or the heroes are them, depending on how they feel about themselves. Oh, my gosh. Yes. They were like, that was me, right? Like, yeah, sure. Of course it was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I described them as incredibly beautiful, so obviously. So obviously that was you. Obviously, no doubt at all. That was author Tracy Wolf from episode 77. Next up is editor Sarah Jane Slack and author Dorothy Windsor from episode 78. I'm so okay. Uh, you get the submission. You say this. This is the book I've been looking for. I'm excited. You let, uh, do you call Dorothy? Do you email her? Uh, what happens next from there? So from there, it's an email. So uh, first of all, it's the first two chapters. Then it's the um, the full manuscript. Before I send over a um, a publishing contract, I re I request a Skype call because in Spyquill, such a small publisher, um, micro press really, I've got to um, get on with the people I publish effectively and they have to really understand the inspired quill ethos so for example I, I would never publish someone who is I don't know homophobic for example um, and obviously sometimes that doesn't always come out in the writing so you know having having a, a word with your <laughs> <clears throat> yes but, but there's a lot of throat throat clearing with that name um but yeah, so it, it's really interesting how, you know, sometimes you just really hit it off with an author and, and other times you don't. And then I have to think long and hard about, can I work with this person? Um, sometimes with submissions, I also get the, the lovely phrase, it's ready to publish. Ooh. You don't have to do anything to it. It's, you know, publish it and you'll make a million pounds. It's like, well, why don't you publish it then? Um so, you know, working with an author that I can be collaborative with, which is incredibly important at Inspired Quill, you know, working with authors rather than above them. Um, 
so we had a, a Skype conversation. Uh, everything went smoothly. And then I sent a blank copy of the Inspiral contract. And I said, I don't want to hear from you. Don't email me. Don't text me. Don't Skype me for a week. Because what I found in the past is authors get the contract and immediately sign it because they're so excited to have a, a publishing deal. So I stripped that away from them by giving them a blank contract because they can't sign it because their stuff's not on it anyway. Um, and I say, you know, give this to your partner, your lawyer, your pet goldfish, your next door neighbor. If there's any questions that you have or any amendments that you want, let me know and we'll work through them. Um, so transparency is incredibly important to me um, and by extension inspired Quill. Um, so that kind of sits for about a week. Then we get together again and have a discussion about that. And if we both still feel as though um, it's a project that, that we want to, to work on together going forward, then um, I get the author to, to sign the contract and uh, we start the process. So Dorothy, after your pet goldfish looked things over and said, yeah. yes, this is good. Um, yeah. what, what was your experience of the call and what, uh, what, and what advice can you maybe give authors listening who are going to um, experience a similar call about how to smoothly get through that and not throw up any red flags other than, of course, starting with this book is ready. There's nothing you need to do. Go ahead and publish it. <laughs> um, I guess I don't actually have advice. It seemed like a very easy call to me. It was like chatting, you know, and I think. To me, the most important thing you can do in anything like that is to sound like a human being. You know, that's true on Twitter. That's true every place. Sound like a person. Absolutely. You say, you know, and um, I have, I'm comfortable with being edited. You know, I was, I was uh, an academic. I had to publish or perish with articles or things. And I actually edited a scholarly journal for several years. So, and taught copy editing. So I'm happy with have an editor. An editor saves you from, an editor helps you, you know, and, and so that was, that's all fine by me. What it, you know, I read through the, sat down and read through the contract with a magic marker, highlighted the things that I wanted to be sure to pay attention to, consulted with my writer friends who had signed contracts and then came back and uh, I don't think I changed anything. I may have asked a question or two, I just don't remember, but I mean, I may have asked about I don't even remember, but I, you know, you you learn eventually to look at things like um, when do your rights revert to you, you know, stuff like that. And um, so I, it felt like an easy call to me. Did it feel easy to you, sir? It did, but that's just because you're, you're a wonderful human being, so that helps. Oh, well, thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> There's the professional romance. I promise yeah, you got there. there. You go. <laughs> So um, aside from Inspired Quill, whose contract obviously is uh, beyond reproach, um, what are some things that maybe either of you have seen in contracts that you've looked at in the past that writers listening uh, should be aware of? And Dorothy, I'll ask you to continue, and then Sarah will we'll get your input as well. Well, I... Um, I uh, hmm... Uh, for me, the reversion of rights was particularly important because I had had a previous book come out with a small press, and they that that was fine. They were fine, and they were in, um, and uh, they had the book for about a year, and then they went 
out of business. You know, they went belly up. I mean, and if they're a small business, small, life is tough for small businesses. And so it was really, at that point, my rights reverted to me. And I, it, and I have heard horror stories from writers about having to pay to have their rights reverted, about having to buy any copies that the publisher had. And I wanted to avoid that because I had been just, I had just been in that situation, you know, now it turned out all right. The contract that I was working off of turned out all right. I went ahead and self-published that one because why not? It had a cover, it had been edited, put it up. But um, uh, so I guess that was the, I, I can't even remember what else I looked at. Um, I guess you're looking at whether whether royalties are a percentage of, what are the royalties a percentage of? You know, how is that calculated? Um, what is the base for that? Um, uh, for the what uninitiated, kind of what's the what's the good version we want to hear there versus the not so great version? Um, well, I guess I can. I think there's some flexibility there, depending on how the whole thing reads. Sarah, do you want to say? I can't even remember how does my what does my contract say? <laughs> I can't remember. Um, so yeah, the the reversion of rights is is a really big one, and at Inspired Quill. Um, our contract basically says, if you want your rights back, give us a month's notice, which, as far as I'm aware, doesn't really happen anywhere else. But it, it's mm -hmm. kind of so for me, the contract is not just about looping the author into something. It's about accountability from both sides. Um, so the, there's that thing about the, the rights reversion. And in terms of the royalties, so. In most of the industry, and actually with the bigger presses, it's a percentage of the RRP. So, for example, if your book is £10 or dollars and your royalty percentage is um, 10%, then you're, for every book that sold, you would get 10% of $10 as a, as a flat amount. Um, we're print on demand, which means that actually the cost per book the the amount per book that it costs us to send out actually differs book to book, which is in, completely infuriating because Excel spreadsheets are not my forte, but they've had to become my forte. Um, so we actually do percentage of profit. So that could um, mean four pounds per book. It could mean 50 pence per book. Um, and it, it really can be that diverse. What I try to do to make up for that is we have something called loyalty royalties. Um, so for every year that the author is with Inspired Quill, their royalties increase by 5%. So I think now they start at 20% for paperbacks and I want to say 35 or 40 for ebooks. For every year that the author is with us, they increase to 5% until they're earning 50% of paperback royalties. And seventy-five percent of ebook royalties. Is that increased for all books that the loyal author has with you? Yes. Or per okay, great. So for for every book, so for the authors, for example, who have been with us for quite a while and have multiple books, um, that that royalty is is based for the author, not the individual book, um, just to to make it fairer. Um, that was editor Sarah Jane Slack and author Dorothy Windsor from episode 78. 
Next up is the Indianapolis Speed City Sisters in Crime, which is uh, authors Lily Evans, Tony Perona, uh, C.L. Shore, and Janet E. Williams uh, from episode 79. Let's see. Tony, I got your notes on the anthology, so I'm going to ask you to tell us about Murder 2020. Okay. okay. Um, well, uh, the uh, this is the seventh anthology that uh, the Sisters in Crime group has put out, and uh, that I I'm trying to remember who came up with the theme. Lily, do you remember who came up with the theme for it? I don't really remember. I'm I'm thinking Bridget, but was it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was, was Bridget. It Bridget? Yeah. yeah, and and so the idea is is Murder 2020. How do you interpret? 2020 i mean we all know it's the year right but it could also be a large number it could be an eyesight designation 2020 uh some of the creative uh, ways people used it um when they came up with their stories to to submit uh proverbs 2020 i thought that was really interesting somebody went i mean you know not all of the books of the bible have a 20th chapter so he had to go back and figure out which ones had 20 chapters and whether the 20th verse in that 20, you know, 20th chapter made sense to write about. So, I mean, you know, just really interesting how people interpreted, interpreted that. Um, and then, uh, so the three editors are uh, Lily and Michael Dabney and Sherry Held. Uh, they, we all submitted stories uh, and they blindly read I, they read them in a blind sense so that they didn't know who stories they were and selected 17 stories. And, uh, and then that, that became the genesis of the, of the anthology. And did you, did Bridget know when she came up with the idea that 2020 would in fact be the year of the apocalypse? It <laughs> <laughs> was that just a happy coincidence. <laughs> a happy coincidence for her, I think. Uh, but I, I do want to mention that it's really interesting as I've read through, because, you know, I just got a copy of the book and, and had the chance to read through it. And it's really interesting. The first story in the book involves a protest. And that was written a year ago. And, um, yeah, so it was really interesting to read through that. Um, that was uh, uh, that was an Andrea Smith's um, story called Inheritance. And, you know, it's all about... Uh, a protest and a, a murder that occurs uh, in that. And uh, anyway, just I, I thought it was really interesting that she had written about that a year ago. And then here today, we've got uh, the Black Lives Matter protests going on. Mm -hmm. So, And I should mention, anytime we uh, start to talk about current events, although this is our 4th of a July episode, da 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 da, -da oh, fireworks, it's wonderful. Uh, we are recording this June 16th. So anything major that happened with regard to the protests, with regard to COVID-19, or whatever other nonsense 2020 is going to throw at us, we don't know about it. If the aliens landed on June 20th, June 16th, we weren't aware, although the Pentagon had already disclosed them, so we, we should have been expecting it. <laughs> uh, so, Lily, I'm going to throw this next one to you. Uh, because you're an editor, I was looking at the um, guidelines. I've got them up here in front of me uh, for the 2020 anthology. You're looking at stories with a word count between 3,000 and 6,000 words. Uh, you're, they're coming in. Of those, you can pick a maximum of 20 stories. 
I assume that all of Indiana got their mystery story out and you guys got uh, piles of submissions to, to choose from. Um, how, without revealing any, 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 any industry secrets that, that must remain uh, top, top, top secret, uh, what, um, what was the process for winnowing down those submissions and for selecting these 17 of the highest quality stories that could be available in all of Indiana uh, for the anthology? Well, we knew um, starting out about how many stories we wanted. Um, <clears throat> based on the number that was sent in, it wasn't that hard to pick out the 17. The all, okay, I guess I can say that all of them were not uh, perfect <laughs> at the start. So um, the ones that had promised, the ones that we knew readers might enjoy, uh, we sent back to the um, authors to give them a chance to polish up. We told them what our concerns were with the story. Um, uh, we told them, oh, for those that didn't, didn't quite hit the theme, we mentioned that. And so those stories were revamped, some of them. Uh, some just need to be tweaked. And then they came back to us. So, um, you know, we didn't have thousands to go through, thank goodness. But uh, we tried to get everybody in uh, that sent uh, a story in. And that was not hard to do, actually. There were, stories that were sent were really good stories and most of them were constructed very well and also it was fun to come up with the to see the creative way they use that 2020 topic uh, 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 topic because when I saw 2020 I wasn't really sure how that was going to work but uh, the folks adapted to it very well and some very creative stories around it too and Lily why wasn't my story chosen no, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was a mean trick. I apologize. <laughs> I, 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 I would like to just point out for a minute that uh, it was you had to be a member of Sisters in Crime. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. That, that was probably it. I was going to say, that's why we didn't have thousands to sift through. You did have to be a member of the, of the chapter in order to uh, submit a story. And there will be an anthology, I assume, for 2021 or 2022. But I'm assuming you you haven't abandoned hopes uh, to do yet another one, yes? Well, I, can I talk? Uh, yeah, Diana, I Diana Cat uh, and I are talking about possibly being the editors for the next one, and we'd like to do a, a Halloween theme for 2021. Hmm. But that's that's, you know, that's in the talking stages we haven't actually um floated that idea past uh the sisters in crime group yet but but i know diana and i are, are pretty serious about it well, you heard it here exclusive tony perona personally guarantees <laughs> halloween theme for next year's anthology uh, you've just heard all of the wonderful reasons to join the Speed City Sisters uh, uh, Sisters in Crime. Uh, so get signed up now. Get uh, working on your Halloween stories, because that's for sure going to be what, what it is. Write uh, <laughs> your best story and then mess with it a little bit when we find out what the theme will actually be for the, the next anthology. You'll be in good shape. That was the Speed City Sisters in Crime from episode 79. Uh, those are mystery writers Lily Evans, Tony Perona, C.L. Shore, and Janet E. Williams. Uh, next up is public relations expert Sarah Miniacci from Episode 80.
devil's advocate question because I kind of know the answer, but I want to throw it out there to, yeah. to hear your, your take on it. Uh, is why can't I publish the world's best book? Make sure that's up and looking great. And then over the however many next years, I'm going to be going out and about shouting about uh, the other books I'm going to write. Uh, start talking, um, you know, start talking about, look at this wonderful book. There's not that many people here this week, next week, but a year from now, two years from now, one day my readers will come. Why Why is that not a good way to proceed? Because I'm, I'm assuming it's not, but I want to know why it's not. Well, that really is going to depend on what your goals are. And I was recently talking to uh, a writer, a journalist about this, um, and something we, we sort of stumbled on in our conversation was that not every author wants to, I don't want to say wants to be successful because obviously everybody wants to be successful in some capacity. Um, but I have encountered uh, that, that unicorn of authors who is just like, I just write because I like it and I just want to release my books and whoever, you know, comes across them does. And I, I hope they enjoy them. But, you know, if I have 10 readers or 10,000 readers, sort of makes no difference to me. I do this because it's something I, I love. Um, and I'm like, okay, like more, more power to you. Like, that's awesome. Um, you know, I think if you have something that you're that passionate about and that's sort of your attitude towards it, then sure. And maybe by the chances of the fates, something great will happen, but probably not because discoverability is a huge issue in books right now. Um, there are more books being released right now and in, over the past several years than ever before. Like between the self-published books and the traditionally published books in I think 2018, there were over 2 million books published that year. Um, it's again, my, my math, uh, you know, failures are showing, but like it's like something like a book every like 10 minutes is, is, is being published. Um, and that, you know, spans the gamut from your major New York Times bestsellers who are a very, very small piece of that pie um, to lots of self-published ebook only projects to stuff in the middle. So if you're just going to let your product like languish on Amazon or online retailers, nobody is ever going to find you back there. Um, it's basically like hanging out in a super crowded airport back when, you know, those were a thing. <laughs> I don't know if we'll ever see a super crowded airport again. Um, but it's like hanging out at a super crowded airport in like a dark, you know, corridor, like just sort of sitting with your head down and like hoping that someone comes in like, taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, you know, your flight, your flight's boarding. Um, that's not going to happen. No one's going to find you. Uh, you're just going to sit there until I don't know what happens to you. Security kicks you out. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there just there are too many books um, that unless by some absolute miracle, someone buys your book, firstly, someone finds your book, and then they buy it, and then they actually read it. And those are like three steps that are very unlikely to happen at that point. Um, but 
presuming all of those steps happen. And then the fourth step is they read it and then they tell people about it and they're like super influential um, and people listen to them. So this is basically like you, you might as well just play the, the Powerball, you know, lottery, because it's, it's more likely that you will win that than that that will happen. Um, you, you could do things like, write the book and write a great book and categorize it correctly on Amazon and set the pricing competitively and all of that stuff is going to, is going to help maybe, but the competition is fierce uh, for readers attention. And there are only so many books that readers can read. And I'm constantly astounded by many of the reviewers and readers and influencers I work with who read like five books a week and I have no idea how they do it. Um, I feel like very accomplished if I read one book a week. Um, so <laughs> I'm like, oh, I am so such a fast reader and so smart. Um, but you know, those are super voracious readers. So those, those people do exist, but even for them, um, that nowhere near comes close to the sheer volume of, of books that are being released. So you have to do something to, to find your audience. And I'm not saying that it needs to be traditional earned PR, um, and media. And there are many, many things that authors can do independently that don't cost a penny, um, to get the word out about their books. You know, PR is just one of them. Um, so if you, if you need to hear me talk more about why that's a really terrible idea, um, I would be happy to, to talk you off the ledge at any time. So uh, please go to smithpublicity.com and find my email. And <laughs> <laughs> go ahead and uh, send, send Sarah your, your best arguments for why it will happen this one time for you. Uh, and, and if she has time, she sounds pretty busy, but if she has time, she'll, she'll shoot them down and, and give you fresh insight as to why. Uh, you're better off playing the Powerball. I love that. <laughs> that was very specific. Very much. Uh, uh, if, if that doesn't get the message through, I don't think anything will. That was public relations expert Sarah Miniacci from episode 80. Next up is author Paula Chase from episode 81. I've got to ask about COVID-19 because this day and age, that's just silly not to bring that up. Like, what's the thing we're all thinking about? Yeah. Uh, so anytime we talk about it, I always mention we are recording this July 9th. Anything that happens beyond July 9th when this airs, we, we're not talking about it because we don't know what's happened yet. Um, but how has uh, quarantine impacted your writing life? And how do you foresee that impacting your book launch coming up? And how are you going to be working around that, although I realize I'm asking you about September, that's, that might as well be 10 years from now with yeah, the way yeah. the news moves. You know, um, when I, I made the comment about uh, how my uh, ninth book is first person and how that was a challenge for me. So what I, what I didn't indicate was that quarantine definitely impacted that. Um, I, my day job switched to remote in March. And so we had to get used to, um, you know, working from home and granted what we do is easy to do from home, but still that whole uh, kind of not having that separation from my day job to my home was huge because I was on deadline. And so normally I'd be able to write at lunch or 
you know, kind of come home, have dinner with my family, and then, you know, sit down and write for another couple of hours, about eight o'clock. But by being home all the time, one would think, oh, well, that's cool. Like you're home all the time. But I had no separation. And I found that my day job just constantly just kept creep, 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 creeping longer each day, making it harder for me to write because I'd just be too tired. So quarantine made it tough, tough to get that book finished. And um, it was due in May and I ended up having to ask for an extension because right, if quarantine wasn't hard enough, um, when George Floyd was killed, it, I mean, it just really, you know, just the thinking about the humanity of Black people and how we are still trying to fight to be seen as human really messed me up for a couple of weeks, and I just couldn't focus on the book. So um, it did finally get finished, but I do think that, you know, when we talked earlier about me being able to usually write a tighter book, I, I think this is probably the first time that um, it's probably not as tight. And I, I remember saying to my agent, I said that to my agent and she said, so it took a pandemic and racial tensions before you were, you know, not able to deliver a book. Who would have thought? So, I'm, you know, she's like trying to tell me to show myself some grace, you know, but it, she, she's right. But it, trying to write right now has, has been hard on all of us, you know, on, on any of us, but um, there are other things we want to focus on. So um, quarantine did impact that, but um, I don't, I don't really worry too much about how it's going to impact Turning Point because there's nothing I can do about it. And, you know, I'm going to continue to do what I've been doing, which is um, networking, with educators because they are the ones who get my books to people for the most part. So it's important to me that I um, that I stay in touch with them and that I, you know, understand what challenges they have when it comes to um, getting books in the hands of their reader and their readers. So I'm more focused on that. I mean, the book is going to do what it's going to do. So we'll see. Well, um, you mentioned it, and we've, I've, I've talked around uh, the edges, um, uh, but obviously um, uh, Black Lives Matter is a tremendous movement right now. And in some ways it feels, uh, every time I record an episode of the show, I think, well, is this the most effective use of my time right now talking about books and authors when should be finding a way to support uh, Black Lives Matter and that movement? Um, what are you doing or what have you been doing to support uh, Black Lives Matter? Yeah, um, I've always tried to use my voice to advocate for inclusion and um, whether that's inclusion, um, racial inclusion, or whether that's not forgetting, you know, our 13 to 15 year olds. So that's just... Um, you know, sort of my, my platform, that's my passion, um, is to make sure these things happen. The difference since uh, the Black Lives Matter movement has like really been in the forefront the last couple of months has been to make sure that people understand that part of being against racism and um, being anti and getting rid of anti-blackness is to make sure that you're exposing yourselves 
two things other than black pain. I have used the term black pain porn before when I'm referring to things like showing the video over and over again of this man being killed um, or just, you know, constantly exposing not just black kids, but all kids to books where the black people are always constantly struggling enough, enough. And so for me, it, the only thing that's changed in my messaging is to remind people that one of the easiest ways to, um, you know, to do your part is to do things and expose yourself to remind yourself of black people's humanity. So I haven't really changed what I do. Um, I've just tried to make people understand that there are ways that they can impact the children that they nurture um, with a few very simple changes to what they put in front of those children. So what are some easy changes that, that, that people listening could make? Well, first is exactly what I said, you know, enough with the black pain. We've got to um, look for and amplify um, images, stories, experiences of black joy so that people see the whole black person. Um, when we're talking about trying to make kids in particular more empathetic, you can't do that if you're constantly only showing the black pain aspect. There's just so much more to it. So, you know, being able to put uh, the right material in front of a, diver a diverse amount of material because the struggle is real. But I just mean making sure that there are, you know, three black books, three black joy books for every two books that may be about struggle um, or social justice, just mix it up a little bit. Um, and uh, being able to have very real conversations um, with one another about um, the, the, the unlearning that so many of us are going to have to do moving forward. So I know sometimes it seems like it's, it's difficult but it's, it's not. And it, it just kind of starts with that recognition that we want to be recognized for our whole experience. You know, the, the history books tend to focus on slavery and then civil rights as if nothing happened in between and nothing has happened since. So it's about breaking that mindset and especially when it involves um, talking to kids. So if you've sat down and you've watched Fruitvale Station, good. You've had that experience. <laughs> now, break out uh, Flavor of Love. A couple of episodes of that. That's that's some black excellence on display that will <laughs> elevate that moment. I'm not sure if I want to call that black excellence, but okay. <laughs> you know what? Creed 1 and 2. Uh, get yourself the Black Panther just to make it a Ryan Coogler marathon. You'll be fine. <laughs> That was author Paula Chase from episode 81. Next up is author Preeti Cheaper from episode 82. I've, I've seen footage of you interviewing the Spider-Man far from home. <laughs> I ate my heart out in jealousy. Oh my God, that looks like the most fun thing you could ever do. 
Well, you know what? Let's start there. Was it a fun thing to do, or were were you uh, were your heart in your throat, and that it's a fun thing to have remember having done? It is one of the most stressful experiences of my life because you know I do like for uh, geek culture stuff. I do a lot of like commentary and like that side of things. I don't do straight interviews as frequently, except during conventions, which is like a whole different ballgame because everybody's kind of like. We've been here for a million years and we're never going to leave this convention. We're all in it together. Um, a, a a junket is a very, very different experience. I was in, they flew us into London, which was amazing. But you're in London for like 48 hours and it's like packed schedule. And you're just, and these poor, poor cast members are sitting in a room just talking to people five minutes at a time for like nine hours a day. And it's. So it's like this wild experience where it's still also like really cool because um, also I wrote a book associated with the movie, which is part of the reason I got to go do it. Uh, I wrote a tie-in novel to Spider-Man Far From Home called Peter and Ned's Ultimate Travel Journal, which is the coolest thing I've ever done because Spider-Man is hands down probably my favorite character of all time. Uh, and so they send you over and I was like kind of doing double duty both as an author and and as the interviewer and... Uh, it was just really fun. Like, everyone was really nice. I had interviewed Jacob Batalon at Comic-Con a year earlier, or year and, year and a half earlier, 2017, maybe. Um, and he remembered me, because he's the nicest person ever, so that was really nice. I don't know if he remembered me or my glasses, but he remembered something. Take then, it, whatever it is. I know, right? <laughs> he was like, hey, I know you. And I was like, do you? Are we friends? <laughs> Because I'm telling everyone we are. <laughs> uh, I was actually way more stressed out. You know, uh, meeting the cast, the main cast was super exciting, of course, because they're all amazing. But I was super stressed out about meeting Jake Gyllenhaal and Samuel L. Jackson. Like, I watched Donnie Darko, I think, three times in a row when I turned 18. I, like, was like, this is the most, this is, like, the deepest movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, and so I was really, really freaking out about having to sit across from Jake Gyllenhaal and be coherent and like be a person who can speak sentences. But you have like crush feelings for him or just fan feelings about Donnie Darko? He's uh, I, I mean, it's, it's funny. Cause it's, it's one of those things like you don't expect to like, if I had told my 18 year old self that, you know, in, however many years you're going to be interviewing this person as part of your professional life, I think she would have fainted. So I was like very nervous because of that association, that very strange kind of like, I knew you, like I was excited about you when I was young and, and it was like a formative moment. Um, and that's hard to contend with sometimes as an adult, in this space where you have to be able to like speak to people that you have all these like kind of feelings for in terms of your nostalgia and like part of who you are and how you became the person you are. Cause you know, now as an adult, you watch Donnie Darko and you're like, there's a lot happening in that movie. <laughs> a lot of, <laughs> a lot of choices were made narratively that you're, you know, <laughs> sure. Um, but as a kid, you're like, oh, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And it's going to inform the artistic choices I make for probably quite a few years. So that was just a really interesting place to be in. Um, I did well, make her played, laugh. Uh, Mad World over every video you made. Very cool. <laughs> uh, I'll put on my like drive through records t-shirt and just be sad. 
Uh, no, I did get, I did make him laugh once during the interview, which was like a very big deal for me. Uh, and Samuel L. Jackson also was like super, super cool and super nice. But I embarrassed myself at the end, which was a good story. It's very charming. But at the time, I was so mortified. I like thanked them for the interview. And then I stood up and I hit my head on the boom mic. <laughs> and Jake leaned forward. He was like, oh. And I apologized by saying, sorry, first junket. As if that was a reason for me to lose <laughs> my like bearings. And he laughed so hard he bent over in his chair and I like ran out of the room. <laughs> <laughs> that was your first ever junket with the Spider-Man cast? Yep. First ever junket. You didn't like warm up with some indie movie or <laughs> first junket? Very and I was like messaging all the like freelance friends I have to be like, Are you going? Are you going? Are you going? And everyone's like, I'm not going. So I didn't even know anyone else who was gonna be there. <laughs> <laughs> but it was so cool. It was really it was a fun experience. It is like literally you sit outside, the publicist is like, you have two minutes, go in. And then there's someone sitting in the corner like, go, 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 like twirling their finger at you to be like, get your questions out. Okay, wrap it up. And you're like, I go, oh my God. <laughs> okay, so there's not really a lot of time to be like, Samuel Jackson, unbreakable change my life. Let me tell you. Cause he's no, <laughs> no, 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 no. You literally, I think you had like four minutes with each, with like all the teams. So you had like four minutes and then four minutes. And you're kind of like, when I walked in to Jake and Samuel Jackson, <laughs> like, I mean, Jake, like, we're friends. <laughs> when with, you <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> when I walked in, uh, Samuel Jackson was like, whoa, let me, let me look at your tattoos. And I was like, what? And then the publicist was like, you got to ask your questions. <laughs> so did you walk in there with all the questions carefully prepared and memorized for just such a... Uh, I, had, I had cards. I had, uh, yeah, I had cards, which I was like, I I was very thoughtful about it. I'm also like a nerd. So I was like, I got to do my homework. I got to have good questions. They've been doing this for hours. I don't want them to think I'm basic. <laughs> Fair enough. And then, of course, you get to meet Spider-Man himself, which I assume because you've written the literal, the, the, the book to go with the movie, that Tom Holland must be your favorite Spider-Man, or would I be incorrect yeah, in that assumption? He is, I thought he was great. I, I really like his iteration of, of Peter Parker a lot. I think it's very funny because my favorite Spider-Man is actually like the, the PS4 Spider-Man game, I think has hands down my favorite version of Spider-Man that exists in media outside comics. Because my favorite is the kind of like mid 20s, like doesn't have his crap together, like makes a lot of bad decisions. That's my favorite Peter Parker because I find him to be someone that I can identify with very heavily. But that said, Tom Holland, I think, is just such a sweet, sweet Peter Parker. Like the, the, he's not, he's kind of the straight man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which I think is very funny because, because Spidey is such like a quip master. And it was something they kept telling me in my edits for the book where they were like, no, he is, this is not that Peter. Like, you have to remember which Peter you're writing. And I'm like, oh, right. Um, but I thought Tom Holland was great. And he was, of course, like, he's such a baby. And I'm a grown adult. So, like, I walked in and he was using the restroom when I came into the room. And he comes out of the restroom and he, like, shakes my hand. I was like, hi, I'm Tom. <laughs> I was like, ah. <laughs> That was 
was author Preeti Cheever from episode 82. Next up is author Annie Sullivan from episode 83. So when, uh, when did you know that there was going to be a sequel? Did you always have one in the back of your mind as you were working on Touch of Gold? Was that after the fact? No, I, um, so I'm a pantser. When I write, that means I fly by the seat of my pants. I don't plot my books. So I literally got to the end of the book. I wrote the last scene and I was like, huh, okay, this actually needs a sequel. So that was when I knew. Um, now I try to plan a little bit better. I at least try to know going in that like, this will have a sequel. This will not have a sequel. So like Tiger Queen, standalone. Um, it's actually way easier to just write standalones. I know everyone loves series, but um, I kind of like one and done a lot. It just, uh, I like to enter a world, give you a story and then pull back. And I mean, I have some ideas for some other series, but um, it's all about finding the time. So. Gotcha. So this, you had the idea possibility but then after the book came out and everyone said, my God, this is the book we've all been waiting for. And, and the world stopped and everyone was reading. You remember, esteemed audience, you were there. <laughs> uh, so that happened. And then it's, oh, my God, we, we, we have to get a sequel right away. Or at what point do you go from there could be a sequel to I'm definitely writing the sequel? Um, I had kind of a different timeline than most authors had. So I actually had Tiger Queen already written by that point because they tell you. I don't know why they, I mean, I know why they tell you this, but they always say like, if you sell your first book in a series, don't write the second one until the first one sells because you go through so many edits and things that it almost makes the second one, like almost not even worth having written, if that makes sense. Um, and so like, it's a lot of wasted time. So they tell you not to write the second one until the first one sells. Well, in the meantime, I had written Tiger Queen, right? And so Tiger Queen was like ready to go. And they're like, do we wait like eight months? And let Annie write this next book and get that edited and everything? Or do we just get Tiger Queen out now? So we got Tiger Queen out and then that gave me time to write the sequel. So actually what they did is, so I had a one book deal for A Curse of Gold, or sorry, for A Touch of Gold. And then they did a two book deal for a touch of, for Tiger Queen and A Curse of Gold. So that was kind of like lumped together. It's like, hey, we want both. And I was like, sweet, awesome. Oh, it worked out nicely. Okay, so then you got a book to promote yeah. and time to write the sequel. And while I will say A Curse of Gold does tie up Princess Cora's story, there are some loose ends, I will say. I would think if nothing else, spinoff novels uh, would yes. could be an offering. <laughs> I love spinoff novels. I think those are fun. Like, I mean, because this, especially as you will see in A Curse of Gold, this becomes a very rich world um, with a lot of new characters, um, a lot of kind of new insights and in how this world works and the people in it um, and the variety of people in it. So I think um, that opens a lot of doors um, as well that I would, I would love to explore, even if it's just in like a little mini story or like a little giveaway incentive or something like that. So how do you keep track of your world from one novel to the sequel, especially since you had another one in between? And I'm assuming that there were at least some revisions uh, going on with the uh, a touch of gold from your original story to the, the final version that was even more superior. Um, but I know me personally, I get a couple of different versions going in my head and I got to remember which one <laughs> esteemed audience actually got. <laughs> I have to yeah. keep all those details straight. Sometimes it can be hard and like, I, I never reread my books, but when I 
was working on the sequel, I would go back and spot check a few things just to make sure they're wearing the same color of this or the same thing as that, or they wear this the same way, or the hair is, you know, mentioned as the same color, all those kind of things. Um, those are the only things I would go back and spot check in the novel. Um, but I keep a lot of it up here. Like I told you, this is why I'm fine being a hermit because like I got like 40 different worlds stored in here at any given time in my mind for those of you who can't see where I'm pointing. Um, and so yeah, <laughs> I keep a lot of it all up here. This is a very busy place to be in my mind. Um, I'm not good at writing things down. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> I know. <laughs> see and it's so funny i went on tour with um lauren mancy who wrote the memory thief and she is a complete plotter to like a t like she has like color-coded post-it notes of what happens in her novel and i'm sitting here like the kids are like okay so she has post notes and outlines everything and they're like they're like miss sullivan because they all call me miss sullivan and like miss sullivan how do you write a novel and all the little kids ask me and i'm like uh i just write it and like Whatever comes to me, I just write. And they're like, uh, okay. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. Does that make your uh, revision process take longer? Or are you pretty good about revising as you go? I pretty much revise as I go. Like, I can't move forward in my novel unless what comes before it is, like, perfect. Um, meaning that, like, I won't leave characters unnamed. I won't, like, if I realize something on, in chapter six that affects what happens in chapter four, like, I realize, oh, the character's actually this way instead of, like, this, I will just go back and start again and write to that point. And then I might get to, to, to like, chapter eight and realize in chapter eight that the something someone says is, like, oh, that's a really cool thing. I need to foreshadow that earlier or put that in earlier. And then I'll go back to chapter four and then I'll write it again and reread through it all the way to chapter eight to make sure that that little thread is now perfectly woven through and not just like plunk in there. Like I write a very clean first draft. Like my first draft is pretty much like almost ready to go to my agent. I usually have like my sister and one beta reader read it first. Um, oh, sounds efficient. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good word for me. I strive to be efficient on all fronts. And so like, I, I like to tell people my writing style is like Happy Gilmore, you know, the Adam Sandler movie. He's the golfer. Of course. And hates putting but he's really good at hitting the ball really really far the first time that's me I'm, I'm really good at hitting the ball really really far and getting really close to a hole in one but then when I have to putt I hate it so going back to the Lauren Mancy example because we shared the same editor Lauren Mancy and I and um she would get her edit letters and cry tears of joy because she's like I get to revise it's my favorite part and I'd be over here being like I get my edit letters and I just cry and they're not tears of joy, guys. <laughs> so that just shows you I hate the like the putting, the like, let's tap it in there, let's make it a little better. And I'm like, no, no. I'm just like hole hole in one, one and done. We're good. Uh, I mean, obviously <laughs> perfect, I have I'm not doing fun. it. <laughs> right, right. I'm like, it's good enough. And they're like, no, it's not. And I'm like, all right, fine. <laughs> I definitely do revise, guys. Um, and I highly recommend listening to your editor. Um, but I, I don't know, it's just that's just how I write. I can't like, oh, if you made me like color code my novel, I don't even know what I would do. I would just give up. I'd be like, that just sounds horrible. Like, I don't want to be a writer anymore. I know. I'm like <laughs> sitting here thinking about it. I'm like, oh. there's just like no joy in that. See, I think that's, I was discussing with some with this with someone the other day. And if I plot my novel ahead of time, 
it's still fun for me because I know what happens. But if I write it as I go along, then it's just as fun for me as it is for the reader. And if I'm having fun, you're having fun, right? Um, and if it's new to me, it's like, oh, that's cool. I didn't see that coming because I didn't know it was coming. Like, so. Fair enough. So, yeah, that's just, that's how I roll, guys. Take it or leave it. May not work for everybody, but it works for me. Uh, should we name check your uh, editor since so she's done such hard work and making sure that the uh, books are from close to perfect hole-in-one to all the way perfect hole-in-one? I've had a few over the years, but the most recent one was um, Hannah Van Bells. Van Hells? I can't even say her last name right. Um, and Jackie Alberta, she helped a lot too at Blank, so definitely thankful for them. And um, for my agent, Krista Heschke at McIntosh and Otis, um, she's always a good champion of mine and who... Uh, reads things and my sister who finds all my stupid mistakes well the one of those names that esteemed audience needs to worry about is uh, miss heshke who was a previous guest on the show go find that episode it's incredible (laughs) yes yes i love her so check her out if you're querying definitely like you can drop my name be like oh i heard annie selvin on middle grade ninja and she said you were a great agent you can love that yeah, yeah. Say Andy Sullivan said this, and then I heard your interview, and uh, basically what I'm getting at is middle grade ninja is amazing. Anyway, here's my pitch. <laughs> I, mean, I always look forward to coming on here because I know we're gonna have fun. Well, I saw you uh, said something that I wanted to ask you about. Uh, you saw this, said this. I think I don't know if it was Twitter or Facebook, one of the two. I'm actually on a forced uh, social media diet right now. So I uh, went uh, back on and, and, and risk getting re-addicted just to prepare for this, this interview. I've taken uh, Facebook and Twitter completely off my phone, and I have dedicated times during the day where I open them up. Otherwise, I'm closing them. I'm done. I don't need to wake up every morning and read the anxiety of the whole world, and that's how I start my day. It's terrible. But I uh, went into that that awful world to stalk you a little bit and see what you've been up to. <laughs> so they have interesting things to ask you about. And I saw that you are on chapter, or you were, as, as of this post, you're on chapter seven of a new project. And you said, I have this thing where if I can get past chapter eight, I can usually finish writing the story because it means I've got enough of the world built and it's functioning as it should. How does that work? Yes. I mean, you pretty much said that's how it works for me. Um, so when I'm writing about, again, because I'm a pantser, so I don't plot this out, I don't know the rules of the world or anything. I don't even know my characters until they appear on the page and start talking to each other. And that's how I discover who they are. Um, and so the beginning definitely takes me a lot longer to write um, because I'm learning the world, I'm learning the characters, the rules, how these people interact, how they feel, what their motivation is, um, and who's standing in their way of that motivation. Um, and so if I can get to chapter eight, I can usually go all the way. Um, I've had a lot of stories that I've abandoned at chapter three, four, five, six. Um, But if I can get to that chapter eight, it usually means that enough of that world is working together. Because again, like I said, I go back and reread and reread to get to like forward. Um, It means that like everything is still working. Whereas if I get there and I'm just like, this is not working. I usually don't know how to fix it. And it's at a point where something is just irrevocably wrong. It could be the character is not right, setting the world, something is not right, and I can't fix it. Which sounds like terrible, you should be able to fix it, but sometimes it's just something is, is wrong. And sometimes I might go back to those stories and rework them 
and, and save them in a way. Um, but yeah, if I can get to chapter eight, it's like, okay, we've got a pretty solid world. We've spent 20,000 words, one fourth of the book. Um, Cause that's where I am right now. I'm at 20,000, 21,000 something words. And I'm on chapter seven, still on chapter seven, guys, it's fine. <laughs> Gonna get to chapter eight. Gonna get there. Um, but yeah, if I can get to that, then it's like, okay, we've got a solid world. We've got solid characters that we've met. And if we haven't found our motivation and our villain and everything by this point, then we're not going to find them. So all that to say, for me, chapter eight is a, is a very important turning point. And it's a self-imposed turning point, but it's kind of a mental thing as well. It's like, okay, like, look, I've got a chapter eight. Like, it's fine. So. Is there something so. of, uh, if, uh, if I were to stop now, I'd be throwing away a full eight chapters and 20,000 <laughs> words. That's way too much time to be sunk. <laughs> I've definitely done that. I've done a few where it's like I got to like chapter six, chapter seven. I've done a few where I got to chapter seven, started all over, wrote it again, got to like chapter seven, wasn't right, started all over again and rewrote it. And I did actually finish that book eventually, but need some revisions, which again, not my strong suit. So <laughs> this shiny new project was like, write me, write me. Because this other one was like, revise me. And I was like, I'm going to go over here and write this one. So, <laughs> yeah, that one's going to sit for a little while. <laughs> My agent's probably like, what happened to that one? I'm like, what? Which one? I can't hear you. There's a bad connection somewhere. <laughs> that was author Annie Sullivan from episode 83. Next up is author Marcy Kate Connolly from episode 84. Uh, pivoting a little bit to fantasy because I know that you teach uh, workshops or have given workshops mm -hmm. on on creating magic systems. Mm -hmm. and I was wondering what kind of a taste can you give can you give us for free, uh, and feel free to, to use the magic that in, in Twin Daggers as an example. Um, yeah, I did. I did a um, a workshop on that at a Goodreads Comic Con a couple years ago, and um, let's see one of the I think the most important thing to remember about magic is that you do have, it does have to make sense. Um, I like to joke, the thing I like about fantasy, writing fantasy versus contemporary is that I can just make stuff up for what's going to be different. I just say it's magic. Um, but it does have to make sense. There has to be logic to it. There has to be rules and you have to obey them or have a really good reason for breaking them that actually makes sense within the scope of your world. Um, and that's not necessarily an easy task. Um, and that's kind of something when I write, write, primarily fantasy all i've had published so far has been fantasy and every magic system is a little different and it always takes some time to like go through and think about what are the rules what is this magic like is it an energy is it something almost sentient is it what is it what is it how does it come to people how is what is its origins what's the sort of backstory of the magic um and thinking about that and brainstorming a lot of those things um and i kind of have these like templates that i'll go through where i'll like jot down notes about things um, usually in the beginning stages of plotting. I'm very much a plotter. I love to sit in my writing cave and make things terrible for my characters. So much fun. Um, you sit down and do like a full outline start to finish before you get started on the actual uh, writing? I, I use... I, I, have a, <laughs> I have a brain vomit and then I, <laughs> that I do where I'm like in the idea stage, like all these random things that could happen that I put in one word doc. And then I, um, I use Blake Snyder's Save the Cat Beat Sheets and I use that to plot my stories. Um, I wish I'd found them years ago because I think the first time I used it was for Monstrous. And had I used them, 
on those previous six books, maybe some of them would get published. Um, my very first book that I mentioned earlier had this like 10 page outline with all kinds of meandering tangents going off in all sorts of random fun places that did not actually move the plot forward. Obviously that's why it did not get published. Um, but now I have a much more streamlined plots um, using the, the beat sheets that really helped me focus um, and figure out where all this random sort of like brain vomit in the word document should go. Um, so that's what I used to plot. And, um, and then I use Scrivener to write. So that's, and I also find that the, the beat sheets is really helpful for writing a synopsis because you've basically got the bones of it right there. You just kind of got to copy and paste it into another Word document and flesh it out a little bit more. And I hate synopses. They're the worst. Um, but having the, they're so bad. Um, but having the, um, the beat sheet there is actually really helpful and does like half the work for you, which is great. Um, Surely at this point, I mean, you're, you're Marcy Kate Connolly. If uh, somebody says, can I have a, a synopsis? Just say no. I, oh, yeah. I've written this many it does not work that plot. way. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> it does not work that way. Um, because also, you know. You have to sell before you get to that point. I, way I, I, more I, I, than I have. That's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, not, not yet. Um, so it's a magic. Um, you have to have some kind of a, a a system for the magic, an actual system. And one of the things that I did when I did this workshop a couple years ago, I've only done it once, but it was so much fun. I would love to do it again. I hope somebody asked me to, because I have it on my website. I'm like, I can give this workshop. It was really fun. Um, we kind of went through this whole thing together as, as a group with, with the people who are there of building our own magic system. And I had these, all these templates and like questions you ask and things to think about. Um, and I, I don't have it in front of me, so I can't tell you exactly what all those questions are right now. Um, but things about, you know, like what I was saying before, is it an energy? What is it like? What are the rules? Who has it? Why do they have it? Um, is there, is it, um, a spiritual type of power? Is it a random power? And are there different levels of power and all sorts of things like to go through all this and what are the, the consequences of it? What's, what happens when you use the power? Do you use, is it limitless or do you take, is there a price? Because there has to be a price for magic um, of some kind. Um, and, and lots of things to think about to kind of really flesh this out. And we went through this whole thing, making this whole magic system um, as a group. And it was really fun. Um, I have terrible handwriting, but I had this like whiteboard and was writing all this of like flipping papers and stuff. It was really fun. It was a lot of fun. So, um, but you have to have a system for it. It has to make sense. And there's a lot of things you have to think about, especially like the price in particular is an important thing to think about. Or maybe there is no price. And if not, why not? Does that make your power limitless? And lots of lots of fun things to think about. So what's a what's a common price that you would have to pay for magic? Uh, blood. Blood's a price. In a lot of in a lot of fantasy novels, the blood price is a thing you have to do. Um, in others, um, it's um, uh, I'll use Monstrous as an example. So in Monstrous and Ravenous, magic is like kind of a living thing in a way. It's not quite sentient, but it's sentient enough that only people who already are magic can handle it. And if and there's an, there's an evil wizard in the book that nobody can kill because he's the last wizard. And if you kill a wizard, the magic will try to go into the, the user, the other person who killed them. Basically, whoever conquers the person with the magic, they'll want to go into that person because they think it's more powerful, but it will just consume them in flames because it'll just 
totally burn them up if they don't have magic already in them. Um, so that's kind of this, this sort of a price of magic is you can take on more and more and more if you already have magic. But if you don't, it will literally kill you because um, you cannot handle the magic. Um, whereas sometimes there's more less obvious prices. For example, in uh, my book, Shadow Weaver, I'll show the lovely cover here. Um, it's about a girl who um, uh, can talk to her shadow and her shadow can talk back, essentially. Um, but she also has the magical power of shadow weaving, which means she can actually create things from the shadows. She can craft things from the shadows. And using her magic doesn't necessarily take a physical toll on her, um, but her magic is kind of weird and creepy. And it takes a toll in sort of the price of her family, where her family thinks she's kind of weird. She wants to play and talk to her shadow all day instead of like people. And she gets kind of ostracized. Um, so there's different types of prices that you could have. Um, in Twin Daggers, the price is more, it's a physically exhausting thing. Their magic actually resides in their blood. Um, and so they have to basically hone it like a muscle. So they have to practice and practice and they train all the time. They train with like running and using magic and casting spells at the same time. Because if they don't, they could be caught off guard and they could be, you know, out of breath and they can't sing the words of this incantation. So they can't cast a spell to defend themselves. Um, so it's much more of a physical, physical thing and physical toll in Twin Daggers than some of my other books. So can they be like a video game? Oh, my meter is almost depleted. Let me grab <laughs> a, a pellet yeah. or something, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't be able to really grab a pellet, but like you'd have to like, it's kind of like you wouldn't like, run a marathon without working up to it so they the the twins in the in the book become stronger because they've they've worked at honing their magic and honing their their skill their spell casting as well as their um their physicality of like training and running and fighting and all these other things while using magic as well so if there was no price if we just did i don't know um a superman character but we took away the kryptonite just like all the power all the time this is a facetious question, but what would the story problem for you, the writer, arise as a result of that decision? It would be boring because if they have limitless power, they can do anything. They can solve any problem. So that's also part of why you need limits on magic in some way, shape or form is you need conflict. And if they can solve everything with a snap of their fingers, you have no conflict and you have no story. There you go. Straightforward to the point. Beautiful. <laughs> Um, this is the uh, shortest answer I've given you yet. Sorry, I'm long-winded. <laughs> in case you're wondering why some of my books are long, so. <laughs> not at all. We like uh, we like long <laughs> on this show. My audience, um, they live for it. Oh, good. <laughs> they good want to hear everything that you've got to share. I'm on the right uh, podcast. Uh, written so many fantasy novels. Do you have you decided if you you know a genie shows up, whatever, uh, Will Smith appears uh, in blue uh, and says, "I will give you one of the powers you've written about." What power would you want for yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Um, hmm. I think I'd probably want Asa's magic because it can impact more things and it's more versatile than some of my other magics. Um, like the magic in like Shadow Weaver in that world, it's specific things like shadow weaving or light singing um, or green growing, that kind of a thing is very specific. Whereas um, in in Twin Daggers, the Magi, the Magi faction, um, they can 
basically use their magic on anything in any kind of organic matter, anything that has, is alive. Um, except Asa and Xandria, not a spoiler because they tell you on the first like couple pages, they, they are special because they can actually use their magic on the machines as well. Um, so they can use their magic on anything. So it almost appears like their magic could be limitless, but it's not. Um, there, are, there are ramifications and restrictions on that as well too, but that you find out later. No spoilers. Yeah, but if you were, I mean, if you were going to give it to yourself, you're not worried about the conflict. <laughs> totally limitless. No restrictions. Right. I'm happy to be boring and have tons of magic. That would be great. That would be fantastic. People come <laughs> like, around like, ah, oh, your story is kind of tedious to me. Oh, that's your problem. I'm great. <laughs> like, I'm fine with that. Like, my toddler used to go to sleep. Boom, you're asleep. You, you nap for three hours because I have cast that napping spell on you so I can write. That would be great. Oh, I just got a great idea. A little another hour. <laughs> yep. Keep sleeping. Sleep is good for you. It's fine. Magic. If I could just get my child to have a snooze button. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> that would be amazing. I love him to pieces, but oh my god, that would be amazing. <sighs> that was author Marcy Kate Connolly from episode eighty-four. Next up is literary agent Kiana Nguyen from episode eighty-five. Something yeah. else that uh, I saw that I really wanted to ask you about of while, while we're talking about storm. I have so many questions for you. Um, but one that I, I, I'm dying to ask you is you had said that you didn't want to read a standard coming out story. So my question for you is, one, if, if I could have you first define what is a standard coming out story and then give us some insight as how to make that better. How can authors mm -hmm. dig deeper and make that something that would turn your head that you'd be interested in? Yeah, of course. Okay. It's just, this is me. Um, even though I grew up on Lifetime and I love really sad stories about people <laughs> experiencing really sad things, um, coming out is just, we've, we have been inundated in our society of like really sad and depressing coming out stories where the person is experiencing like homophobia and this is um, manifesting within physical and emotional and mental abuse, um, even before people know that they're they're queer or and after, um, and they're usually in small towns. Um, they're usually and just getting either beaten down by family or like a popular person at their school, and it's just really really rough. And I don't know how much farther further. See, this is also I'm not a copy editor. Um, with this, with this uh, specific story. But all that said is it is still a very true reality for a lot of people and a lot of people particularly who are going through the phase of questioning and this is at any age, um, their identity, um, these types of stories can really help ground people. Um, for that reason, I like to, I like stories that have queer people being queer and just enjoying their lives. This doesn't mean that I want the world to ignore the fact that homophobia and again, like even racism and other prejudices exist, but we also need to share worlds where that aren't defined by the trauma that your identity can cause. Um, so how to make coming out um, stories a little bit deeper, I think, one, I'd like to see so many, and this is not the fault of writers either, um, because a lot of times writers write what they know, and a lot of people who tell coming out stories may be from backgrounds from smaller towns where 
it is harder. Um, and these are stories that also publishing gravitates to in terms of marginalized identities. It's almost like they really love the trauma of it all. That's what brings the awards, I guess. Um, but I think a really great example of a coming out narrative that wasn't necessarily about coming out, but it had that factor in it is a movie. It's a Netflix um, that was on Netflix called The Half of It. Um, that was written by an Asian American writer about a, a young girl who helps this kid <laughs> write uh, love letters to the girl he has a crush on. Unbeknownst to him, she has a crush on her as well. The story isn't really about um, the girl eventually getting with the love interest. Um, it's really much a story about friendship and seeing each other um, and connecting with each other um, as you know, her and, and the boy realize that they have a lot of like, you know, similarities in common, even though the, the personalities might be different. And again, with her father, who um, is an immigrant, she's first generation, um, and how he relates to her in her sexuality and her identity. So yes, she does come out during the course of the story, there is a moment of, um, there is a homophobic moment in it. But ultimately, that story is a coming of age story with a coming out story within it, if that makes sense. Um, it's like, you know, how Lady Bird is just a story about a white girl who's coming of age as a teen and she's dealing with sexuality um, and that's heterosexuality in that case. But that's how I would want to see it with queer stories. Um, like characters coming of age within their worlds and the coming out or their sexuality and their identity is just one part of it. Make it part of like a bigger fabric rather than like the main thing. I just cannot personally withstand the emotional trauma of seeing someone abused or beaten down um, because of who they are. The same way I don't like bully narratives too. Um, and that's aside from queerness or race or anything like that. I don't, I, I just can't handle it. I'd rather see um, just more joyful stories. Does that mean that we have to ignore realities? No. But can that, I think it could be threaded in. It's um, the same way to go on a little tangent. I want, I'm not a great agent for a book like The Hate You Give, but I love it as a reader. But I'm just not the agent for that. Because you really have to immerse yourself in a story and you're reading it over and over again. You're trying to figure out how to pitch it. And it just would be too emotionally fraught for me. Gotcha. So you don't want to do the the emotional drama to yourself over and over and over again yeah. as many times as we need to yes. make sense. Now say the story is about a bank robber. She's she's a bank robber or they are a bank robber. Um and they're dealing with I don't know, liking their partner. Angie Thomas, team. I hope you're you're listening. We're <laughs> we're pitching the gold here. <laughs> they're they're dealing with liking their partner on a team who maybe is like and it's like a, a like a queer romance within the bigger space of like this 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 heist story <laughs> and they're maybe navigating oh like i didn't know i was attracted to this person though honestly to me why, why can't I, i'm like oh i'd rather at this point them just be queer without having all the questioning but i understand um then i'm okay with that uh as a subplot or like a threaded in the narrative <laughs> gotcha. So you would you would prefer almost a character that's already secure in their sexuality. They've dealt with that. Maybe they've already got an established relationship. Now let's worry about robbing these banks or yes. 
dealing with these zombies or, or whatever <laughs> it is. <laughs> exactly. That was literary agent Kiana Nealon from episode 85. Next up is author Laura Stegman from episode 86. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk. The the publicist begins to promote her debut novel, uh, and we should point out again: you do not uh, publicize books. You uh, you do all manner of arts. But have you ever promoted any author, any book of any kind? Mm, no, I haven't. I haven't. And so, like with my writing, I mean, I had to. I kind of had to learn by not by not learn by doing exactly because i'm i'm a, the one thing you asked me about keeping notes i have a, a notebook that for, for ever at, I, I would say right after i signed my contract with intense publications which was last um october or november anyway last fall and um i started i started scouring the internet for for websites and podcasts and and uh other places that i was seeing authors do well let's say i have you know i have a bag full of notes that ultimately get transcribed into this notebook but that that anytime i would see something i would make a note about it and and so when I put together my publicity plan, it had all these resources that I had already looked into and found, oh yeah, that's something where I'd like to do an interview on that show or that uh, blog or whatever. Um, I knew, you know, from my own publicity work, I knew that like, for example, in Los Angeles, there were some media outlets, print and otherwise that were aimed at families and parents with kids. So, so I, you know, I knew, I, and I even knew who to pitch on those. Um, but it's, it's not that complex, you know, when you're looking at a website and there's a contact page, you can figure out who to, who to pitch. But um, I think the thing that gives me the edge is that I knew that I couldn't just say, hey, I wrote a book, want to interview me? I mean, I knew that that wasn't gonna fly. That, you know, I mean, that would, clearly say amateur amateur so i um i put together a pitch letter that told my story you know i mean not not my story of being a writer but the story of you know loving this book when i was a kid and wanting to write a book that would make some kid today feel the way i felt about it i i indicated the things that i could discuss during an interview and um i provided all kinds of background uh, about myself, you know, bio and establishing my credentials as a, as a, as a nonfiction writer. And um, yeah, that, that's, you know, that's what I would do for a client. You know, I would figure out what I wanted, where I wanted the client's publicity to appear. And I would come up with a pitch letter that was tailored to those um, those media outlets, and sometimes it would be a little different depending on, like for example, for for the children's magazine in in Los Angeles that I that I pitch. I mean, they don't care about what my writer's journey is, so I didn't include stuff like that. But they they would be more interested, I think, in the idea of um, the kids 
journey, the kid's journey to self-acceptance, that the stories about like, some kids who find a way to accept themselves, that's what, what a, um, a family magazine would, would be more interested in. Whereas a, a, a writer's blog or something that focuses on, on writer's journeys, obviously that would be much more suitable to them. The, the, you know, where I really would like to advance to, and this is something that, that I haven't quite gotten to yet, is getting, getting my book into the hands of, um, you know, when, when they have like 20 books to read this fall, like those kind of media outlets, I'm still learning about those and I'm still exploring them. And again, just like with my writing, I'm turning to other writers, you know, what was your experience with that? I mean, being a, being an author is like what, 40% of, of, of it, you know, and the other half is, keeping in touch with people, what's going on. You know, all I, I got to be in this TikTok video um, because this writer's group that I'm part of um, posted that a TikTok person was looking for writers to, it was a, a thing called Pass the Book Challenge. And we all held our books up and we, um, oh, for, we caught them and then we dropped them. And each person in the follow, in the video you know, would catch the book or, you know, their, their book. And it was just a cute little, like, I don't know, one minute TikTok videos. My, my one chance at being an internet sensation. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it was fun. And it was, it was something I just was like, oh my God, am I going to be able to do this? How do, you know, can my, where do I set my camera up? But now I know, you know, now I know how to do stuff like that. And every time I do something that it's like Darby in the story or all three kids in the story, every time I do something, I don't think I can do, but I do it anyway. I learn a lot and I feel really good about myself. Well, until you do try to do the one thing that turns out you can't do like swim with the shark or. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a <laughs> I think that's a good last thought to have, honestly. Is, oh, I really thought I could do that. <laughs> well, well and, and, you know, like I said, I mean, there are some, some, you know, writers who work, whose books are purchased by, you know, the big five. I mean, they have a lot, they have publicists, you know, publicists who are book publicists. So, you know, I'm, I'm not, at that level and um maybe i will be someday maybe i won't but um meanwhile i can do the best i can for summer of luck and 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 let as many people know about it as possible putting myself out there like i said on the on instagram on twitter on facebook you know all that stuff not my comfort zone but but i'm you know i'm getting i'm i'm getting uh I'm doing it to the extent that I am comfortable with it. You're uh, being very humble, uh, which <laughs> I appreciate, but let me assure esteemed audience as somebody who receives a fair amount of information from various book uh, publicists, uh, I found Laura's package to be uh, extraordinarily uh, insightful. Uh, and obviously it, it worked. I said, yes, absolutely. Let's, 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 let's talk. 
Um, in fact, uh, let's go over a few of the things that, that came in that. Uh, because you said, what you said, uh, you had a, a press kit that has a submarine in the book. You've got a bio just about you. You've got automatically a cover. I, I'm, I'm always, it's not that big of a deal in the internet age because I can find a, 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 a copy of your cover out there in the world. But it's always like, hey, let me, let, would you promote me on your blog, Mr. Ninja? I don't have a cover of the book, just bare minimum. <laughs> Help me out a little bit. This is a free thing I'm doing. I don't have all night. Uh, so we've got the cover, we've got a news release, we've got, and then we've got a sell sheet. So let's go through uh, each of that. What is that, five things? I'm so bad at math. Uh, I have, I have a, the, the sell sheet is, um, again, I learned this from, well, I, you know, Intense has a number, a lot of different authors and, 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 the middle grade writers among us have kind of gotten together and we're, you know, we're sort of um, sharing information, especially those of the, the ones who've had their books published sooner. So I learned about a sell sheet from, from that, you know, and I, I had no, I'd never even heard of it before. Um, but I just, you know, I looked at, I looked up examples of them and I, I created that and, you know, it's got the the cover of the book. It's got, uh, uh, you know, the blurb, you know, like a two paragraph summary of the book. It has, you know, what format is it available in? Um, what are the prices? Um, I have a quote from uh, an endorsement type quote from another author. Um, where do you, I mean, in, on that particular sell sheet, I mean, the book's available everywhere, but um, it has the publisher's contact information. And, um, you know, it's just kind of like an all-in-one place, piece of information if somebody wants to, uh, it's not like for the public per se, it's for, it's for someone who wants to, um, to, you know, know how to, if someone's writing an article about it, is it available in ebook? Is it available in paperback? Is it available in audiobook or whatever? Summer of Lux available in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. So that's all on there. And it's it's you know who's the distributor? Ingram is our dis distributor. So anything that anybody would need to know if they were either writing about it or if they wanted to to stock the book, a bookseller would, would need, if, if I was going directly to a bookstore and if I could go into a bookstore in the, uh, you know, on the, in the, uh, this time of COVID and quarantine, that's what I would bring. I would bring that to them and it would be a, you know, all in one place sort of sell sheet. It would be selling the book basically. So that's one thing. And the press release, um, you know, basically has the announcement. I did one earlier on that um, announced that the book was acquired by by um, Intense. But you now- did a press release at, at the time of it being acquired? I did, yes. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. And now the one that is in the press kit is that it's available for pre-order when it, when it went up for pre-order. Um, and it is available. I mean, you know, if someone's reading this six months into the future, you know, you can get it pretty much anywhere. But, and you can right now too. But um, I have a, a, I made a connection with a bookstore, my local independent bookstore, and they're doing this pre-order where when I, I'll have a launch party through them on their Zoom account. And um, 
when people order after the launch party, I'll go in and sign all the books and they'll send, you can have the book personalized however you want it through that bookstore. It's called Children's Book World, just as an aside. Um, so yeah, so the, the, the press release has um, the pre-order information, but it really repeats everything from the first release. It, it, the, 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 you know, what's the book about and um, who is intense publications, you know, it has like a paragraph about them. It has a paragraph about me. So that's the press release. And then I also have a bio page, which has, um, I think four or five different versions of my bio, the different lengths. So if someone needs two sentences, there's a two sentence bio. If someone needs a long paragraph, there's that. I mean, it, it, the point is that you want to make it easy for whoever's using this stuff so they don't have to do anything. Oh, look, it's right there. I've got it, you know, copy paste and you're set. I um, want you to develop the ability to telepathically communicate with every author in the world, <laughs> at least all the ones that are going to reach out to me in the future and let them know that they should do this and make it easy on the people that want to promote you. That's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, why, why, if, this is like rule number one of being a, pub, a good publicist. Make it easy for the journalists. Give them all the information that they need. Don't make them have to, I mean, their job is to write a story or to interview you, you know, whatever. Just make it easy and make it all of it. And more, it's, this, because of this background where more is, is, is enough, more is what you want, that's why the first 12 versions of Summer of Luck had way more in it than, you know, <laughs> than could stay because that was my training, you know. But um, trying to think of what else, you know, then as you say, there's an image, a high resolution image of the cover. And um, then there's a couple of photos of, uh, of, of me. And the photo credit, which is also really important, and they're also in a you know, they're like variations in size. So if someone needs a web version, there's there's a lower resolution. If you need it for a print thing, there's the high resolution. So that's really important. And then there's the about page, which is just kind of a compendium of all this stuff. Um, you know my elevator pitch, you know, the one line version, um, you know, another version that's a little bit longer. And then there's another explanation of the story that's a little longer than that. Just all different levels of those things. And then that's where I put my endorsements, you know, quotes from other writers that have read the book and gave, you know, uh, laudatory, um, uh, endorsements, you know, things I'd use on a book cover, things I, I use on just anything just to let people know that, you know, somebody read this book and actually thought it was pretty darn good. A little, uh, little social uh, media, a little social proof. They like it. You'll like it too. And I want the esteemed audience to note uh, that um, you were so uh, humble before talking about, oh, I don't know. I'm just 
figuring this out. And as we listen to you, we can hear years of work as a successful publicist, training from childhood uh, by two publicist parents. <laughs> you fooled no one, Laura Stegman. You are fantastic at this. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> So uh, just out of curiosity, because you know, we talk a lot of, uh, on this show about queries to agents, queries to publishers, but we don't talk a whole lot about queries to media outlets. Um, so you put together this package. I assume you sent it just to me and said, if I could get on Little Grade Ninja, that's all the publicity I would, I would ever need. But uh, in course. case I'm mistaken <laughs> there, uh, how many, uh, how, do you have an idea, just ballpark, how many um, uh, pitches you sent out? I would say probably uh, 30 and under, but I've been really lucky. My, I've been batting, you know, whatever the percentage is. I, have, I think I've all together I've either done or am doing, uh, I think about 15 interviews. Perfect. So, um, yeah, and there are different kinds of interviews, you know, they're, Sometimes I, I have to write the answers, you know, they're Q and A's that I write the answers to. And I have to, you know, that, that's another thing is I can't, I can't answer a question, even though a lot of the questions are the same, I can't answer, I can't copy and paste from something I sent someone else, you know, so I, there's a lot of work involved in that and being interesting too, you know, not just writing well, I was born in New York. I mean, you have no idea. How many, you probably do have an idea because you probably get stuff like this, but I work with a lot of musicians in my work and, um, or actors and, and they, I've always wanted to teach a class on bio writing. You know, you do not start your bio by saying I was born in New York. <laughs> That's like the most boring thing ever. You want to start your bio with a, a, a line or two that that gives the big picture, you know. Um, but if I don't know what specific patch of soil within the country you originate from, how am I supposed to be interested? No, I'm teasing. <laughs> well, you put it. You put it. You can put it at the end if it even matters. But yeah, I mean, like my bio said, my bio, all seven versions or however many there are on my little bio sheet. All, they all start with Laura Siegel Stegman is a, uh, an arts publicist and author. Uh, you know, I, I haven't got it memorized, but, and her, you know, her debut novel, Summer of Luck, will be released in September to be followed by a sequel in 2021. I mean, that's what, that's the most important thing that people need to know about me. And then I go off on tangents, you know, like I write, I have this section where, you know, people's bios are, are whatever makes them interesting. So I thought what one of the more interesting things about me was, here are some of my favorite, that my parents instilled in me a love of reading, and here are some of my favorite middle grade books. And then I talk about my nonfiction credits, and then I um, talk about, you know, my husband and I live in blah, blah, blah. And we, uh, I love Dodger baseball and classical music and theater, 
you know, I, I'm not, I don't have that much of an interesting life, but those are the most interesting things that other people would care about, you know, and, and uh, I, I, the, bios are important where you pick out this is just like with writing you pick out what is the essential information and you write it well and you you know you have it so that it's if they only use the first line they've got the essential information that was author laura stegman from episode 86 next up is author daniel kraus from episode 87 um, I wanted to ask about, because this is a wonderfully dark book, and yet it always feels fun. It's never like, oh, what a heavy, uh, mm-hmm. depressing thing. It's just there's some things that I wouldn't expect in a, in a, in a teddy bear story. So I'm going to read a quick passage from your own <laughs> book uh, to you uh, by way of example. I love this. The mother was stabbing an iron poker into the fireplace. Beside her were a seam ripper and a pair of sewing shears. She was going to disembowel the originals and burn their parts in the fire until their plush turned to ash, their plastic noses melted, and their marble eyes popped like chestnuts. Mwah, chef's kiss. Yes. Beautiful description. <laughs> uh, you've yeah. got uh, teddies with their head streaming stuffing. Uh, yeah. At one point, uh, no spoilers, but there's some teddies that appear to have been burned alive. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun stuff. So, how did you decide where the boundary was for when the story was getting too dark, or was there one? Well, I mean, it, there is a certain freedom of t- to writing about teddy bears uh, because they are things of cloth and stuffing, and to a certain extent, you can damage them without. Um, without uh killing them you know like if, you, if i was dealing with human characters that i i would I'd pull way back on the kind of uh um, abuse they were taking but kids i think understand toys like their own toys get broken and scuffed up and stained um and i wanted to place these teddy bears in a very realistic setting uh, there's nothing fairy tale about anything um, in their surroundings. They're in a, in a dump. They move into a city that is dirty, and they 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 travel down streets in gutters that are filled with 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 litter. Um, and the 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 stores they pass once they get in, they get into a city are realistic. You know, they 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 pass a check cashing place and. Um, you know, places that, that you don't generally see in books like this, but feel like they're part of a city kid's every single day reality. Uh, so it felt, it would it would have felt cowardly of me to, to dodge that kind of thing. I mean, this is just, there's no point to dodge things that are, that kids see every single day and they don't disturb them. You know, these things are real. So, so for me, I... And I, you know, not every book is going to be for every kid. That's that's for certain. But for me, as a as a young reader, a book like this would have really excited me, precisely because it did things that I wasn't expecting and went places I didn't think it was going to go. Uh, and I think part of that is just the ambition of of wanting to to try to write something that that kids are going to be affected by and remember um and you know maybe if if we're really fortunate remember for the rest of their life 
you know, and I remember reading this book and it, and it scared me a little, but because of that, uh, I never forgot it. And it, it, it taught me things and it taught me where some of my boundaries were in, in, or weren't even more importantly for me as a young reader, um, in reading and consuming art and, um, and just navigating the world. Uh, I am, I guess, I guess in the, the kid lit space, I am, uh, a, you know, a little bit of a button pusher in the sense I, I want to, to push things a little bit because that's what inspired me as a young reader. Makes a lot of sense. I would have absolutely adored this book in third, fourth grade, uh, but I was a weirdo. And now yeah. I know a lot of other weirdos that will absolutely in, uh, gravitate toward this book and have just the best time. Well, one more uh, question about the teddies and then we, we got to talk Romero and zombies. Um, but these teddies are awfully fatalistic uh, throughout. Uh, I, I, I thought of them almost as Mr. Meeseeks for the Rick and Morty fans because they're, 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 their goal initially, at least, is to accomplish their teddy duty uh, so they can fall into the forever sleep. Um, and they, um, you know, at one point, uh, Buddy is uh, facing his first little bit of adversity. I think chapter two or chapter three, and he's immediately, like, oh, I wish I was in the forever sleep so I wouldn't have to deal with this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and then Reginald routinely is assuring everybody they're not going to make it throughout. Yeah. Right. Um, <laughs> but the characters are compelling. I I rooted for them. Um, so how do how do you create these fatalistic characters without tipping the story toward why should I care what happens to the Teddies if they don't? Well, I mean, it's not that they don't care. It's that at the beginning of the story, they're completely unequipped for the world. And what they one of the few things that they know the Teddies are born with this knowledge is that they're supposed to be on a store shelf. And the kids, they're going to be chosen by a child. The child's going to hug them. And they're going to drift away into this thing they call forever sleep, which just means they just become a normal, happy, blissfully unaware toy. Uh, And they think that's what they want. And the book is sort of about them being forced to to, uh, change their... Their fate has been changed, so they have to react to that in a new kind of way. They have to become a different kind of teddy. Uh, they're, they're, no one, they, they come to realize no one's coming to the dump to pick them up and hug them. They're going to have to leave the dump and find children. Uh, so they're, it's not that they're fatalistic, but at the beginning, they just don't know what to do. They're supposed to be picked up. Someone's supposed to come help them. You know, it's imagine you're a kid and you're you're left behind somewhere. Like your first instinct, it might just be to stand in a in a spot and wait for your parents to come back. But after a while, you do start to sense, okay, they're not coming. I need to I need to somehow start to work to get myself out of this situation, find another adult, something. Uh, in this case, they've got to get out of the dump, um, and then from then they pick up new clues about where they should be going, what they should be doing. Um, and as far as Reginald goes, I just find him humorous. Uh, he, I, I just like, you know, the other, the other characters do as they begin to accomplish things and actually begin to persevere over adversity, they start to be a little more bold and even proud at their accomplishments. Uh, uh, Reginald is just a, a funny, um, cynical character who just, whose catchphrase is we're not going to make it. <laughs> we're never going to make it. Um, but I think, particularly as the story wears on, 
um, readers may start to sense that he doesn't really believe that, that um, he's impressed by what they're accomplishing too. Um, and all of the Teddies as a unit are impressing themselves and building a confidence in themselves and just as important in their community as a group. You know, they become proud of what a Teddy can do. You know, they're doing things that no Teddies have ever done. And they begin to realize that and they and they begin to feel excited by their own accomplishments. And to me, those are the moments in the book that really uh, that I really love is seeing them start to grow and from helpless things into creatures of of agency and um, and motivation and confidence. Hopefully by uh, book three, they're going to be uh, battle-tested warriors. They're <laughs> yeah, they're, they're getting there. That was author Daniel Krauss from episode 87. Next up is literary agent Jim McCarthy from episode 88. Uh, we were talking about you accept a lot of manuscripts. So just give us some idea of the numbers. How many queries on average are you receiving a day, a week, versus how many... Uh, submissions are you making versus how many clients are you taking on a year? Sure. I usually have, hmm, I want to say I usually have between one and 200 queries a week. I, at any given time, have between 30 and 40 manuscripts on my Kindle. And I'm probably, I hate giving this last number because it sounds discouraging. I'm probably signing about five people a year. Um, and I, I know those odds aren't good, um, but but in those numbers are, you know, are people who are going to other agents, are people who I'm passing along to colleagues uh, who are, are younger than I am, who have more space on their list. Um, the, the numbers feel so daunting. Um, I, I, even when I am saying them, I just, I feel bad for the author listening. Um, I, I don't sign on a lot. I turn down a lot, a lot more than I will ever be able to sign. Um, but I, I still want to encourage everyone to try, you know, it's a hard process. You're putting yourself out there. I, it's difficult, but, um, but give it, give it a chance, give it a chance because, you know, I think people, I think sometimes very talented people shut themselves down before, before they try. And sometimes very overconfident people who aren't as talented are, are pushing out material that is, you know, that are just things that I can reject right away. So I, you know, I never want someone not to try just because they're overwhelmed by the percentages for whatever that's worth. Well, how many clients are you working with already? Um, I have a client list of about 50, which is substantial. Um, it's enough to keep me on my toes. <laughs> and, and about two weeks a year, I am suddenly so backlogged that everything has to slow down. Uh, but for the most part, everyone is on a different enough schedule that I'm able to, um, to, to, to stay on top of everything. Um, it's a, it's a pretty big list, but 
uh, an exciting one. Well, I'd, uh, we'll, we'll focus on the on, on the five luckies and just assume that the rest are all going to find uh, wonderful agents and the back catalog of this show, folks. They're, <laughs> they're waiting for you. Go listen to the show, um, and 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 you'll hear all kinds of wonderful uh, agents to submit to. Um, where was I going with that? Oh, uh, so um, for those uh, five that are, if say I'm I I I'm going to sign on with you. It's day one. Uh, what happens first? I assume we have a phone conversation before we sign any kind of contract and you tell me what you're going to do. I tell you why I'll try not to screw that up. How does that conversation mm-hmm. go? And we'll go from there. Yeah, that conversation is, um, it's usually a bit of a whirlwind. I like to surprise people by offering representation on the phone uh, with no warning. <laughs> so um, you don't email to say, I'm going to, I'm going to call. I don't. I don't. Because the 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 sort of shock and joy that comes over people is it's too exciting not to not to do it. Um, which Has usually that ever means terribly wrong. <laughs> well, it, I'm at a funeral right now, but I'm really glad you called her. <laughs> well, happily, happily, people people usually don't pick up because they don't they don't know the number. So there's a it's a lot of voicemails um, more than it is people actually picking up. Um, I did when I signed. I mentioned her earlier uh, when I signed Nicole Mellaby. Uh, she was <laughs> I can't remember now actually if it was when I signed her or when she got her first book deal, but I remember calling her and she was um, in a gas station in New Jersey and accidentally popped the trunk to her car and was so just flabbergasted and and confused and happy. Um, it was a very fun call, um, whichever of the, the great things it, 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 we were talking about, um, whether it was, you know, new representation or, or a new contract. Um, it was a very, it was a very fun call. Um, so yeah, so there's also it's often a first and second conversation that happen on the phone um, because a lot of questions go unasked that people just forgot about in in the rush. Um, but I sort of walk through first my feelings about the book and then what a submission process looks like when you work with me. How many people I go to, uh, how I communicate, how often you'll hear from me what information you're entitled to, which is essentially all of it. (laughs) You should be entitled to all of the information about where your book is being sent and shared. Um, But yeah, it's sort of um, an overview of how the agent-client relationship works. Um, And I sign a lot of first-time authors, which is a lot of fun. Uh, So you sort of never know on that first call how much someone's going to know. So it's a little different every time. You know, some people have done all of the research in the world and know exactly what to expect. And other people, you know, have researched agents but don't really know exactly how the process works. So it's, um, it's the phone call. And then from the phone call, we get to the agency agreement where you sign a, a contract where we promise our best efforts to sell the work within a limited amount of time um, for a commission. Uh, And then from there, step three is editing your work. Um, I always say that I'll only sign projects that I would 
feel comfortable sending out in the shape that they're in, but I have never actually signed something and sent it out in the shape it was in because I love the editorial process. It's my chance to really get my hands in there and, 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 and work with the material. And I don't need to get something ready to have a cover put on it, but I need to get it ready to, to sell for the best deal I can, I can get for it. So, uh, so it's, yeah, it's call agency agreement edits and then submission and, and everything, you know, depends on how the submission goes. Do you ever uh, reject something and say, hey, this isn't right for me at this time, but I think the following however many changes would be fantastic. And hint, 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 I'm taking the time to write you an editorial note. <laughs> uh, and then I, I, I resubmit to you. Does that does, Has that happened for you in the past where you've been able to sign somebody? That absolutely has happened. Um, and I also mentioned her earlier. Uh, Taylor K. Mejia is someone whose book, We Set the Dark on Fire, I turned down twice. And both times said, you know, I have big ideas. No, I turned it down three times. I turned it down twice and said she should rewrite and send back to me if she agreed with my notes. And she did. And the third time I had this sort of light bulb moment where I thought, oh, there's actually, I, I really know how to fix it now. Um, and sent a sort of a big, a big pitch and, and said, you know, I don't think you're going to want to do a third revision for me. Um, and Taylor, to her endless credit, wrote back and said, I will make these changes <laughs> if you sign me. And I did. I did. I loved it. I loved Sight, it. Sight unseen, just on her word that the changes would be she made, you're on board. Visions, and she was so talented, is so talented. And it sort of took her shaking me out of it to be like, these are structural changes. You know I can write. You know I have good characters. You know that on a sentence level, what I'm doing is fantastic. And she was right. She was right. I was being, I was being too, too strict. I should have signed her on. And, and I did. And it's been, we've sold, um, four, five, seven books together now um, in the past three years. So it's it's been a really, a, a pretty fantastic uh, journey since, since she convinced me that I would be an idiot if I let her go. I'm going to try and tease a less happy, less inspiring story out of you. Because uh, I know authors obsess oh. over that phone call, especially if it's going to come unannounced. Hey, I'm at a gas station. Oh, my God, Jim McCarthy. Forget the car. Let's let's <laughs> talk. Um, what Have you ever experienced an author that you were pretty, pretty convinced you were going to sign because you loved the book, shoot themselves in the foot uh, at that point? Or uh, otherwise, um, it's just... How how do authors avoid screwing themselves up, and how what's the best way to handle that call that maybe flies contrary to some not so great ways you've heard people handle that call? Yeah, I don't. I'm trying to think of people who've really screwed up on the call, and I don't I don't know that that's. You know, I've had relationships with clients where we've 
sort of come to an impasse where where we're not sharing the same vision, where where they're not feeling the level of support that they need, or or where they're writing books that don't feel like things that I I know how to sell, or they're writing about topics that 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 I'm not particularly interested in. Those things do happen. Um, and we work through them and sometimes people change agents. That's, you know, a part of the process, but I don't know that it happens. I don't know that it happens at the initial call. I don't know that I've had anyone be so appalling or concerning that I ran away from the call and just thought like, I'm not, not that one. <laughs> not, um, people are usually pretty well behaved at the start. Well, and I'm uh, un uh, unbelievably biased because I think authors are just better people than everyone else. Uh, <laughs> but I always assume that if somebody can write a book that's beautiful enough that you would want to give them the phone call, that they should be somewhat enlightened enough to maybe be a decent human being. Although there are a couple of authors I won't name who would prove me wrong. <laughs> we have all we have all met at least one author who who shook us to our core. <laughs> <laughs> There's that that thing, don't meet your idols, um, which can be true. Um, but no, you're right. Authors are are largely wonderful, uh, neurotic, uh, fantastic people that are um, a joy to work with. Um, yeah, but you know, not everyone not everyone's a match. That was literary agent Jim McCarthy from episode eighty eight. Next up is editor Mari Kesselring and author Patrick Hewler from episode 89. So you worked on a, on a journal together. So before you knew anything else about each other, uh, like your, you know, <laughs> soulmates, um, you knew that you were both, you, you must have shared some sort of affinity for the written word for literature. Yeah, I mean, definitely, I would say also, like, not only we both on a literary journal, but it was a literary art journal, and we were both, like, definitely, like, literary people, you know, like, so um, I think we definitely, like, had the experience of, uh, like, enjoying the same stories and that sort of thing. Well, and I did become, like, I always kind of thought, I mean, I always appreciated Patrick's writing um, when we were on the journal together, because he was also, like, we were also in a creative writing club together. At, Which you started which I started and um but I always liked his writing you know that was kind of like the first thing I noticed about him I mean other than of course he's cute but um, <laughs> the the writing I was always really into his stories um when he was and that was back when we were doing more like uh literary fiction type of thing so yeah <laughs> so um I have have uh, did, did you at one point also want to write her have you always been editorial editorially minded yeah so i've i've written some i've done some work for hire projects some fiction some nonfiction in the past um and i do some writing on my own i was original my original plan was to like become a full-time writer um, when I got out of college, but then I was kind of like, well, I, I had had some internships and in editing that I really liked. And I was like, well, I, I would like to make it more of like my career right away and, and not like starve in the meantime. So I, um, so I did still do some writing, um, and, you know, hope to eventually, um, you know, publish. Um, so right now I write some middle grade and some young adult. I have a couple projects that I'm, I'm working on at this point. 
So she's selling herself short. She actually is a great writer. Uh, and uh, she's also a machine. I'm like totally envious of this because uh, <laughs> like uh, when she's done for higher work, you know, the, these are very tight deadlines you work on. And sometimes you get like series and she's like, she just like churns through these things. And meanwhile, I'm like agonizing, like, what do I do next in the story? And, I, and she just churns through and they're just these perfectly tight, beautifully written plots. So. Yeah, we write really, like our processes are completely different. Yeah. <laughs> So what, uh, what's your process then, Mari? Um, so I'm, I'm sort of more of like a planner and methodical. So I, I tend to like plan out my plots ahead of time. Um, and I think that kind of comes from my editing background too. I, I don't think I'm, I'm good at just kind of going on the fly. I like to kind of know where the story is going. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that's, I mean, in opposition to you. <laughs> so my whole motto is, um, I, what, I just do whatever I can to keep my the, the, the fingers typing and for me uh, knowing where the story is going it bores me and so I, I don't I'm much less likely to actually keep writing and so I you know I, I do that whole obnoxious artistic thing where I'm like pretty much just going by the seat of my pants uh, sentence by sentence just because I want to get surprised I want to be surprised by what happens in the story. That makes sense. And Patrick, I know you've got a new book, and I promise we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about writing. But so rare an opportunity, I have to ask uh, some of these follow-up questions. So this difference in style of writing, does that bleed over a little bit into your domestic life? For example, does, does, does one of you file the taxes, pay the bills, that kind of thing? Yeah, I would say oh, uh, Mary, I am, I am <laughs> shocked that that, <laughs> that is the case. Um, yeah, the, the overlap is uh, complete. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's true. I, yeah, I, but I would also say that, you know, it, it, it makes me look good to be like the one in doing the bills and taxes and things like that. But Patrick is also has much more patience at a task than I do. Um, so he, for example, will play with our daughter for hours on end, where I can probably do an hour and then kind of like, I need to do something else now. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's, I think it's a good um, balance between the two of us. Yin and yang kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> I won't lie. I mean, it does cause conflict sometimes. <laughs> well, that sounds like a great partnership. Yeah. It's, uh... Similar to, to what Mrs. Kent and I have got going on, she's she's usually on the bills and the and the taxes, and I'm playing for hours with my child. So, <laughs> yeah. um, and we got then, it good, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, what did I want to ask you? Oh, uh, so with uh, obviously with the four-year-old thrown in the mix, and you're both writing at different times. Um, how do you navigate that? Will one of you watch while the other one writes and then you switch off? Or how do you, how do you make time for your writing? Yeah, I think that's pretty, uh, it's pretty accurate what we do. Uh, it's kind of an amazing thing, uh, even while we're pretty much fully quarantined right now, uh, we will realize we hardly see each other throughout the day because we're just taking shifts, you know, we just go yeah. back and forth. So, I mean, we, we can hear each other clack, uh, clacking away at the keyboard and, you know, like if we have a question, we can ask it, but like, we're pretty much usually in, we're not in a very big house, but one's downstairs and one's upstairs. Uh, yeah, we're just yeah. doing shifts right now. Well, we don't, and we don't always really know what each other is working on either. Like, I, I will find out that Patrick's been working on something and I won't know much about it. Um, just because we, it's just not something that we have a ton of time to discuss <laughs> right now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when we first were dating, we were always sharing projects Sending with each things other. Sending things back and, and forth all the time. Yep. 
but it's a little harder now. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Your passion for art tied in with your love for each other. Oh my God, it's like a, it's a poem. <laughs> uh, and do you swap critiques or edit each other at this point? Yes, but not nearly enough these days. Not much now. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I really think that that's, well, Mari's actually the best editor I've ever had, so that's why I'm saying not nearly enough. Yeah. Um, this is great. Uh, do you know William Maxwell? He was like an, an, um, the editor of New Yorker and, uh, for years and years, and he wrote a book, uh, So Long, See Tomorrow. Anyway, uh, there's this great quote that I'm not going to get exactly right, but, um, he was apparently so gentle and agile with his editing that he often would make supposedly somewhat substantial changes and the reader and the writer wouldn't notice. Like, you know, they, like he was so in tune and Mari really takes the time to like try to figure out what kind of story am I trying to tell or what are her authors trying to say. This isn't supposed to be a sales pitch, by the way. This is just real. Like this is, um, early on in our relationship, she did quite a bit of editing in my work. And I just always felt like emboldened without feeling like she was cheating me out of like actually telling me what she really thought. And I don't think I've ever, done, nice. with, I don't think I've ever done that for you. So. <laughs> Patrick, I, I'd say I bounce ideas off Patrick, but he'll be like, what do you think of this, you know, idea for a kind of like a plot or something? That's kind of where I am right now with my writing is I'm, I'm planning some projects. Um, so because he's so good with like ideas and like interest level of things that I just find it really helpful to get his, his insights on that kind of stuff. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I would, I would just say to the, in, in response to Patrick, like, I always believe that the, as an editor, I always believe that the book belongs to the author. And so I always kind of bring that mindset into editing and thinking about what they want the book to be and just trying to make it the best, um, the best it can be within their vision. Um, so, uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, it sure does. Well, that sounds like an incredibly uh, productive and almost professional, uh, in, that, in that respect, um, part of your relationship, you're both professional authors, you take it, so there's no, got your notes earlier, honey, oh, I burned dinner, just yours, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we do, like, I think there are probably uh, pluses and, and, and drawbacks to, one of them is like lack of money is a drawback, but, um, <laughs> to being married to someone who has similar interests, uh, literary interests. But one of the, I think, the huge advantages is that, um, you know, Mari totally gets it when I feel like I'm just like absolutely on fire with an idea and I got to go to the computer and get it down. And, uh, and I think hopefully she would feel I do the same thing. Like yeah. that's, that's the time when we like say, I got the kid, you go do your thing. And I think that's hard for uh, the rest of the world to understand. Yeah, well, that, that is that is true. And I also say that we don't always like what each other writes either, you know, or, you know, like. You don't? <laughs> So, and we have very kind of different styles really yeah. as writers and different interests too. So it's, you know, it's, I don't know, I think that just kind of adds to what we can, you know, what kind of feedback we give each other. And is it like, uh, so I've heard of, of, of uh, relationships between actors where one of them will have an audition that goes well and go on to get the part while the other ones had three auditions all and so close but didn't work out. And now there's just uncomfortable silence at the at the dinner table. I'm so happy for you. Uh, so I'm assuming throughout the years, one of you has had good publishing news and then the other one is that tends to trade off. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like to think we're mostly on it, just kind of like, you know, supporting each other, but um, I just feel like I'm always talking first. I'll let you, but... Um, no, go ahead. Uh, but, um, yeah, I think for the most part, we are just like supportive of each other. She knows that, for instance, sometimes she'll be talking about her job. And even though I love my job and I'm an English teacher, high school English teacher, um, I like, she'll look at me and be like, you're jealous of what I'm telling you right now, aren't you? Like, you know, she has a really cool job <laughs> often. And I, I do sometimes feel jealous of that. Yeah. And I think I had somebody tell me once when, like, right before we got married that like, sometimes you might need to like take a walk. <laughs> when when you're when you're in professions that are so similar and your experiences are going to be different you know and that is I mean I think for the most part um you know like Patrick says we try to be supportive of each other and 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 we also understand kind of like all the emotions involved in um you know being a writer and trying to get a story on paper and then trying to publish a story or a book and and all the kind of ups and downs that go with that. So I think that we can support each other in that way um, because we, we get it, you know. That was editor Mari Kesselring and author Patrick Hewler from episode 89. Next up is author Margie Preuss from episode 90. Ah, uh, and so 2010s when the, the first book comes out, was that The Legend of the Lady Slipper? Or have I got the word wrong? Yeah, I, th I think that was the first one. Here it is. If, now that all the books are going to fall over now. Um, <laughs> that's that one. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of a funny story because this is a, originally Lisa and I were going to write a big fat book about trees. Not not a nonfiction book about trees, but a collection of tales, fairy tales and folk tales about how trees, different trees came to be or why they are the way they are or why the leaves change color or why the birch has black stripes and things like that. Um, and then we would have information about the trees as well. So we were compiling what would have been this tome and um, we wrote on the letter to the editor, we just scrawled on the bottom that we had just found uh, a beautiful little, it was just the tiniest little paragraph of a tale about the lady slipper in one of the books we'd been looking at. And that we thought it would be fun once we were done with the big tree book that we would do one about um, wildflowers. But our editor really just only wanted that one. <laughs> about the lady slipper and so that became that became this book so what's the path that gets you to that debut novel did you have an agent at that point i did have an agent but she didn't sell um heart of a samurai what happened was i was at a, an scbwi conference in minneapolis and i was listening to an agent talk his name is stephen fraser and I just loved what he had to say. And I, I just, I had an, affin I felt, I, I had a warm feeling about, you know, like friendly, like he seemed like he would be nice. And so um, I raised my hand and I said, I said, what happens if you already have an agent, but maybe you want a different one? <laughs> and he said, oh, that happens all the time. You know, don't worry about that. It's business, you know, it's business. 
And so I um, sent him the first page of Heart of a Samurai and a postcard that's uh, on the back said, I would like to read more, and a little checkbox. No thanks, and a little checkbox. This is back when we used to send things in the mail. (laughs) Remember that? Unfortunately, all too well. And all the uh, little self-addressed stamped envelopes that came back as well. Yeah. So anyway, he sent... Uh, he sent the postcard back with the check. I would like to read more, and so then um, he became my agent, and he's and he sold Heart of a Samurai. Not, it didn't take him very long. Um, so that was um, that's how that happened. Um, it, you know, kind of okay. A little interesting side story. I think it's interesting. Um, an agent or a, an editor at FSG had expressed interest in the book. But she didn't want anything that wasn't actually true, you know, that didn't actually happen. And um, so I had to take out all the the bullies <laughs> because the, I made those up I, because I couldn't find anything historically that said that this or that person had been a bully or, you know, had treated um, my character and heart of a samurai badly and um so i took all that out and sent it back and and she said well it just doesn't have enough conflict (laughs) 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 and so um your head straight through the desk (laughs) (laughs) um anyway that so that didn't really go anywhere so um, when uh, Steve sent it to my editor, who, the editor who took it at, at um, Abrams, Amulet Books at Abrams, uh, he said, you know, this, what this story needs are some bullies. <laughs> and so I stuck them back in like that. You know, I just put those chapters back in and sent it off. And um, afterwards, I realized, oh, he's going to think I write really, really fast. <laughs> Like I finally had to confess to him, you know, I already had those those parts done. All I had to do was, you know, kind of put them back in and re- rearrange or massage everything, as my husband would say. Um, <laughs> he builds things and he says, we'll just massage this. I was like, how do you it just doesn't seem to fit with building things. But anyway, um, so I had to kind of piece that back together and send it out. And then he took it. Stephen Fraser immediately recognized the brilliance of the work and said, this will <laughs> definitely go on to be a Newberry honor. Let's do this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't think the, I, I don't think any of us saw that coming. I didn't. That's for sure. How well, did you have, uh, I'm assuming you had some sort of feelings toward the book that obviously you were proud of it. You, you must have thought that it was destined for some kind of greatness or do you oh know the gosh, opposite? Oh my gosh, no. I no, I did not think anyone was going to read it. That was the first thing. I, I seriously, I thought nobody's going to read this book. You know, this it's just oddball kid. I don't know. I just didn't. And I actually hoped that no Japanese person would ever read it because I was petrified that it would be, you know, wrong somehow. And um, obviously, you got over that before you went to Japan and were yeah. Well, I had well. That was while I was writing it. But then I have a very good friend who's Japanese who lived across the street with me. And she read everything. She gave me lots of good advice. 
And then before, you know, before it was published, I went to Japan, I went to where he was born, I talked to a lot of people. And so, you know, by the time it was published, it had been pretty well vetted, um, you know, and I, I felt pretty solid, like it was solid. And, uh, but I didn't, I didn't think it was going to, no, in fact, I didn't even start writing another book because I just thought, ah, you know, nobody's going to read it and I'm not going to ever get another contract. So back to theater. I don't know what I thought I was going to do, but um, <laughs> yeah, no. And I, and, and the other thing is I totally did not see the Newberry honor coming at all. That was also back in the day before all the Newberry, um, mock Newberries and social media and all the, all the blogging and the chit chat about who, what's, who's going to win. It just didn't happen. Or if it did, I was completely oblivious to it. So it, well, that sounds it, like a better world. <laughs> it actually, yeah, I, I think it is. I mean, I think it's hard. Um, it's hard to have the buzz and um, that kind of heightens an anxiety, you know, I don't know, just makes makes one a little more um, aware of that. I mean, I, the obliviousness was lovely. I'll just say that. <laughs> so you who are about to um, uh, to go on to greatness, who are what are thinking that you're going to go back and maybe just do theater uh, and, and and forget about writing uh, for a while? When um, what? Uh, let us live vicariously through you, because this is something that I I enjoy and I like to provide this for esteemed audience. So we all want to know what is that feeling? What take us through getting to the point of being a Newbery honor and what is that experience? Well, I would say, you know, it is amazing I uh, to have that affirmation, um, especially because I was convinced that it was just kind of a, you know, I had written it, but it was nothing special and lots of other much better books out there. And um, to to have the affirmation that I had written something good <laughs> was it really did change the way I looked at myself as a writer. I could take myself seriously and I could say, well, I guess maybe I do know what I'm doing sort of some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> I still doesn't feel that way though when I'm writing, I'll tell you. Um, and of course it was a great boon in terms of publishing. So, you know, my, my publisher offered me another contract without me having written anything. Um, well, sure, they'd be fools not to. <laughs> that was author Margie Preuss from episode 90. Next up is author Haley Chewins from episode 91. Uh, uh, to what you tell writers, because you are a writing coach. So how does that work? What kind of services as a writing coach are you providing? Well, um, I'm quite new at, as, at being a writing coach, but um, what I do is I try to figure out, um, usually I have a conversation with writers in the beginning where I talk about what they tell me, kind of what's working for them and what isn't working for them. And, and we try to kind of work on the stuff that isn't working, like how we can get it to work. So if that's like feeling a lot of resistance to, to working or procrastinating, or if it's like, 
I can't come up with ideas or I don't know how to write a, a whole book. Like I don't know how to sustain a story over the course of a novel, uh, an entire novel, um, or my characters are feeling flat or whatever it is. Um, then I kind of tailor it to what that particular writer is going through. And so what we do is I have um, a weekly session session with them, which is like a Zoom session and we chat for an hour. Um, and then after that, I send them notes from our chat and then also exercises for the following week. And then we check in the next week after they've done those, the exercises that I set for them. And the exercises will be targeted based on what they're struggling with. Um, but yeah, I'm not the best writing coach for every writer, but I think for people who write intuitively and who are pantsers who feel anxious about pantsing, um, I'm I'm a pretty good person to have in your corner because I know what it feels like to to be anxious about pantsing. And I also have created a lot of strategies for myself to get going, even when I feel stuck or I don't know what's going to happen next or I need to like come up with an idea. And like I said, in the beginning of my writing career, when I decided I wanted to be a novelist, I really felt like... Um, like I didn't know what to say um, and so I, I really love working with writers to help them to find their voices and um, the thing with writing is that you no one can tell you what to do no one can tell you what your stories are or what your voice sounds like you have to discover it for yourself um, so having a coach is kind of like just having a guide along that that journey so that you don't feel alone and you don't give up so that you can actually get there and get to a point where you you start to have more confidence and you start to kind of know yourself as a writer. So obviously that involves all kinds of um, personal, uh, personalized things that could, will, will come up on, in an individual situation that we can't hope to touch on in a podcast. On the other hand, anytime I can get a little taste for free, I'm interested. <laughs> so let's say I come to you and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. I'm not able uh, to write every day. Um, for whatever you, you, you come up with the reason why I can't write every day and then tell me how we might address that specific problem and we'll still leave plenty of secrets that people need to come and pay money for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. um, okay, so I, what I would say is I would ask you, um, do you why, why do you feel like you have to write every day? Because I want to be a professional famous author. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, so the thing with writing is that there is this idea that you have to write every day. And certainly in the beginning, when you're forming the habit of writing, it really helps to say, I'm going to check in every single day, even if it's just for 10 minutes. So I would say if you're struggling to write every day, it's probably because you're setting a very high standard for yourself. You're probably thinking, I have to write 3,000 words every day, or I have to write for an hour or 45 minutes every day. And to make it lower stakes for you, I would say if you want to write every day, Get a timer of some kind, like an egg timer, or use the timer on your phone, and tell yourself that every day at a particular time, um, usually first, well, like first thing in the morning, if that works for you, usually first thing is much easier for people because it's like you get it off your to-do list first thing. But set aside 10 minutes a day and put your timer on. Have some kind of prompt or something that you're going to start with so that you're not just staring at a blank page and just write for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes. And then once you've done that, if you're feeling energized and you feel like you can continue and you want to do another 10 minutes or another 20 minutes, then that's awesome. But if you if you don't, then you've done that 10 minutes and you can tick that off and you can feel a sense of like achievement and confidence and that you've you've given time to this thing that's really, really important to you. So, yeah, a couple of things help if you're if you're struggling with that with that resistance timers, doing things first thing in the morning when you have a lot of energy still or a lot of. I mean, it's, the thing is, it's it's particular to every person. So if you're the kind of person who gets a lot of creative energy in the evening, then, of course, do it in the evening. 
But if you wake up and you do something first thing in the morning, it's you're telling yourself, this is important to me. I'm committing, I'm committed to this thing. If you do your writing after you've answered emails, watched YouTube, I don't know, done a whole bunch of other things, um, then often you feel really depleted by the time you get to the writing. So find a time that works for you and use a timer and just break it down into really, really tiny steps. If you only want to write 100, if, if you can only kind of write 50 words or 100 words a day, that adds up. You don't have to spend three hours writing in order to call it like a good writing day. But don't I have to tweet and update YouTube and <laughs> Facebook and Instagram and all of those yeah. things that are going to assure that this is the post that will make me a famous author? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, the most important thing about being an author, as you know, is writing your books. So um, if you don't have any books to promote, then, you know, then that's not going to be good. So you need to write the books. Um, and, yeah, and, like, obviously social media is – it's wonderful to be able to, to connect with people on there and share things, but it also, you know, you compare yourself to other writers or you get, I don't know, like dread and anxiety and you see an article about something horrible, something horrible that's happened in a distant land and you feel terrible about it. And all of that stuff is taking away energy that you could use for your writing. So if something's a priority to you, definitely do it before Twitter, I would say. Unfortunately, I'm in the United States, so these days all the terrible things are happening right here. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Hopefully that will change soon. Okay. <laughs> that was author Haley Chewins from episode 91. Next up is author Marcella Pixley from episode 92. What does your uh, typical writing day look like if you're doing a paragraph and you're you're reading it and revising it till it, it sings and then you've got to go and you've got to teach eighth grade and you've got your 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 normal times your critique group and I assume you have activities outside of, of work and you've got yeah. your, your home. Yep, yep. I I'm a pretty busy person and I'm not a kind of writer who has a typical writing day because I am a full time teacher and I've got um, an 18, almost 18 year old and a 14 year old at home and, um, and, you know, just sort of live my life like everybody lives their lives. So um, I, because I'm not a writer who writes full time, I, I steal moments here and there. So um, when my mind is ready to write, I'll sit down um, in bed or at my desk where I am right now, and I'll take an hour or a half an hour and I'll just play with a paragraph and then life takes its time and I go off and do the things I need to do. And um, I think luckily my mind I've, has sort of trained itself to be pondering my writing things at the same time that I'm doing other things. And so I think that the, I think that the process is still going um, even when I'm not writing. So that when I come back, it's kind of like a sneeze that you really needed to sneeze. And um, it comes out quickly and maybe more easily than it would if I had all the time in the world. And I think of it kind of like a jar with pennies. Like you just put a penny in every now and then when you can, when you have the time. And um, eventually you'll fill up the jar with pennies and have a book. You are a 
fountain of beautiful writing <laughs> metaphors. <laughs> I think that instead of teaching my next workshop, I'm just going to play this podcast. I listen to this. <laughs> that was author Marcella Pixley from episode 92. Next up is editor Elizabeth Law from episode 93. There's a uh, quote from you. It's a little bit uh, facetious, this question, but I, I, I wanted to, to get your perspective on it while I'm uh, chatting with you. Uh, you have said that some things in the, are the industry of publishing are constant and will never change. The demand for the very best writing and artwork that shows something personal from a child's world. Uh, trends or no trends, this is, in fact, what every publisher is looking for. So why is it important that the best writing and artwork show something personal from a child's world? And wouldn't, wouldn't just the best writing and artwork already be enough? Well, that is an interesting question. Um, I came up with that quote because I needed to put something on my website. And I think I wanted to say from a child's point of view, because sometimes when people are starting out and looking for, they have an idea that they want to share with a kid, they have forgotten to really tap their, I hate to use this phrase, but they've forgotten to think like a kid and they're writing like an adult who's condescending or sharing to children. So I think when I said that thing about from a child's point of view, I was, I was trying to speak to what I suspected would be some of the people who were reading my website and wondering whether they should work with me. Um, I'm sure we could think of great books that aren't from a, you know, really from a kid's point of view at all that are for kids. But when I think of the ones that I read over and over, it was always because there was a kid I related to in some way and I liked. And whether I realized it or not, I was projecting myself into them and I understood how they felt, and I wanted to, you know, hear how it came out. Um, I, you know, I'm not even sure Dr. Seuss, like, I, the, the, there's an illustration, like One Fish, Two Fish, that was one of my favorite books as a kid. Is that really, does it have a kid and a kid's point of view in it? Not really, but it certainly knows what kids think is funny or interesting. There's a picture of sheep walking across um, across a landscape at night that I, I would predict, I would suspect I must have spent, you know, 50 hours staring at when I was like two and three years old. I was really haunted by it. So, yeah, I hope that answers your question. I think that it does. How, uh, how do you maintain a, a, a child's perspective uh, when you're editing middle grade fiction and, and, and make sure that you're staying within the, within the realm of what's a pro, what, what would be ideal for kids? Well, I know Ursula Nordstrom, the legendary editor at Harper, who not only discovered Maurice Sendak, but she worked with Laura Ingalls Wilder and all the greats sort of of the, she, the Nutshell Library. The, I, I've never worked at Harper, so I can't spew off Ursula's many great credentials, but she was probably the most famous children's book editor in history. And a book of her letters is collected and called Dear Genius. Um, but anyway, Ursula said, I was a child and I, I remember every single moment. And that's kind of how I feel. I just remember what I thought when I was reading. And that's what I apply. And that is, it's interesting because I think books have changed some, but that that really has not changed. Kids sort of feel the same inside. 
They still want to see themselves. They still want a story that they care about and that's interesting to them. They don't like, you know, the thing that never works is that thing that somebody thinks is going to touch all the hot points and they like shove it into a formula and put it out there and kids just roll their eyes at that. They know that somebody's trying to reach them. And, uh, we turn things down that have, um, where you can just see that somebody had this like, hey, Riverdale is hot, so what if we took Riverdale and Never Have I Ever and made it all black characters for Black Lives Matter and stuck in, um, what else is trendy right now? Um, socio, uh, what do they call it? It's um, emotional learning or something and, and put in like, EQ and they'll all be wearing masks and you get that and you're like, a kid would look at that. <laughs> give me a break. We get submissions like that all the time. You know, the formulaic, this will appeal to a child. Never works. That was editor Elizabeth Law from episode 93. Next up is author Tanya Duncan Ellis from episode 94. So here, and I'm going to get a little bit into the weeds because uh, you you know I told you before you came on here that the whole point of this was for me to pick your brain and learn your secrets so I can go and do likewise. So for these in-person events, um, when I've done them, I've grown a little bit frustrated because, you know, I might sell 20, 30, 50 books uh, in person. That's a tremendous day for in person. But then I'll come home and I'll check my online numbers. And while I was there working my butt off to sell those books... Uh, passively, I've been beating that number without doing anything. Oh, I could have been home playing PlayStation. Um, <laughs> so what, what was I doing with my afternoon? So how do you make those uh, festivals work for you? How do you get people's attention to make, make that work, that commitment of your time? Well, for me, um, a lot of times when I would go, I would be meeting teachers and librarians. So it was worth it for me because those connections got me entrees into schools and different things like from one, I met um, uh, one librarian and then she bought a set of my books. I got, well, she bought several sets and then I had the school visit and I'm getting paid for that. So, and that was happening quite a bit or I would meet bloggers and different people here who would feature me, you know, and write about my books. And even one time I went to one event and I only sold 88 books and I was there from like nine to four. That was one of the worst events like that. But I met someone from a children's center. She had a video recorded of the children. She had bought some books of them reading my books. It was all over the internet. So all of those events for me, they were beneficial really from the connections that I made. I think though that was the best part of of them. So they were really um, beneficial. And then at home, I mean, I don't know how many you sell then passively. I would sell, but um, for me, it was and even the interaction with the readers and things. And the, I got a lot. I take pictures of some of my readers with their parent permission. So those are promotional materials for me that I can use on the internet because a lot of my sales are coming from you know, different parts just to get that visibility. So um, for me, they really were worth it. And then I have one little market that is in my neighborhood. Literally, it's maybe uh, four or five miles away. So for me, it wasn't 
that difficult to go put up my stand for a little bit on a Saturday, be there three hours and come home. So it wasn't, uh, and I could have my kids help. So they True really, labor, that is important. <laughs> yeah, that they've been, those things really helped me grow, I think, and got me, um, my business growing. So I assume when you go to an event like this, you're not uh, sitting, uh, you, you know, you, you're not putting up your stand and your books and then sitting there staring at your phone uh, or, or being at How are you approaching people to make these connections that are working out so well? And I do have a sales and marketing background. So and I, I actually I really love little kids. So I don't it's like I'm the pipe piper or something or I don't know. The kids just come up and usually I'll have candy there or something and and i talk to them i like to talk to them i I love little kids and they come the parents come but i do stand i don't um sit i usually stand and engage with the people that are coming back what's that i I wrote down bribe with candy got it (laughs) yeah uh Candy's candy's good that attracts them to my booth they see the candy they come by and then I just start talking to them. Why, they, why would standing be preferable to sitting? I mean, you're just more welcoming. When you're sitting on the phone, they may think that you're busy or that you're doing something that you don't want to be bothered. So when you're looking up and looking out, it's attracting people to you. When you're standing on your feet, you're inviting them to come into your space. For all the introverts out there, you got to get out. Are you and, making a friendly eye contact or are you a little bit of a carnival barker? Hey, you fine person, come step up. For I, don't, the- I don't say that. I may say, hello, hey, how are you doing? I don't act like the people at the mall that are in the center calling you over, but <laughs> I do Good. greet them and speak to them if they're coming or make eye contact and maybe speak to them. And usually they'll see the books and they're attracted to the covers and the books and they'll come up to my booth. That was author Tanya Duncan Ellis from episode 94. Next up is author Victoria Bond from episode 95. How about uh, when you're when you're writing a fictionalized version? I mean, Zora is very, uh, I think I heard you and Tanya compare her to Sherlock Holmes, uh, to Carrie's Watson. Yeah. Um, when you're, and obviously the, the real life story was, probably was, uh, extremely Sherlock Holmes as a child, but how much, um, how much leeway do you feel you have when you're writing about somebody who's kind of sort of real, even though she's mm-hmm. not exactly the version you're writing about? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I never felt like I didn't have leeway. It never, <laughs> it never <laughs> occurred to me not to do what I wanted to do. I think in part because I never I never considered writing anything about young Zora that would be out of step with who she became. You know, I guess I always kind of gave myself the credit of honoring her memory and honoring her legacy and her work. So I never put any bounds or barriers around what I could or couldn't write or say or not say. Because I guess I just always knew within myself and within the universe of these books that whatever we would say would be in step and honor some aspect of 
who she was in life and what her work is a testament to. When you're writing about uh, 1905, um, how much research are you doing? Are you actually going out and doing a little bit of laundry the way um, that, that they would have done it then um, to get that experience? Or are you just reading about it and that's more than, a, than sufficient to, to give you the, what you need to, to write? Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you do your research and how much of it was necessary? Well, I mostly did reading. You know, I didn't learn how to do the laundry, but I will tell you that the whole kind of laundry piece of it came from a a book by a friend of mine called No Mercy Here, which is the story of black women and incarceration in the Jim Crow South. And um, one thing that I discovered when I read that book is that black women laundresses were often blamed for illnesses. So if someone became ill in a household, the laundress was accused of doing a poor job and, you know, proliferating the illness or the virus from, you know, a lack of cleanliness. So that was, I know, right? It's like insane. Like someone you get sick and you like say the laundress did it. It's like, what? But like this was a thing. So that's something else that kind of got woven into the fabric of the book, laundry and the connection to illness. You know, I was kind of turning that over. Another thing in this book that also got into the summer. So maybe I should really, you know, credit Sarah Haley's book, No Mercy Here, is like another big influence because clearly it was. Another thing that got into the book was The Fugitive and you know the lynching you know so that was kind of another thing that i learned about from this book no mercy here is that when a fugitive was on the run whoever the black people were in that area wherever the fugitive happened to be you know moving through or wherever he was he or she was suspected to be the black people in that area became suspects and were often raided and harassed and so forth you know, irrespective of whether or not they knew the person, had heard of the person, you know, it's just all happenstance, you know, based on you're here, you're black, you're involved. Like, huh, what? What are you talking about? I don't know. So that also was a thing that got worked into the summoner as well. I love that Zora's mother is immediately defiant, doesn't believe the official story about why uh, this person is on the run and is, is just openly saying that, hey, if they, if they come around, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to harbor him because it's mm-hmm. my Christian duty. Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe you don't say that so loud, but yeah, right on. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I, I felt like I couldn't not write that in, you know, because I just it it didn't feel like everyone would deny someone a need, you know. Like it, 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 I felt like it would, it would be against the nature of the people that we have been writing these books about for everyone to turn off their lights, shut the door, and say no one's here. You know, good luck. You know, I just, I, I couldn't stomach that for these characters, and I hope if put in a similar situation, I would, I would do the right thing, not the safe thing. So. Well, fortunately, racism is a thing of the past, and I'm sure we'll never have to deal with any similar circumstances. Yeah, oh, that's over. Well, let's uh, let's let's dive into that just a bit because you are writing about the Jim Crow South. Mm-hmm. This is a middle grade novel, but you're not sugarcoating anything. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you're you're making reference to uh, violence, to um, to rape, um, um, among other uh, horrific things throughout the book. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is book three. Uh, so the nice thing you've got going for you is any uh, adults that might be up in arms, I think children will be fine, but any adults that might be up in arms that this is too advanced for a middle grade audience. Well, they, they had two books to get the tone and the gist of this series. This mm-hmm. isn't, this it shouldn't be a surprise by the summoner. Mm-hmm. But how did you and Tanya approach that to tell the truth, um, but to keep things appropriate for a middle grade audience? Mm-hmm. That's a really good question. You know, so... I think it never occurred to us not to present the the history and the reality of the dynamics at play here. I think that, in fact, was the reason why we wanted to write these books at all, is that it gave us a chance to explore these issues with a young audience. So I think that that was, you know, writing about Zora Neale Hurston gave us again, kind of a gateway into discussing so many different types of issues related to race and gender Um, in the context of Eatonville, which was extremely unique as one of the first all-Black incorporated towns. So in that regard, I felt like we got to have it kind of both ways. We get to explore the racism and the sexism of the Jim Crow South, but we get to do so in this very unique context of a kind of contained Black democracy, which was something that I really loved exploring in the summoner. Um, about what I, you know, what I say or what I think about presenting these issues to, you know, a young audience, a middle grade audience, it's like kids are watching this news that we're all watching, right? Kids are at these protests. Kids have relatives that are, you know, abusing them, abusing other people, abused by the police. You know, kids are in middle, especially middle schoolers, middle graders, they're in the middle of all this stuff. So my position has always been like, how dare anyone gaslight kids? You know, kids are in tough situations. They're seeing this stuff. They're doing tough things themselves. Kids need some help. They need to have experience, virtual experiences, right? Navigating difficult situations so they can kind of grow their skill set, grow their coping mechanisms, you know, have some insight into how other people have navigated things that no one should have to navigate, right? So I feel like kids are living life and it's hard. How dare anyone pretend that it's not? Well, you know, I, I 100% am, am, am with you, and yet I was horrified just this very day. One, I just learned that there was a thing called Prager University a week ago. I was happier not knowing that it existed, mm-hmm. uh, which for those of you that, that, that aren't aware, don't look it up. It, it's just terrible, but it's a very much propaganda, pro-right-wing propaganda. And I just learned that there are schools in Ohio and elsewhere that are mm-hmm. incorporating that as part of their curriculum. So I'm hoping it's those students that most need to read Zora and me and, and, and need to know that, no, you're being lied to. Read the actual history, understand mm-hmm. what happened. Mm-hmm. I don't have a question in there, just just my own horror at having learned these things recently. Yeah, well, you know, I... 
something that I often think is that as much as, you know, kids of color, readers of color need representation of people like them, need to see people like them, need to read depictions of their own history, I think white kids and white readers need books that focus on kids of color and their experiences and their humanity just as much, <laughs> you know, and I, it just blows my mind that these issues aren't at the, the forefront of, you know, curriculum, basically, and, you know, in history and English classes across the board, just because they help grow all of our humanity, you know, period. You know, as a kid, surprise, I'm black, right? But like as a kid, I, it never occurred to me, oh, you know, all oh, this white characters being so white, I can't understand them. They're so different than me. You know, I think kids of color read and we're just absorbed in the experiences of the characters, what their lives are, what the story is in a way that I I can't believe I'm saying this, but for me as a kid, so most of my reading experiences were colorblind, even though most of the books I read were by white people and about white people. I, it never was a barrier to me expanding and, you know, expanding my sense of humanity, reading about white people. <laughs> so I think, you know, black kids, kids of color have been doing this for a millennia. I think some white kids can do it too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, it's not a big deal. It's just, you know, it's just a book with black people in it. Like, we've been reading, like, lots of books with white people in it. It's not a big deal. Like, it's just a book. It has a story. Just you know, it'll be fine. Well, it's a, it is a big deal because more white children do need to read these things. It's a shame that for so long, many of them haven't because it's not, I mean, it's not black history, white history. This mm -hmm. is American history. This yeah. is all of our history. If you're wondering how things got to the point we're at now, well, it didn't start the moment you were born. A lot of this stuff has been in motion since long back. Uh, not that I need to tell you. <laughs> yeah. so thank you. But no, but thank you, because I was being a little bit glib. So thank you for giving the the topic the, the gravity that it deserves. Well, I just read the book. You, you're the one with the gravity. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my book has alligator people and jetpacks. I'm not touching Jim Crow South uh, <laughs> thus far in my literature. Maybe we'll get there. That was author Victoria Bond from episode 95. Next up is author John Gallagher from episode 96. Most authors, uh, most cartoonists are like that. If they could just create a book a day, they would. And uh, But, you know, the, the fun part is the ideas. There's a lot of times when it's just the work of doing the art, getting it colored, making sure you fix your mistakes. Um, that's one of the things I try to remind people, uh, young artists and writers who are want to do uh, this and get into this field. Is to uh, make the mistakes and fix them as fast as they can. Yeah, and, and don't let yourself get caught up. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, Max Meow, uh, I purposely, because we had created in, the, in this classroom environment, had created Max Meow so fast that I purposely 
uh, as I was working on the first, say, 70 pages, I, I started off drawing on paper and I was drawing and sketching just as fast as I could. I was doing 10 or 12 pages a day of thumbnails and because I wanted to have that frenetic feel to it. And um, so then when I went back to do the final art, I still had that sort of fun feel and I, I kind of had to uh, force myself not to clean up my artwork too much. I wanted that that feel you get when you've just drawn something, you know, sometimes you see sketches to comics and graphic novels and you they look more exciting than the final art. I wanted to not lose that. So in a sense, it's, you know, have faith in yourself and be ready to make mistakes and kind of just keep moving. You know, yeah, I've met so many artists who just keep redrawing the same page over and over. And that's you, you know, all you're going to get good at is drawing those things that are on that page. But if you draw an entire story, whether it's three pages or 200, you're going to have to draw a lot of different things. And uh, the idea is just to try to do better each page. Well, with this book without again, without spoiling, there are some major twists uh, there at the end that obviously involves some planning ahead of time because you set them up earlier. Um, do you have a similar plan for book two and book three and then book four, five, and six, or however far out you're going to go? Or uh, Well, you know, when I initially pitched the book to Random House, I had a three-book arc that I, that I could do. And if we, if we got through that, that would be great. Uh, I do write them in such a way that I want uh, a reader to be able to pick it up, any, any book, and there will be a recap kind of what's happened. And, you know, I mentioned how I love Batman. The Batman TV series from the 60s used to always end with these questions like, you know, who is that mysterious figure in the in the shadows? Will Max be able to save the day? And, uh, of course, my joke is they never really answer those questions half the time. But, you know, that was influenced by the Batman TV series. And they also used to do a little recap at the beginning of every episode. So I try to have that. And Max is basically doing his podcast and explaining to the reader what's going on. And uh, so I have a plan. I would say 50% of what I plan actually happens in my books. The other 50 becomes something different because the characters kind of will take off in a different direction. Uh, and I'm trying to think with Max Meow, there's, there's a whole scene where he's trying to save somebody who's stuck in a tree. And that was just going to be, it's the playoff, the old Superman pulls a cat out of the tree and brings it down. But Max hasn't learned how to be a superhero yet. So with his electric tail, he accidentally uh, blasts the tree and the person inside the tree, who's okay. But uh, the thing is that I knew there was going to be a rescue there. I didn't know what was going to happen. And, and I do have certain things that the characters learn about themselves. Uh, the first book is really about the, the the dichotomy of Mindy, who is a planner, and Max, who is not a planner. And he's got the superpowers, and he thinks it'd be neat to bust through a wall, whereas Mindy's like, have you tried turning the doorknob? And uh, and I feel like every, every kid can relate to that. We've all had that, when we were kids, had that energy. And, um, you know, book two deals with a different aspect of their relationship, which is Mindy is a planner. And what happens if you plan so much that you don't let yourself try new things? And so I tried, I want to have every book have something about it, but really have fun, have the fun be the, the part of the book that 
brings the kids in and and hopefully the story, the the character development, because it's really about relationships, uh, is what gets them to read it a second or third time. No, and so many follow questions uh, to that, but um, something that strikes me right away when you do have uh, characters that are having arcs um, that their relationship does deepen, but you're going to go on for theoretically in perpetuity. Um, you know, we're, we're going to be talking about, I'm going to talk to you about Max Meow number 20. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when you, when you have that, I mean, obviously Max will always have another villain uh, to face and villains will come back for revenge and all that, all the, all the usual things I imagine. Um, but when you do character arcs like that, is there a danger that once you once you satisfied, you know, if uh, Batman ever ever feels like he's fought enough crime and has full satisfaction, an empty place inside of him is at long last filled up? What's the issue after that look like? <laughs> right, that's a that's a good question, and you know, you, you're actually bringing up something that relates to uh, you know what we call mainstream comics, but I think are less mainstream than you know than the books that are in the library and that the middle grade books and YA books that we're reading. And in the case of to keep, you know, with Max Meow, it's it's my baby. And uh, if we reached a point, if I reached a point with that, then I would stop those books. Uh, I'd like to think that, you know, there may be an ending for Max. I haven't, I haven't figured it out yet. And, uh, but I do think it's important to not treat it. I wouldn't ever want to treat it like, oh, this is just, you know, you get time to make the donuts. Okay, we'll just throw in these these ten ideas and and combine it together. There's always got to be something, and it's just like everyday life for us. You know, uh, we always we have these events that happen in our lives, but we get up the next day and new things are going to happen. And uh, so hopefully, uh, you know, those elements will be there. There's obviously some other great authors that have managed to add. Uh, uh, a multitude of books like Jenny and Matt Holm who do the baby mouse series. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, Dogman, I owe a great deal to, and the level of fun that Dave Pilkey brings, but also the heart that he brings to readers with, uh, you know, that's something to aspire to. And uh, going back again, I actually had an arc for the first three books, but I went to, I went to type up the full plot for book two and I wrote a completely different story. And luckily, my editor, Shana Corey at Random House, she was so positive about it. She's like, sure, let's do this. And, uh, you know, I always try to throw something tricky in that will make kids go feel smart. Like if they know this from reading a comic, they can go tell someone. They don't have to tell them where they read it. Uh, I wanted I had just watched a documentary on the multiverse theory, on string theory. And I'm like, I'm going to figure out a way to put that into a middle grade graphic novel. So uh, so book two actually has element talking about multiple universes. And I think I explained it in a way that was understandable. And just as I learned when the Justice League and the Justice Society met in DC Comics years and years ago, that they explained, you know, this this whole theory that was really fascinating to me in kind of a, a way that I could understand. And I remember having people say to me, well, you know, how did you learn that? And I'm like, comic books. So I think that was what got me caught up. And uh, so I ended up taking my book two plot and moving that to book three. And book three is now book four. 
And, you know, so, and I, I did start to, you know, first book, you're always trying to just make it fun and exciting. And you don't know if there's going to be a book too. Now that I know that we've got a series of books, there are certain ideas I have. Now, they could go off in weird directions, but, you know, and like you asked, uh, what do you do when, you know, Max reaches his goals? And uh, I guess, I guess just like me, he gets new goals. I assume he pulls on another Max from the multiverse and that Max has a problem <laughs> that he can help out with. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you were uh, mentioning, I, I, I howled at the scene where uh, uh, Max saves a person from a tree. Fantastic. Um, and it just made me think this is an old man story, but I think two Xboxes ago, there was a Superman Returns video game. It was an open world, and one of the missions was Superman flies around to multiple trees throughout Metropolis and just saves cats. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, that's such a, an iconic scene in the original uh, Christopher Reeve Superman, the movie, uh, where he brings a cat down. And, you know, I I wanted to incorporate that in because even, even when... Uh, uh, Superman was rebooted in the 80s by John Byrne. He incorporated a scene that was just like that. Uh, I think he added his own special flair. So I guess this was my attempt at that, my nod to these original superheroes. And and, I, and I've come to understand, too, that, you know, a lot of the cartoonists who are doing uh, the, the middle grade novels aren't necessarily people that read superhero comics as kids. Uh, that's, you know, definitely where I'm coming from. Uh, Judd Winnick, who does Hilo, he, he, like me, was a superhero kid. And so I'm just sort of fascinated because I didn't realize there was another way to come into comics uh, until talking to, like, Raina Telgemeier, who, of course, read comic strips and for better or for worse. And uh, so about 10 years ago, I started to really start looking at comic strips in a different sort of way. Because I had always come from the comic periodical and the, the comic strip itself it has to do so much in such a short period of time. And I would say uh, Max Meow is definitely me trying to tap an inner Charles Schultz or Bill Watterson in, in the, again, it's, it's going to drawing fast and fun. That was author John Gallagher from episode 96. Next up is author Henna Khan from episode 97. When uh, when did you think, okay, well, I will write fiction, and then why specifically middle grade or, or, or picture books, children-oriented fiction? So I think um, once I had that chance and that taste of children's writing and realized it was something I wanted to keep doing, um, around the same time, I became a mom. And so I was taking my son back to the same library I had grown up going to before they bulldozed it. And and I, I was really looking for representation that I didn't have as a kid. And, um, you know, when I was growing up and I was filling up those bags of books, I, I wasn't aware of the fact that my story was missing or that I wasn't on the pages. I wasn't consciously aware of that. I think I subconsciously was. And I know now, looking back at even the things I wrote, that I was colored by not having seen myself. Um, but I definitely wanted my, my children to, to have the representation that was missing. And I, I kind of just assumed that it would be there. You know, all these years had passed since I was a little kid. And um, so I did actively go look for, for literature featuring Pakistani American Muslim kids like mine. And uh, I couldn't find anything. And 
Um, and it was really my son being in preschool and being asked by one of the teaching assistants during a Ramadan party um, to read something to the kids. And she had actually printed something off the internet about what Ramadan is and uh, offered for me to read it to the kids. And I was feeling a little shy and wasn't used to presenting to kids back then. So I was like, no, no, you know, why don't you go ahead? And so she started reading and it was just this horribly boring, you know, Wikipedia type entry about what Ramadan is using words that kids couldn't understand. And these are four and five, like three and four and five year olds who were just completely bored and confused. And that's what made me realize that, you know, there's nothing that's appropriate. The books that I could find that featured, you know, Muslim characters were either written by Muslim publishers for the purposes of teaching people how to practice their faith, like sort of like, you know, Quran stories for little hearts or, you know, things like that. Um, or there were super referency books like by National Geographic about, you know, what is Ramadan or, you know, that type of very, very basic um, nonfiction book, but nothing with a story, nothing that really simplified things down to the perspective of a kid, nothing that to me made the holidays feel accessible and um, relatable. So for me, that that was what I thought, well, we need this. And, um, and that was sort of a, the idea that launched Light, Night of the Moon, which is my first picture book. Um, so it was very much in reaction to seeing what was not in existence at the time and wanting to really with the, with the school library and public library audience in mind, wanting to create something that fit that space. And when I got to publish Night of the Moon, which came out with uh, Chronicle Books, which was um, wonderful. And I, I love them. They, they create really beautiful books and um, little works of art, I think, with amazing paper and foil and the cover and things like that. Um, I thought, well, that was fun. You know, <laughs> I wrote a book. You know, and even though I had the scholastic titles under my belt, I still didn't feel like I could call myself an author. I didn't really consider myself a professional writer. And, um, and then time passed and I thought, oh, well, you know, the Ramadan book is great, but it's still a holiday book. Like, it would be really nice to go to a bookstore um, and see a book. You know, I noticed that even on the little section that had the religious section or whatever you want to call it, they had, you know, books about Christianity and books about mostly and then a few books about Judaism and then nothing about Islam. And I realized that the Night of the Moon was a seasonal book that would be would come be ordered during the holidays and come and go. So, um, so that's when I thought of golden Jones and silver lanterns, which is a, a concept book that introduces colors, but also introduces things that are special to Muslim people. And I think with both my first picture books, I, I tried to sell it as something bigger than a story just about Muslims. So night of the moon was about the lunar cycle and about Ramadan and golden domes and silver lanterns is a book, you know, you learn about colors and learn about Muslims. And I felt like I needed that hook to try to convince publishers that it was worth something. Um, but also, you know, maybe to try to gain as, as wide a readership as possible. Um, and, and so it sort of grew from that. That was sort of what made me want to, to publish books about people like me. Um, and then it sort of evolved from that and the industry evolved. And I feel like, um, you know, the Carrie George Ramadan book came along and, and others. And then I, I really, I think the middle grade novel, Amina's Voice, my first one really grew out of it being the, representing the type of book I would have loved as a kid and would have wanted to have read. Um, and in many ways, Amina is like me, um, a child of 
experience, you know, growing up, although she's growing up in today's world, like, you know, just trying to figure out life and, um, and, you know, an everyday kid. And that was to me really important to have that representation where her identity is not her struggle. And uh, I think when I was growing up, the few books I did see where it, a, a person was uh, non-white or, um, you know, maybe coming from a different culture or had parents who were immigrants, I felt like the common story was a, a bit of um, insecurity or, um, you know, self hatred almost about, you know, why am I this way? Or why do my parents have an accent? Or why can't I be like, you know, this, this kid at school and, and then maybe coming to accept themselves or their culture and being proud. But I felt like that was so done. And I really wanted um, my characters to not for their identity for not not to be their issue. Um, and for them to be unapologetically who they are and, and deal with regular kid challenges um, that all kids go through. I definitely want to ask just a little bit more about representation. But first, a cynical question jumps to mind that I can't help myself from asking. Uh, if you have the option for two picture books, one about colors that can sell all year long, but one that's about a holiday that can come back every year and you can go back and, and, and promote it every year. You've got both, but which is preferable? <laughs> um, well, I did mention Ramadan in, in Golden Domes and Silver Lanterns also. Um, Oh, covering all the bases. I like yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, just because it's such an important part of, of the faith. But yeah, I mean, honestly, both. And, you know, I, I'm grateful that these books are still backlisting well. Like, to, I mean, it, Night of the Moon came out in 2008. So it's been around for a long time and it's still in print. And um, so that that's amazing to see. Um, and just the reception that these books have gotten, you know, those two, I think, were what prompted the Ramadan Cares George book and it's sort of in the slow build where people I think the industry is slowly realizing too that these books have value that people do want them and um and you know they, they can make money off of them because obviously at the end of the day that's what they care about so um I mean apart from changing the world and <laughs> enriching people's um you know lives of course of course but um, you can't do it, that the lights don't stay on sure exactly it's a business so they need to see that these are profitable for them too so yeah I, I think i might have trailed off and forgotten your question or half of it <laughs> Sorry. oh i was just uh, i wasn't a very serious question i was just wondering uh for picture book artists who are thinking that they may only have they they might only be able to choose one is it better to have a consistent seller or get that sweet holiday seller and every year, you know, you've got another shot at, okay, this year we're in quarantine, but next year I'll be back at the bookstores and the libraries. Yeah, well, I do think a lot of people, I mean, you do see a lot of books around events, you know, like the spooky books that are coming out now for Halloween, and they're doing great right now. But, um, but of course, they have that limited time frame, and, and you hope that. But I think you can't go wrong with either, or both. <laughs> well, I mean, ideally, you have a nice long career, and you write, uh, you write plenty of each. Um, so talking just a little bit about representation, then we'll, we'll start talking about your book specifically. Sure. Um, but what difference do you feel that having books um, uh, about Muslim, um, about Muslim American characters would have made for you as a child reader? And what difference do you see it making for readers that are enjoying your books now? And also, what's your favorite reader reaction to something you've written? Oh, wow. So I think, well, I mentioned that I 
I know that it did make a difference in my life, even though I didn't realize it when I was a kid. And I think like so many people, when you, you don't realize what's missing in your life until you finally see it. And I think for me, it wasn't until I was 30 that I first picked up a book and felt like I had that, what Walter Dean Myers called the, the shock of recognition and seeing myself on a page. And it was The Namesake by Jhumpa Lahiri. And it wasn't even that, you know, the characters were exactly like me. They were a Bangladeshi American family. Um, the protagonist was male. You know, it wasn't like, oh, this is exactly me. But the immigrant experience, this immigrant family and the main character's mother was so reminiscent of my mom that it was it was jarring um, and amazing and powerful to see. And so incredibly validating, too, to see your story on on a page and um, and it took me that long, you know, to be 30. And and even though I didn't realize it as a kid, I had started looking probably in, in college a bit more and started reading South Asian American literature, South Asian literature, um, which I could relate to to a point, but it was still mostly people in India writing about being Indian. And I could identify to certain with certain cultural elements and you know, a sari or a mango or you know, things like that that were significant to me, but it still wasn't my story. Um, and how I realized eventually that, apart from starting to look for it, the representation as I got older, uh, I think what made me realize uh, that it did affect me was going back and reading my own writing from when I was a child. And I actually wrote a family newspaper and I talked about what was happening in my family and I had issues of it. I used to tape it together. It was like line notebook paper and I had different sections and it was really fascinating to find a bunch of these in a box I used to save my writing and and it was like this time capsule you know going back and reading about my thoughts as a fourth grader or whatever I was when I was writing it and what I noticed and I, I talk about this when I when I talk to kids and I show them actually pages of my scan pages of my family newspaper and how even though I had sections devoted to food and you know sp very specific aspects of life I did not mention anything about my background or culture you know so even though I grew up in a Pakistani American household and we ate Pakistani food almost every night. There was Urdu being spoken at home. My mother wore shalwar kameez, our traditional clothing, every day. Um, you know, Muslim family, Muslim traditions and all of that. Like none of that was in my own family newspaper. And I can only imagine that I left all those details out because I thought nobody cared about them. I wasn't seeing them anywhere else, you know, not in any of the literature I was consuming, not in the media, not in television or film or anywhere else so um is this a newspaper to be consumed just by your family or for the school as well oh no this was a family newspaper that was really probably read by nobody <laughs> which I, <laughs> uh, maybe my parents read it I, I did include a lot of hints for them it was like a lot of tattling on my siblings and you know um <laughs> what i wanted you know for my birthday and things like that woven into editorial letters and things like that but um but yeah it was just for fun and you know and that was where when people asked me did you always want to be a writer you know i think I did always want to be a writer and I always was a writer. I just never thought it was something I could do. And I never, I didn't know any authors. I'd never met any. I didn't, you know, we didn't have the internet back then. So I couldn't even check to see if an author I knew or an author I liked was alive or dead. They were just names on books for me. So it wasn't even something I thought I could do. Um, and the only author picture I ever saw was this woman, um, Barbara Cartland, Dame Barbara Cartland. She wrote uh, historical fiction romances and my mom had a collection of them and on the back cover of the book there was a picture of her and she's this 
imposing woman. She's silver haired and she's wearing fur and she's sitting on gilded furniture with a little dog. And, and to me, that was what an author was. You know, I, it wasn't anything like me. So it wasn't anything I considered. But um, I think the lack of representation really added to that, too. And I, I can only imagine what what it might have been like had I seen myself and what stories I might have felt comfortable sharing about myself and my own life. Um, and now just to see, you know, the other part of your question, kids react to, to seeing themselves. I mean, it's, it's amazing to have kids, even, even when I visit schools to, if I mention certain things or when they've read, you know, parts of my books or they can identify with things I'm talking about to see them, you know, kind of bursting inside or like squirming or making the connection sign or doing all this stuff because they, they, they finally see someone like themselves. Um, and just some of the letters I've gotten about, you know, kids saying that they felt prouder about who they were or how they, you know, just in so many, in their own words, they're basically saying that they finally felt seen and, um, and how validating that, that is for them in, in different ways. So um, I think the most moving I ever moving letter I ever got was from a, a little girl talking about how, um, you know, she felt prouder to be who she was, and that it made that kind of difference in her life. And I was just like, wow. Um, so yeah, things like you that. You take a letter like that and you frame it where you can see it while you <laughs> exactly. write. Exactly. <laughs> I have a folder, a special folder where I save them all, and when I have those moments where I'm like, nobody loves me, then I I pull them out and it makes me feel better. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Definitely. I'm jealous. That sounds like a heck of a letter. Yeah, no, it really was. Um, and yeah, they're definitely something I save and um, and draw from <laughs> whatever I can. That was author Hannah Khan from episode 97. Next up is author Melissa De La Cruz from episode 98. So 53 books. What? Uh, I'm sorry, 63. I keep I keep taking Ted off. I apologize. What? keeps you writing and what do you still what what do you wish to do that you haven't done over the course of, of 63 books um nothing <laughs> i i mean i've done it uh, if i want to write it i wrote it um i even wrote uh a book that i've been talking about i think i've been talking about it for 10 years to my husband we bought our house in palm springs and when we bought it uh, almost 10 years ago, I'm not quite 50 yet, but we bought it right two years before my 40th birthday. And I said, oh, this is going to be my 40th birthday present. And we're going to have this huge party. We're going to like have magazines come out and shoot us. And like, you know, this is going to be like the big 40th birthday celebration house. Uh, and I joked that that was my 40th birthday gift. Um, and that, but we never had the party and we had lots of other parties, but we didn't have that exact party. And I wrote about it in a book called The Birthday Girl. And I'd been wanting to write it because I wanted to write about this woman who was so self-aggrandizing. Because I was so shocked at myself at that age that I was I had such a huge ego and this, you know, kind of like delusions of grandeur. And I wanted to write about this woman who wants to show off so much and, you know, bought this house in Palm Springs for her 40th birthday. And just as she's having this insane party, you know, everything falls apart. So I'd been talking about this book for about um, maybe eight years, and I finally wrote it, <laughs> and it came out last year. Um, so yeah, that was kind of my last, you know, like, what have I not done, you know, question. Like, if you'd asked me, 
even two years ago, I'd say, oh, I have this book. It's my Palm Springs book. I always called it my Palm Springs book. Um, but yeah, I finally wrote it. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I feel really lucky. I get to tell the stories that I want to tell. You know, I, I figure out a way to, um, you know, uh, match my interests with my job um, and to write the stories uh, that I'm already contracted to write. You know, like I don't have a side gig <laughs> where I have to get something out, you know, like everything kind of is in the books. So, um, so I feel really lucky that I get to do that. Let's see. I'm watching our time and it flies, but it always does. Where's it go? Uh, <laughs> I've got about two more questions for you. And we'll call it a night. That seems okay. reasonable. Sure. Um, you mentioned uh, ego, so I feel it's it's fair to follow up because you have had such a successful career. Uh, what what bestseller list have you not been at the top of? Um, when you're having that success repeatedly, it only makes sense that sooner or later you're going to sit back and think, well, you know, I'm I'm pretty darn good at this, evidently. Um, um, we, we talk a lot on this show about uh, a healthy writer ego because you don't want to be so shy that you're afraid to put your thoughts on the page or terrified to work, but you don't want to get so egotistical that you're not taking advice from others. How have you managed your ego so that it hasn't been a detriment to you? Yeah, um, I do think that all writers need to be really confident. Um, and, and by that, I mean, you know, you need to kind of believe in yourself and to believe that your vision for that story or, you know, you, your talent, your writing is worthy to be put out there because if you don't believe in that, who's going to believe in it, you know? Um, and especially with books, you know, in movies, you have to go through so many people have to like it. Like, and I even um, told, told my editor, if I can't convince these four people, you know, who published, you know, so many of my books, this is a good idea. And it's probably not a good idea, you know, um, because they're going to have to convince the sales team, convince the marketing team. And then that team has to convince the booksellers and the booksellers have to convince, you know, the readers. So you have to convince so many people. Um, and so if you don't believe in yourself, how is anybody else going to believe in you? Um, and then the other thing that you said is, you know, not to be so egotistical that you can't take advice. You know, definitely, you know, while being confident, you do have to be humble. And, you know, and I think that you can always learn. And I always kind of remember that there's always, you know, something new to discover about the world or, you know, some new. And I, I love working with uh, the young editors. Uh, you, so my editors have now become the publishers, you know, after 20, 25 years, they're all at the heads of all the publishing companies. You know, we all started out, you know, young people together and now we're not. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, uh, the assistant editors are kind of these young, uh, young people in their 20s. And uh, and it's so fun to work with them. And it's fun to work with, um, you know, just fresh voices, you know. And, uh, you know, my goal is to never be that old lady on the lawn, you know, shaking my <laughs> fist. I mean... I, I really do think that young people are really interesting. And I think, you know, you need to kind of learn how to speak their language and see what they're interested in now, you know, especially now when they have so much more of a voice and, you know, they're changing, you know, our culture, you know, um, for the better, I think. Um, 
you know, I, I find it fascinating. I think, and I think it's really fun. It's invigorating. It keeps me young. Um, but yeah, I, my only time when I had, you know, not just during the time of the Palm Springs house was also the time when we were selling blue bloods as a TV show. This was about 10 years ago also. And, uh, we had gotten all these yeses. We were going to do it with McGee's company and Warner was going to do it. So it was like, yes, from Warner. Yes, from McGee. Yes, yes, yes. It was working on the pitch, working on, uh, on the show. And they said, oh, it's definitely going to be in the CW. You know, the CW is so excited. Um, they want a vampire show. And, you know, my ego and my big head just got gigantic. And, uh, and, then, uh, and then it didn't happen. You know, the CW passed. Because at the same time, they were developing a show called The Vampire Diaries. So that show was dead to me. <laughs> that was my time slot. <laughs> that was my 10-year series. Um, but, you know, but after I went, and, and it's funny, my husband says, oh, God, you were so horrible at that stage. You know, nobody could say anything to you. And I remember that. Um, so ever since then, you know, I really kind of, you know, it's like, am I, I think ever since then, when I thought that I was going to have this huge TV show, like, uh, and it didn't happen, you know, I've kind of become a little bit more grounded, I would say. And, you know, it's funny because a year later we did Witches of East End, which did become a TV show. And even though that actually happened, my head did not get big at all. <laughs> I was like, that's never going to happen to me again. That was really terrible to be that kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like it was just a phase, thankfully. And uh, <laughs> well, <Yeah. laughs> well, my uh, final question is always some variation of: if you could go back toward the start of your career, middle of career, where would be most helpful to you, and give yourself some advice that would have made a significant difference for you and might make a difference for everyone who's listening. What would you go back and tell yourself? Hmm. Save a lot more of it. <laughs> Save a lot more <laughs> of the hits. <laughs> you know, um, and it's, it's funny. Uh, I guess in the beginning of my career, you know, I, I was always kind of planning for it. You know, the, the, the fact that I'm sitting here in a way doesn't really surprise me. I knew I was going to work really hard and I knew I was going to crack it. I just had to get lucky. Um, and I feel lucky that I did get lucky. Um, yeah, I think I would say, you know, don't be so stressed. Because there was a, bu a bunch of times when I feel like I was a little bit stressed out. and was a little bit too worried, you know, um, about certain things that ended up not being anything. You know, everything always works out. That was author Melissa De La Cruz from episode 98. Next up is author Jean Neary from episode 99. I remember uh, uh, Ghetto Cowboy, which I was uh, enjoying again this week. Um, I, I remember one of my, um, there's a lot of things to like about that book, but one of my favorite things is Cole's voice mm -hmm. um, and, and how uh, authentic it feels to me, acknowledging that I wouldn't, I haven't met Cole, so I couldn't 100% guarantee that it is, but it feels extremely authentic. So do you have an acting background? How do you get into the character and you create that? Um, I mean, because I've worked in film and theater, like I've been around actors, I've dabbled, but I would never call myself an actor. But um, 
it, it does feel like acting through these characters in a way. Um, I found it very e like when I started working with kid, like particularly like middle school kids early on. I found it very easy to talk to them and relate to them and kind of go back to that time in my life. And, you know, I like the way people really talk <laughs> as opposed to like, I mean, some people are brilliant writers and they could write a sentence that's so beautiful. You could like frame it. But that's yes, you, you not, are one of those writers. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think of myself as one of those writers. Like I think I can do that through somebody else's voice, right? So I don't like to write beautiful sentences. I like to write beautiful dialogue, like how people talk or how that person is telling the story. And if they're like some urban kid, that gives me a lot of leeway. You know, I can mix it up. I can run on. It can be totally grammatically incorrect, and it, but it's real, right? And so that voice is the key for me telling a story all the time. So once I find the voice, and it's just a matter of like, you know, my process is really like treasure hunting. I'm looking, I'm collecting stories. So Ghetto Cowboy takes place in a particular neighborhood in North Philadelphia that's very unusual. Um, and you know, my job is to just like, like a sociologist, just collect stories, like oral stories from people, things that had happened, you know, crazy little incidents, like stories you would just tell at a party, like this crazy thing happened, you know, and just kind of meet all different kinds of people. And then, it, you know, it creates a canvas, like a world, and you get a feeling for how people are and how they talk, um, you know, because people everywhere talk with a certain, you know, use certain words in different parts of the country, certain dialects, certain, you know, affectations, um, you know, how they dress, how they carry themselves. So to me, that's kind of key. Like once you kind of get that, then you can kind of get a feeling for a place through the people, you know? So that's really what I'm looking for. And I, I don't even do it like consciously, you know, I'm, I'm just like, absorb it you know and then the the vo voice starts talking you know as i write as i play around with it you know so it's very organic and very kind of like i don't try to force it you know i try to let it happen i saw on facebook just today uh that you have discovered a um uh, what a, a, a a speak text to text feature on word that you you were you were you're, dialect, you're I might write a whole lot way yeah so how yeah. would that maybe change the process would you be in your office actually acting out the character you think maybe you know it's kind of interesting idea because i'm doing that in my head in a way and i'm just wondering like what would happen if i just played the dialogue out you know like act it out i'm doing it internally but what if i like physically did it so it might be an interesting experiment <laughs> But it is useful for other things because sometimes like my my head my brain moves faster than i can write so if i can just say it <laughs> it seems to be able to keep up to me with me you know i can just like rattle it off and it keeps up so maybe <laughs> 
And you write uh, about you, you. I mean, you've just got a diverse body of work. I mean, um, you're writing about Johnny Cash. You're writing about Harper Lee and Truman Capote as children, different time periods, uh, different all sorts of different characters. So how does your process change um, when you're when you're dealing with a completely new character, something you haven't it's, done before? It's really just about my own personal interest, like stumbling across something, a story like so fascinating. I just want to know more instantly. And so it really doesn't matter what kind of story it is or what time period or what, you know, who the, the protagonists are. Um, it's really about that story. Like a good, a great story is a great story, like period to me. And, you know, there are certain there are certain orders to that in that, you know, things like fantasy and science fiction are more difficult to me because there's an aspect of like, it's not real because it's a fantastic world that doesn't exist. You're in outer space, you're this or that, you're, you know, so it's hard for me to paint that picture when it's so un unreal even though there are people that do it fantastically, uh, for me to do it is very hard because I can't feel it. It's not, I can't see it. I can't go there. I can't talk to those people. So there's kind of a limit to that in terms of what I feel comfortable doing. But in terms of place or time period, you know, like I can go to Monroeville and literally walk in the footsteps, like I did a little documentary, little 10 minute piece that's on my website about that, just walking in the footsteps and also Johnny Cash, you know, and go, you can go to places that are exactly as they were. And you can stand in the fields behind Johnny Cash's tiny home that he grew up in. Um, and, you know, you can feel like he talked about the the earth being like gumbo and I never understood what that was until I stepped in the mud behind his house and I lifted up my foot and my boot was just stuck in the mud and my foot literally just came out of my boot and like this just being stuck in this place and the wind blowing across the plains and it's just empty as far as the eye you can see in any direction just like totally isolated desolate you know that is like that's something I can work with because I can it's like immediate and it's like powerful right so you know like yeah it doesn't matter if, even if it's 100 years ago 200 years ago you can still find the thing that can paint help paint you the picture in your head you know that was author Gene Neary from episode 99 and next up and finally is editor Cheryl Klein episode 100 oh in this uh world that's you know could be influenced by everything you mentioned um yeah. uh, certainly I'm, I'm assuming the uh i mean um, how, how harcourt right now is for sale and that um so is simon and schuster i think and both of them are owned by corp larger corporate entities so that's a stock market thing like if the stock market if their investors decide that they don't want to uh spend a lot of money on books like that influence that does trickle down somewhat to how the editors can spend money. So with all those factors coming into play, 
Um, how do you make your peace with a business that that's that that's crazy? And how should authors make their peace with with so much that, that that's out of the control of of, of all the uh, artists involved? Yeah. Oh well, that is a great question. And what I tend to say is control what you can control, and and that is the quality of your writing, and and the and what you are putting into that writing. Like you can't control. Um, when a book is going to strike an editor at the perfect time or whether the editor will be at the perfect house to acquire that book. You can, you can do some research and things like that that will help you know what, what place is best. Or agents like always have their ear to the ground for all these sort of things and these underground rumblings. But, um, but what writers can control is the story that they have to tell and, um, and how good that story is. And you you can think about, um, and maybe also, like, you can control what story you want to put out in the world at the time. I mean, coming back to Harry Potter for just a minute, I, I don't actually think this was intentional on J.K. Rowling's part. But the fact that she wrote, Harry, like, a huge amount of the success of Harry Potter, I think, can be attributed it, to it being published starting in the year 1997. Because you know what else was starting in the year 1997 was the internet. <laughs> and if there ever a book was designed for being discussed by people on the internet, a book series was designed for that, it was Harry Potter. And also the largest high school graduating class of all time um, graduated in 2008. How old were those people in 2008? And when 1997, they were nine or 10. They were the perfect age for Harry Potter. J.K. Rowling could not control any of that. She could control the story that she put out there. And then she happened to have the massive good luck of having a huge audience of exactly the right age who all got on the internet and got passionate about discussing these books at the right, at the same time, you know? And so, um, so, but what she could control was the writing. And she, and she got rejected by like, I forget whether it was 12 or 21 or whatever publishers, because at the time she was putting the book out there originally, like everybody was like, fantasy, bah, you know, but she believed in the book. And so she kept going. And then the time changed and times changed and it turned out to be the right time for everything because she had a good book. that was exciting to read. This is it an apocryphal tale that is, was it author Levine's daughter that, that discovered the manuscript and said, Hey, let's publish this. Or was that somebody at Bloomsbury in, in UK? That's, I, I don't know about daughter. Um, Arthur found, Arthur was given a galley of the book at the Bologna book fair uh, by somebody who worked at Bloomsbury. Okay. Um, and so uh, it wasn't his daughter, but um, he doesn't have a daughter actually. But, uh, but Okay, well, case closed. Yeah, <laughs> but it might have been like the agent's daughter or something like that. So, yeah. Well, with, with that particular uh, book, I know there's so many apocryphal tales. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm never certain what's what's actually real. And <laughs> yeah. um, I want to talk about Leon Lowe, but since we came back to Harry Potter, one more burning question on that. <laughs> Having had that experience, and obviously, uh, when I talked with uh, Thomas Taylor, who's the author of the wonderful Malamander. Uh, check the back catalog of Steamed Audience. He's worth listening to. His books are worth reading. Great, great author. But he also designed the UK cover for Harry Potter and the Fluff. Uh, oh, that's right. Stone. Um, and so when I asked him about it, because of course, uh, among all the other questions I had for him, uh, he admitted that 
at times he wished he hadn't been a part of that because he always has to live up and live past that and step outside of the the shadow of you know the biggest series that probably has ever existed or, or close to um certainly for i don't know you, you would be the person to ask what's bigger than harry potter and in, in, in the world of children's fiction um Maybe there's not much. I mean, not not in hardcover. I mean, things like Rick Riordan, maybe. Um, but and and then and there's like Goosebumps and Magic Treehouse and Junie B. Jones and you know, there's there's lots of chapter book series that have sold millions of copies just chugging along and don't get the respect that they deserve. Um, you know, for the work that they do down there. But in terms of middle grade or YA hardcover, there's there's a, there's basically Harry and Hunger Games and Required in, and I feel kind of like that's it. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, well, my, uh, my, my, my question uh, was coming, uh, coming from that and going forward, knowing that um, I don't know, maybe J.K. Rowling comes up with an idea for another Harry Potter and she says, hey, let's get the gang back together. But 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 uh, short of that, um, it's not that likely that you're ever going to catch that kind of lightning in a bottle again or be a part of something quite that huge. Is that a relief or are you prefer to work on books that have a, a dedicated fan base and an audience that you're going to reach, but that you, you don't have to go on Nightline and, and address the whole world? Honestly, like, I think, I, I do think Harry was like, oh, I mean, I, I take no responsibility for being part of it, um, for, for creating it in any way. I was just sort of caught up in riding the lightning. Um, my, my own take on it is more that, like, I want, I want the thing that I can control, coming back to the idea of what you can control. I, I can't control whether any books will ever sell that well again. And to some extent, I don't expect any book to ever sell that well again. Um, but just because I, I think that the internet has moved on, or, or the world has moved on. Um, attention spans are a lot more fractured now. Things are, things are, you know, it's a lot harder to capture people's minds and attention, I think, in the way that Harry did at that one time. Um, anything now that's published will be, get compared to Harry, whereas Harry, there wasn't really anything to compare it to other than um, in terms of sales before that. Um, so I don't really expect any, I, I would love to find the thing that, I would love to find a book that sells it well, of course, but I, but really what I would love to find more is a book that people, that makes people feel the way that Harry Potter felt. Um, in the sense that um, it sweeps people up into a magical world. It, um, you fall in love with the characters or, or more accurately, perhaps you feel like the characters are your friends and you want to hang out with them, even if they're just like sitting around bickering about Quidditch or some other obscure sport, you know. Um, and you want to unravel the mysteries and you want to go on this um, magical adventure and feel like you're learning things within the magical world. Like, so I would love to find a book that does that, even if it's set in our real world, you know, and it's not a fantasy. I would love to find a book that does that, um, certainly starring a kid of color that, uh, that has that same warmth and loveliness. And, 
again, going back to the things I can control, like I can't control necessarily whether that book will come to me and I can't control whether it'll sell a million dollars or sell a million copies. Um, but I can control the, what the books I choose to publish and the level of editorial attention I give them and the work that I do on them to try to make them as appealing as possible for the readers who are going to find them and who need them. So that's, so I try to bring that same, like whether a book is going to publish, whether a book, whether I think a book is going to publish, sell a million copies or sell 10,000 copies, I try to bring that same level of dedication and thoughtfulness and love to it to make it the best book that it can be for what it's going to be. Um, and, and that's the thing I can control. And that's it. That's the end of Middle Grade Ninja's third clip show. Uh, hopefully we'll be back uh, sooner rather than later with a fourth clip show for you. Uh, until then, new episodes air uh, every Saturday. Uh, make sure to head to middlegradeninja.com for written interviews with hundreds of uh, editors, authors, literary agents, publishing professionals, folks you would be interested in. Uh, and as always, God willing that I'm alive. I'll see you next week. Thank you.